Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory, and True History Herstory of Nasara. We are so grateful to have you here on this Saturday before the equinox, as we call for the blessings of that sacred time and our new moon upcoming as well to bless us with balance and harmony with equilibrium here this uh, weekend in all that we do, all that we are, each individual man, woman, and child, bringing in the balance and the balance of the divine masculine and feminine and all the things that that implies. So take this time to go into your heart center as we begin. Going into the heart center, we ask for the perfect balance and activation of the threefold flame. The sapphire blue of divine will and divine power and the divine masculine. The pink rose of divine love, respect and reverence for all life, and the divine feminine. And the yellow gold of divine wisdom, illumination, and enlightenment. The sacred Christ in all of us. We ask this to be activated for one and all as we ourselves call forth from our heart center the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence and goddess presence as we see ourselves in our pillar of light and call forth the Mahama energy through all 352 levels directly to source. We see our pillar connected to source and connected to Mother Gaia, her sacred crystalline heart. And we know the oneness that we have with each one with source one with Gaia, one with all that is. And we know that we are one with everyone, so we invite them in through the following prayer. Please join me in saying, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with my mother, father, God, and all of my brothers and sisters across the world. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. Thus, we invite them in as their I am present to join us in this ascension work here today. 
as we take this time to be the bridge between heaven and earth. <coughs> to be the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. And we see them all joining us in their mighty pillar of light. Fully connected. Fully in the unity consciousness. Seeing all separation melt away. And so we invite for everyone, all of our soul extensions, both planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul family and soul pods. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our Ascension Council, our Mission Council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light. And all Ascended Master healers and healing teams. And we welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light. And their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with. From Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus. And all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, including St. Patrick that was celebrated yesterday. We worked with the Green Ray this week a lot. And St. Joseph, who was an incarnation of St. Germain. And so we welcome the entire company of heaven asking our Mother, Father, God, to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it individually and collectively in divine order for each one. 999 times, 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. And we call in all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves and with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, 
every chakra, every meridian, every layer of our auric field multidimensionally, as well as on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level for all. And we call forth everyone and everything in our circle of support from the very first name that created it to every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every business, every corporation, every nation, every military, every government the legislative aspect of each government and all the laws being created, the executive aspect of each government, and all of the leaders here, all of our cabinet posts, everyone that serves in that branch, and all of the judicial branches of each government on national, state, and local levels. All of the aspects of the Justice Department, all court cases, all legal proceedings, asking divine justice and calling in the violet ray. That's what we'll be working with first here today is the violet ray. So let's blaze it through all of those and through everything in our circle of support. Every aspect of lack, every aspect of um, greed, every aspect of disharmony of any kind, again, individually and collectively, so that we hold in this circle of support the perfection of all, seeing the divinity in all, and that all may see the divinity in themselves and every other person, so that all of the activities come into balance, be it the weather, the harmony upon the earth, goodwill amongst all men and women, eternal peace, equality, justice, financial equality, and everything that is a part of our new earth, our vision of heaven. And we place all the energy (coughs) of all the events this month, the equinox, the upcoming new moon, the March Madness, all of the sporting events, the award shows, whatever it is, we're going to bring all of that energy into our collective cup of consciousness to transform the planet, to assist everyone to see who they are as a divine being and to understand their purpose and their contribution in creating heaven on earth 
And we ask Gaia to join us in this process and receive all that we receive through every chakra meridian layer of our work field, multidimensionally, through her ley lines and song lines, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all the multidimensional grid system. <clears throat> and through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every stargate, every city of light, as we continue up the spiral of evolution, and Gaia takes her rightful place as freedom star. So blaze with me the violet flame as we do the following invocation. In the name of the great I am, I call for the light of a thousand suns from the great central sun. Angels of violet fire, beloved Saint Germain, Beloved Zadkiel and Holy Amethyst, Amritas, ruler of the violet planet. In the name of God, Goddess, I am that I am, saturate the earth and all of her evolution with limitless waves of violet fire. I call for the action of the violet transmuting flame and the action of the will of God to manifest on earth now and forever, an ever-increasing spiral of divine perfection. I call for all discord and all activities on earth that are not reflecting the highest light and love of our Mother, Father, God, and their holy purposes to be miraculously swept and transformed by the power of the violet flame into divine love and harmony for the restoration of earth and her people into their original blueprint of perfection that was originally intended. Violet flame, violet flame, oh violet flame. In the name of God, goddess flood the earth, her people, and all her kingdoms with oceans and oceans of violet fire until every particle of life is restored to divine perfection, including the divine perfection of every man, woman, and child in their physical body, as well as mentally, emotionally, energetically, and spiritually. May peace and love be spread throughout the earth. May the earth abide in the aura of perfect love. May the earth abide in an aura of peace, love, and freedom. I give thanks that it is done now according to God's most holy will. So be it, and so it is. Beloved I am, beloved I am, beloved I am. <laughs> Take a nice deep breath as we say, mighty Christ I am. I command and demand the compelled manifestation of the victory of the love of the sacred fire and full control everywhere I abide. My mighty God presence I am. Beloved Saint Germain. Beloved Goddess of Justice, I call forth your heart flames of sacred fire, love, wisdom, purity, and power. And I am the outer manifestation of all of our prayer calls 
my mighty God, Goddess Presence, I am, and all the ascended host of light. I call upon you to charge, charge, charge my mind, body, and feelings, and to go ahead of me and charge my environment and everyone I contact in this embodiment and charge my home, my bank accounts, my relationships, and all my projects with your heart, flame, sacred fire, love, wisdom, purity, and power into this outer self that compels its purification, resurrection, and transformation to be the perfect channel, open door, and conduit in which the great powers of the sacred fire can pass through with ease and grace as I direct it to the world. I am the ascended Christ resurrection and the life of the fulfillment of this call. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Mighty Christ, I am great ascended and angelic host and beloved seven mighty Elohim. Charge, charge, charge my mind and brain structure, my feelings and my physical body, and that of all humanity in divine order. And all the energy of my world with the seven mighty Elohim, sevenfold flames of Elohim, sacred fire, peace, purity, power, protection, abundance, and victory in full cosmic action. Releasing the cosmic Christ, sacred fire, power of the great central sun's magnus presence in full glorious command and action in through and around me every moment of every day. clothe me in your world of your sacred fire, love, and peace, power, and peace, too, that loves to release its glorifying love, boundless supply, and its invincible protection. The victory of God in action for all eternity. Mighty God, Goddess Presence, I am, and seven mighty Elohim, I demand the flame in my heart and the sevenfold flame within my forehead blend, holding the upper portion of my body within a son's presence of love, wisdom, and power. The light of God never fails, and the love of God always fulfills. Mighty Christ, I am, beloved Saint Germain, charge me with your own heart's flame of royal purple, violet flame mastery over my mind and feeling. The very cells of my physical body and all the activities of my outer life. Beloved Saint Germain, make of me your royal purple, violet flaming mastery that must come in sooner rather than later in these early days of the seventh golden age to silence, shut off, and remove the destruction and all evil, that the great divine director has decreed no longer has any right to be in this world. I am the cosmic law's victorious fulfillment of this call. 
so be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And take a nice deep breath. Couldn't call forth Gaia and Sandalphon to help us to anchor these. Again, with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy. Serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium and love and light and laughter. We're working with St. Germain. So see, sense and feel his presence as we do this next invocation. Mighty Christ I am and beloved St. Germain, I call upon your mighty unfed flame within this heart to rise and expand now and release your love that forms the sun's presence around the upper half of my physical body. And out from that golden sun's presence, from my golden tunnel of light and love. So every time I send forth my love from the unfed flame of my heart, the love passes through the sun's presence around me, enriching it, and passes through the tunnel of love into the heart flames of all the ascended masters I hold dear. I command my heart flame to create and send out 1,000 golden spheres, 1,000 miniature suns, and send those mighty spheres of light and love out from my heart flame through the golden sun's presence around me, through my tunnel of love, and out into the world, a great blessing. Oh, great love flame within my heart, I command you every 24 hours to release one after another. 1,000 miniature suns of thy love out into me and out the tunnel of light and love. And release, release, release those suns across the world, over all the cities of Canada, America, Great Britain, Australia, France, all of Europe, Africa, Asia, and all the world. I call upon the cosmic Christ and all who direct the golden flames of all Christ's illumination to the earth. And I call upon Mother Akasha and all who direct the rose pink flames to the earth to take up this great activity with us and amplify this call and these golden suns 10 billion times 10 billion and send these miniature suns and all extra light rays and love rays and the sacred fire that is necessary to awaken and activate the hearts and minds of all the people in this world, especially those who are good and constructive, as we call forth the next great wave of awakening We call forth all humanity to awaken to their own great God, Goddess Presence, in the seventh golden age. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. 
beloved Christ I am, beloved Mother Akasha, Ascended Host, I command the mighty Christ I am and the Ascended and Angelic Ones come all around my family, including this family of light, around all of my loved ones. We call this forth for each of us, and I demand the invincible sacred fire protection and fold them forever. I command Archangel Michael and Lord Estrella to draw their sacred fire protection around each one and around their mental, physical, and feeling bodies, releasing the illuminating Christ presence into their mind and feelings. We call forth the royal purple violet flame sacred fire protection the cosmic Christ blue flame protection around each of their minds and feelings to keep them safe from the sinister force that is yet in this world. And we give thanks as we say, I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. Great cosmic beings, come, 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 step into the lower atmosphere of Earth with your uncountable legions of angelic hosts and burn away through the power of the sacred fire of love, the sinister force, so that it never touches another part of life ever again. We call forth the protection of the sacred fire into our lives and into the future great I am that is to be given voice in our lives forward, that must be protected. We command sacred fire protection around all of our loved ones. We ask the angels and the ascended ones to release the illuminating Christ presence into their mind and feelings to quicken their awakening with the illuminating presence that is the light of the Christ. We call forth protection of all of our towns villages and cities, all of our communities, that they all may be charged with the illuminating presence of the Christ. I am the perpetual sustaining action of this prayer call in the name of beloved Akasha and by the power of the great central sun magnet. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath as we anchor this. For ourselves and for all humanity. And I'm going to share with you that I came across these these invocations. They were actually written in 2013 by Radiant Rose. I found that they were just so, so appropriate here today as well. As we blaze the violet flame around the planet and each of our communities, we're going to say a special prayer for the cities across the world. We now turn to the great ascended beings of the fire element demand that they lead legions of the angels of the sacred fire 
to build domes of the sacred fire element over New York City, Chicago, Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary, Montreal, Paris, London, Los Angeles, I'm going to add Detroit, (laughs) and all the major cities of the earth. We demand the legions of the angels of the sacred fire begin building these mighty domes of sacred fire, and I'm sure they have in the last 10 years, over all urban areas, that these angels direct that sacred fire in concentration into those areas. Once again, to keep all diabolical plans of the dark forces at bay. We call upon Archangel Michael and Lord Estrella to remove the entire sinister force from this world once and for all and replace it now with the golden flames of beloved Helios and Vesta and the ascended masters heaven made manifest on earth. I am the great central sun's eternal fulfillment of this call and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Mighty God, Goddess Presence, I am. St. Germain, Mother Akasha, Mighty Victory. We command and demand the end of all darkness upon this planet now. We demand thou give the command for the ascended and the angelic host to appear. Appear in the atmosphere of this planet and just saturate the planet Earth and the mental and feeling side of all the people of Earth with a great sacred fire. And all of us love, mercy, and forgiveness that compels, compels, compels the immortal purity that human mind and feelings require and the stability of the physical garment to bring forth the Master Christ's presence in each one of us and everyone across the planet as quickly as possible. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. Just keep blazing the violet flame and all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves. As we say the following for the governments of our planet, calling forth enlightenment. Mighty Christ I am, mighty Christ presence of all humankind embodied and those awaiting embodiment. Beloved Saint Germain, goddess of justice, Angels of the violet flame. <coughs> Excuse me. Beloved mighty victory and your limitless legions of victory. And oh infinite I am presence of the great central sun. United we stand and command limitless oceans, oceans, oceans of the great central sun's mightiest crystalline diamond frequencies of the violet flame miracles of eternity. Sweep, sweep, sweep into all the governments, all institutions, all businesses and corporations of the United States, of Canada, of all the nations in the three Americas, all the nations of Europe, and every nation across the world. 
and blaze, blaze, blaze into and around everyone in a position of leadership, responsibility, trust, and influence. Remove, remove, remove all those who are destructive and selfish. Remove, remove, remove all those who are destructive and selfish. Remove, remove, remove all those who are destructive and selfish. Strengthen and protect all those who are constructive and ready to serve the light. Be held in the light, illumined by the light, and fulfill the divine plan of the light. The light of God never fails. The love of God always fulfills. Excuse me. Let those who, it must be part of my clearing. I started coughing before we, before I got on. Let those who are not constructive be exposed by the light of God that never fails. Let those who are not constructive be exposed by the light of God that never fails. Let those who are not constructive be exposed by the light of God that never fails. And anchor, anchor, anchor into the feeling side of life and increase desire and radiation of the union of all nations under one God, the mighty Christ I am, to be intolerant of the injustices against the people of the earth and eradicate the history of war. We command this in the name of our beloved St. Germain and the goddess of justice. I am the resurrection and the life of the eternal fulfillment of this cause. Mighty Christ I am, blaze, blaze, blaze the sacred fires, experiencing into all countries and the uprising from the people demanding democracy, true democracy. Beloved St. Germain, drive, drive, drive your violet flames, love, mercy, and forgiveness into all of these nations, into all governments, into all people, into all demonstrations, all protests across the planet. Beloved Akasha, charge, charge, charge your will and love into the people that gives them the strength, courage, and protection they require for true democracy to be achieved. Mighty victory, surge, 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 your blue lightning feeling of victory into these ones and make them victorious in the accomplishment of freedom through the invincible sacred fire love of the glorious I am Christ present. Mother Akasha, we call upon the mighty flame of love and illumination within our heart to project great rhythmic waves of love, illumination, and protection around all the people of the earth and all those rising up and turning their backs, especially Iran comes to mind, and turning their backs on the sinister forest for the gods, for God's eternal freedom. Archangel Michael, beloved St. Germain, beloved Gatumi, legions of angels, stop all destruction across the planet 
in all nations. Keep track of all plans of terror and go after each one and foil and prevent every plot against the people of the earth. I am the resurrection and the life of the divine plan fulfilled for every country on this earth in the name of the ascended Christ. Mighty God, Goddess Presence, I am of each one living in Europe and all those connected to Europe around the world. Beloved Saint Germain and all the angels of limitless sacred fire love from the great central sun, I demand the cosmic Christ victory of illumination as the thousand suns come into the mental and feeling world of all the European people and their leaders, as well as all the people and leaders across the world. I demand, I demand, I demand that everyone in Europe and all the beings of the elements and the powers of nature be the victory of the eternal peace of the great, great silence over all discord and turmoil, war and violence in Europe. I am the resurrection and the life of the most forgiving love of the cosmic Christ that restores peace, prosperity, and divine awakening in all the countries of Europe and removes all of their records of war from Europe and everywhere across the world. I am the resurrection and the life of the miracle economic recovery of each country in Europe and across the planet. I am the resurrection, the life of the eternal fulfillment of this call. We give thanks for this as we say, I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. Majestic Christ I am. Beloved St. Germain, Lady Nada, Goddess of Liberty, charge, charge, charge every single heart of of every American with the Ascended Master's courage and determination to reach up to God, the I Am Christ Presence, demanding her freedom from all viciousness imposed upon her. America, we love you. America, we love you. America, we love you. The precious jewel of St. Germain's heart and blessed cup of light to the world. Rise, rise, rise through the unsaid flames of all those gathered in the I am Christ presence of all humankind. And release, release, release the mightiest cosmic concentrations of sacred fire from the great central sun's master power flame and blaze, blaze, blaze into the atmosphere of America, this nation, the United States of America, all the nations of the three Americas and all the nations of the world until all are compelled to see the sacred fire and in seeing it to be set free for eternity. O great beings of light, use these mighty activities of the sacred fire 
to keep the American people safe and protected. We call upon the cosmic Christ to project his illumined presence into the minds of the American people, that they may be wiser in their decisions that life will seem to compel them to make. Beloved goddess of liberty, release, release, release limitless legions of your angels of liberation throughout America and the world to set all life free and keep it free for all eternity. I am, I am, I am. By all God's love, I know I am the invincible, eternal, indestructible, unconquerable, unconquerable, illimitable force of a trillion suns and mighty victories, victory manifest all throughout America and the world. Compelling, 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 God manifests in full Christ control of all within America and all across the world that reveals the perfection of light as has always been intended for all by the ascended masters, the higher mental bodies, and the I am Christ presence of all humankind. Finish this now and get it done. With the speed of blue lightning from the great central sun and stand in the light of true victory one. For all eternity, a blazing cosmic sun. The light of God never fails. The love of God always prevails. The truth of always fulfills. The love of God always fulfills. I was ahead of myself. The truth of God always prevails. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this as we ask for that highest magnification for ourselves and for all life. Take a nice deep breath again as we ask for Gaia and Salem to phone to assist us in integrating and grounding this for all life. So I hope you enjoyed our activities of light here today, our invocations. I thank you for your divine service, for taking the time as we begin the program to take the time to be a part of this, part of anchoring heaven on earth. And I invite you to join us every Sunday and Monday to do this work as well. On Sundays and Mondays, we have a teleconference call. We begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings. We have Tarn Rama give us a brief update, and at 9.30, we start our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth through our visualizations, our prayers, our invocations, our meditations, our activations. Each call is unique and very often changeable within the process as things as things develop that evening. So I'm going to give you the the phone number. Please make sure you take we're giving out a different number now. That uh, seems to work better, but there's a whole list of numbers. There are local numbers. There are international numbers. 
there are uh, there's a way to get on through the internet. There's um, an even app, even an app. So just contact me for that information at Cheryl Croce, C H E R Y L C R O C I at AOL.com. Again, that's Cheryl Croce with no space, C H E R Y L C R O C I at AOL.com. And here's the number now. The number that we're suggesting is area code 480. 4806602224 and the access code is the same as it always has been 9467441 pound 9467441 pound we'd love to have you join us and let us know where you're calling from, especially if it's the first time that you're on. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being this a, a wonderful part of this magnificent family of light. We want to thank Tarn Rama for all of their divine service over all these many years. And Rainbird for her service. And special blessings to Rainbird and her family, especially her brother. So we hold everyone and everything on this planet in that violet flame and that emerald array of of healing that we have worked with as well. And I wish you all a magnificent week. Please join us for our Equinox celebration as we celebrate spring, as we celebrate the divine balance be part of our focus tomorrow and Monday. So please plan on joining us. Much love and gratitude. May magic and miracles fill every moment. And I pass the talking stick with this violet ray with the beautiful Mahama energy with that emerald green ray and every imaginable frequency, every imaginable blessing. We've covered a lot of territory in our prayer work, Rainbirds, so we know that every elemental, every fairy, every leprechaun, every dragon, every uh, gemstone has been working with us. So with that, I'm going to pass the talking stick, my dear. Blessing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Cheryl. And we're grateful for your divine service. And thank you for all your prayers for my brother. Appreciate that as well. So we are a listener supported radio program, and it's each of us that make it happen. And so I want to give the update on that. This is um, what we need. We, we need three hundred dollars this week for um, our fees at BBS Radio, and uh, that needs to be there by Tuesday. So let's just get it done. <laughs> and if all, all of us pitch in, it wouldn't be much for anybody. So we'll just do what we can and know that there's enough. <laughs> and uh, say, here's how we do it. Go into your heart space and see what is yours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com. Click on Radio Station 2, and you'll see the menu there for the, all the programs on Radio Station 2. So at the 1.30 hour, and these are Pacific times, uh, it's 
This program, The True History of the Nisera, My Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama. As you click on that icon there, you will be taken directly to our account with EBS Radio. And then we have two other programs on Radio Station One, and they're at 6 o'clock on Thursdays, a night at the round table with the panel. Click on that icon. Or on Fridays, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Lama at the 6 o'clock hour. And you can click on that icon. That's how we get there. And all we need to do once we're there is to use our bank card and uh, make a donation in any amount. So thank you for your generosity and your attention to this matter. We're all grateful for each other as we get this done. So much gratitude. We're also assisting Tara and Rowan with their needs. And this week... Um, they, all they have is one bill that's due on Monday, and that's the GEICO bill, and they need $55 more to cover that bill, the $100 bill. And they also have outstanding, uh, money to give for the Carter repair that took place last month, and they also need a tire, so that amount is $490 to cover that tire and the $400 that they still owe on the labor. And we want to make sure that E.T. gets compensated for his labor in a timely manner. He is the the mechanic there. And uh, he probably is an E.T. too. Who knows? (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so that's what they need there. And then they also need a couple hundred bucks for feeding the cats and the people. That 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 are all there, like <clears throat> a number of cats and a rabbit that faces the cat, and then there's people there, and they eat too, <laughs> Tara and Rama, and we want them to be uh, have what they need and honor them in that way. So here's how we make a donation to Tara and Rama. You want to go to the web address, rainbowroundtable.net, and there on the homepage you'll see a menu grid. Click on that, and the donate link is near the bottom of that list that drops down. Click on that, and that takes you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount. Alternatively, if you would like to reach the friends option, you do that by going to paypal.com and put in Rama's email there for gifting in that email for Rama at PayPal, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999949 at hotmail.com. And then, uh, so there you have it. That's how we make it happen. Uh, that way, either way is perfect. We're grateful for your contributions. As you're sending something, please let them know that you sent something in that email for for that information is Koran999 at, at Comcast.net. So it's uh, Koran999 at Comcast.net. And let him know what you sent, when you sent it, how much you sent, <laughs> so he can plan accordingly. And then also, as you need it, the, email, the mailing address, the physical address, is... Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D-B, 
B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280. And that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip is 87567. And I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information that you need to make that donation for Tara and Rama and uh, support them in this way. Lots of gratitude for you for doing that and how we support ourselves in this way. So we just paying it forward. And so lots want to say 13 thank yous and honey in the heart, long life, live long and prosper. And I'm passing this talking stick and you heard it from Cheryl. It's, it does have all those berries and feathers and little people on the leprechauns are there. It, it's still green. And we are celebrating spring as it was the official spring yesterday in terms of 12 hours a day and 12 hours a night. And we're celebrating it still. So, And then all the other things that are on this stick, you heard it best from Cheryl. Greetings, Tarn Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Greetings. Oops. Oh, I hear that call. Oh, Rayburn. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Ed. Thank you, Rayburn. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, everyone. And in the name of good vibrations to Bill Jones, Rainbird's brother. And it seems like the good vibrations we were been working with since yesterday are starting to have an effect. So let's keep on keeping the situation. Uh, uh, and it's, I, I heard that it seems like the doctors uh, and uh, somebody in your family is a, a, a neurosurgeon. Is that what you said, Rainbird? It's Bill's son. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's his son. Wow. So he's going to be able to oversight. Is that what's going on? No, he's been included in the conversation, but he, he, I, I think oversight would be a stretch because you know, doctors like their autonomy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to say that we send the right good vibration energy so that he has what he has to make a difference, you know, in his conversation with them. And I just get the feeling that these doctors are really caring about the situation, too, that are working with your with your brother. Yeah, I think so. It wasn't a traumatic accident, so it's not like any kind of a disease that you work into all your life and then it lands with it. It's just it happened all at once. Yeah. Right, and did you say he's got two fractures in his head? No, I don't know anything about that. I don't know any details. Oh, okay. Um, I haven't felt like bothering any of the people. I'm busy with my own checking in with the own healing work that I do, and then we've got a lot of healing people 
just from last night and 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 mother segment just gave a beautiful healing last night and and uh I hooked up with the cash healing team who are Micah gave me that connection and um so yeah, we're just I think that room is full. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you, everybody. And, um, you know, we're coming into a change now. Thank you, Rainbird, so much uh, for what you have facilitated for all of us. How many years now have we been doing this together, Rainbird? Uh, At least 23, maybe 22, I think, yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. And Don's been working with since 1990-something, same thing. And the world's been looking at this for at least that long. So all the insights that we get. And thank you. We've been uh, asked to stay out of the system and to be supported by the people. And thank you. Thank you. We are so grateful. We are so grateful. And in this moment in time, um, you know, Miss Lady Sapphire, our shuttlecraft, uh, has been having wonderful service. It's just that in the last couple of months, how much is that uh, altogether? Uh, oh, nine and seventeen hundred and fifty dollars of work in two months. And, uh, I mean, Rama got this vehicle from ET for $1,800. So it's just about doubled in the last two months the service required to keep her going. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. And we are grateful, so grateful as you can be generous and keep our situation going there and then BBS radio by Tuesday we required to be exact $296.50 to pay BBS radio by Tuesday okay so um, now about accountability Uh, Rama what's do you have a message from the from your people today? Oh, uh, just to, uh, a few words from Chun Li where she said, um, the United States and China are not going to war, even though they are playing with dramas right now. And it has to do with everything, uh, coming to conclusion and it, it is about the larger story here of the banks having their problems and um, this network apparently since February 27-28 what I have seen on the internet they had been hit by some kind of data breach and something to do with ransomware 
where apparently some, you know, they're trying to say Russians broke into Dish Network's website and their apps and created such a mess. Yet Dish Network is down if, you know, uh, you're, if you have Dish Network and it's running, I'm surprised. Yet it seems that this is about the larger story. In the midst of all of this, uh, it was announced on MSNBC this morning Donald Trump is to be arrested on Tuesday. But they announced it this way, that Donald Trump was the one that announced that he's supposed to be arrested on Tuesday. That's a twist for you. Right, trying to cover his you-know-what. I don't know. (laughs) What are you referring to? I wish no ill on any life form. It's, you know, it's like what Cheryl just talked about, breathe in the light. There are so many solar flares going on that uh, the the aurora borealis is people in the Arctic Circle and all those northern countries are having a live show every night about the energies coming in. It is so awesome to look at because this is, in a sense, creator source in rainbow colors saying, here is the energies, and since we are all beings of light and beings of water, uh, it all comes together. (laughs) Oh, and we're in the uh, year of the water rabbit. Yeah. That's a very interesting uh, rabbit scene. I was, can you pull that, Rama? Just pull it up here. Just so. I wanted to just read a little bit of this. We're going to pay attention now because your people are basically saying that the great unraveling is starting. Yeah. I mean, the idea that a major network, you know, it could be anywhere, but like Dish Network gets hit with ransomware. And and we were discussing that at the top of that, you know, CEO, et cetera, it's very evil. It is. And so uh, we send more love, keep our... Friends close and our enemies closer. That's a really good thing to do. And we must hold them accountable. And that's, okay, so I was just going to say, let me just read this. Rabbit the animal. Oh, first of all, um, <clears throat> Uh, the, it started on January 22nd, 2023, and it goes to February 9th, 2024, this water rabbit. And of course, the color is white. 
the worst companions are rats, dragons, uh, ox, and rooster. The best companions are sheep and pigs. <laughs> okay. Ooh. And the, the hours that are ruling is from 5 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock in the morning. Ram and I are up at 5.30 every morning. And if kitties start acting wild earlier, we're up at 3 o'clock. <laughs> anyway, but um, then the direction of this sign is due east. The sun comes up in the east. Mm-hmm. Plus 30 and minus 30. And the season is spring and the principal March month is March right here, right now. And its natural element is wood, the wood rabbit. Uh, its uh, force is yin. Yin is divine feminine. Mm -hmm. So we're spending a year bringing in the goddess. Uh Equal to the divine masculine. And that's really important. And so this couldn't be better. This, this couldn't be, it's obvious that, you know, the old system has not had the divine feminine in mind in general. So we just send them more love. They just don't know what a wonderful thing it is to share equally divine feminine divine masculine so here the animal the most famous rabbit in chinese culture is probably the jade rabbit who resides in the moon palace legend has it that one day three fairy sages transformed themselves into starving old beggars and bumped second bumped into a fox, a monkey, and a rabbit. The sages asked these three animals for something to eat. The fox and the monkey both shared their food with the old men. Yet the poor rabbit had nothing for for itself or the sages. Determined to save the dying old men, the rabbit jumped into a burning fire and offered itself to the beggars. The sages were so moved by the rabbit's sacrifice that with their power, they revived it and granted it eternal life. (laughs) Then... The rabbit was sent to live in the moon palace mm-hmm. with Chang, Chang Air, the moon fairy. Unlike Westerners who associate the full moon with the myth of the werewolf, the Chinese are fascinated by the moon and celebrate moon festival. On the 15th day of the 8th lunar month, just like the West celebrates Christmas and Thanksgiving, this is the day 
for families to watch the full moon together and enjoy moon cakes outdoors. Mm -hmm. It is also a romantic festival for lovers. Somehow, looking at the moon links them together. Some people say that as you look closely at the moon, you will see the beautiful Chang Air Fairy and cheerful Jade Rabbit singing together in the moon palace. All right, that's good. Just let's keep that energy in mind. Um, that doesn't mean you have to sacrifice your life by throwing yourself in the fire. That's not what they're saying. What they are saying is that that rabbit, a water rabbit, water represents divine emotion, offered to the fire its spirit uh, its, its, and its physicality for the sake of transformation by fire. Transformation by fire of the divine of the emotions to divine emotions. Free speech is not gone. Just... What did you say? Said free speech is not gone. It's just Dish Network is having its issues. Yeah, but that's what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the name of the network, but free speech, but um, Dish Network has taken free speech. Uh, TV, where Amy Goodman has to show completely off its network, and Link TV, and all of PBS. What? They took it completely. It's gone. It's completely gone. This is uh, a serious issue that's going on here, everybody. Okay, so I want to read something here that Penny sent us. It's called Follow the Money via video and info from a telegram post. Sensational change of guard at the World Bank. The World Economic Forum makes the president, Trump's man, step down early to install A.J. Banga, deep state man, Chairman of Exor, the Agnelli family, and former chairman of MasterCard. Mm. Dear friends of the Telegram channel, inside the news for a while, the words of an artist friend of the channel have been etching in my mind. Echoing, sorry, in my mind. Follow the money. Follow the money. Trail. Yes, Giovanni Falcone, anti-mafia magistrate, murdered in 1992 by the Silicon Mafia Cosa Nostra in the Capaci Massacre was right. Oh, yeah. Randy sent this to Penny, so he saw it. He caught it and he saw it. Okay, so then it goes on. Uh, I'm not sure which way. Straight down, Emma? Mm-hmm. 
or if you prefer, I'm not sure if it's straight down or if it's across. It um, might be like across. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, some time ago, we had talked about that fact that the World Economic Forum elites had an obstacle on the path. They had charted toward uh, net zero, zero emissions, and this obstacle in no small part was precisely the president of the World Bank, appointed on time by by drum david malpass at the heart of the world bank was very skeptical about funding the green transition because as all shrewd people know it's a leap out of faith or if you prefer a decisive step toward the Great Reset. So, the Davos Club had to remove the obstacle to their own shady plans. And who will take his place? The one... Yeah, that guy, David. <coughs> this is David Malpass, the one who was ousted. The picture's missing, Rama. I don't know why. So anyway, and who will take his place? The one who will who will best be able to implement the 2030 agenda, meaning that green stuff, green transition stuff. At least that's what those. at the World Economic Forum seek. So the Biden administration appointed A.J. Banga, a member of the Globalist Trilateral Commission, Mm. to head the World Bank. Oh, dear. He's from India. He's East Indian, everybody. Rama, you didn't reprint this. Mm. Everything's upside down. I can turn it right side up. All right. Here is the list of trilateralists in Biden's inner circle who are driving policy in the direction of global governance and the erosion of U.S. sovereignty. And then it's got some people there. Uh Huh. Uh, Lael Brainard, member of the Board of Governors of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Eric Schmidt, Office of Science and Technology Policy, John Podesta, oh, he's a dirtball, mm. Green New Deal Czar, really, 
And now, A.J. Banga, president of the World Bank. When the Trilateral Commission was formed in 1973 by globalist banker David Rockefeller and globalist professor, um, I'm not sure which way we go here, but... uh, Uh, okay, then the next thing is, since that time, six of the nine World Bank presidents appointed have been member states of the Trilateral Commission. Um, the Bini Zabini to Brzezinski would reports that the two men had successfully engineered a takeover of the Carter administration to control the world's economic engine, the United States. Yep. Follow the money, a phrase that keeps buzzing in my ear. Now, Biden has used his presidential appointment power to choose A.J. Banga as World Bank president. Mm -hmm. This is pretty ugly. It's going to get uglier. Okay. Let's pay attention to his Incredible resume. According to a White House press release on the nomination uh, of J. Banga, A.J. Banga, is currently, A.J. Banga is currently vice president of General Atlantic. He previously served as president and CEO of MasterCard, leading the company through strategic, technological, and cultural transformation. Throughout his career, AJ has become a global leader in technology. What does invocate? What does innovation for inclusion mean? Um, Okay, wait. Uh, As global leader in technology, uh, in data, financial services, (coughs) and innovation for inclusion. What does innovation for inclusion mean? He is also chairman of XOR and an independent director of Tomasek. Beyond Net Zero at its inception in 2021, he previously served on the boards of the American Red Cross, and that's a dirty bird organization too, very dirty. Mitt Romney was playing around with them. Craft Foods and Down Incorporation. 
AJ worked closely with Vice President Harris as co-chair of the Central America Partnership. He is a member of the Trilateral Commission, as we mentioned, a founding trustee of the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum, a former member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and Chairman Emeritus of the American India Foundation. That's a lot of power in one man. Follow the money. And yes, Wood says Banga is the perfect choice to usher in a new global financial system based on digital IDs and central bank digital currencies. He is a cybersecurity expert and former head of MasterCard. Mm. It is interesting that Banga comes from MasterCard, which is at the forefront of climate change and the war against so-called fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. I'm turning the page and turning it upside down. So that it comes out right side up. Oh my God. Um, climate change is one of the greatest challenges of our generation. He is a cybersecurity expert and former head of MasterCard saying it again. It's interesting that Banga comes from Massacre. Okay, that's a repeat. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, nature has a built-in network to preserve the environment. That's true. But humans are given that natural uh, network a run for its money, everybody. He is a cybersecurity expert and former head. Okay, that's again, repeat. Okay, trees are integral to removing carbon from the atmosphere. He has a new card available, voluntary for now, that measures the carbon footprint of users based on their purchases, travel habits, and so on. That's interesting. The big challenge for us as individuals, as consumers, is that with climate change, it takes not one of us. It takes all of us. Doctor, Doctor, I think that says Doctor Bo Lidgras. That's very hard to. Okay. Um, he has a new card available, voluntary for now. Oh, that's a repeat too. Okay, let me go down. Yes, what do we got here? Patty, yes, help. Yes, yes, Sarah. I I just wanted to to tell you, and you, 
and, and, and by telling you, remind everybody who's listening that what I did with this information was stop a video. Of, it was about a five-minute video that came by via telegram. And I stopped it every time the text on the pages changed because there's two things going on with that video. The people are talking in Italian behind the scenes, like behind, and then somebody has put an English translation in at the bottom of the pictures. And what you're reading is the translation. Um, and, and I think generally summarizing what's going on. And sometimes some of the things that you're reading, like the one about climate change is one of the greatest challenges of our generation, that was, um, there are several uh, cards or se several uh, screenshots that have messages on them. And those are some of the messages that come on, too. And, and I don't know whether you found it or not, but at the bottom of the page there's uh, uh, pa uh, page numbers, too. So if you get, you get lost. Um, there you go. So I just wanted people to know that, you know, you sound, you sound like you don't know what you're reading, but you're reading from the bottom of pictures. You're not reading a text. And that's, that's one of the difficulties of doing what I did, but at least you've got all the information that we talked about previously, which I hadn't found at all in a written document. So um, this is a, a, an easy way to get stuff out using the telegram is an easy way to get material out. It is. I just wanted Thank to you. explain to people. Yeah. Okay, that's Thank all I wanted to say because it explains why you, it's, you're so choppy in, in what you're presenting. <laughs> it's just because yes. of the material you have to work with. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, it catches. Well, we're working yeah. on it. Thank you, Penny, because it's uh, it's an enormous help, I believe. Uh, it's an enormous of, what, Tara? An enormous help in terms of what's going on. Oh yeah, I mean you've you've caught up with something that was just announced this morning. I mean, and we're being able to put it out. I mean, that's really something. So I I, I literally opened my eyes and my intuition said, "Turn on the TV." I turned it on, and there was Katie Fang, and it said, uh, "What do they say when that's a new, the latest?" You know, the world, uh, the world. I mean, she's she's the one who said that the World Bank president had changed. Um, uh, she was talking about Donald Trump voluntarily saying, "I'm going to be arrested on Tuesday." And I go, "What?" Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's when we found out that what he's really doing is. Uh, setting up some of the other material I read off you, to you from the MSN uh, page was that he was basically setting up his people to do what they did on January the 6th, two years ago. That seems to be his, uh, you know, his modus operandi. So, yes, yeah. and that's called treason. That's what that's called. Indeed. Well, that's not when you actually read some of when you think about what's being said here. He's not the only one, not the only um, president in office who committed treason. The current one seems to be doing the same thing. Yeah, and that one's a dead person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's strategy. You know, you 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 can't you can't kill a scarecrow or something like that, right? Well, anyway, see, he was, I'll I'll let he you finish. 
I was going to say, Penny, that he spent something like 47, 48 years as a member of Congress. And so he's thoroughly programmed. Yeah, and he's also he's also a committee of foreign relations, isn't he? And a trilateral man as well. Biden. Yeah. Oh, I think you said he was a or no, he's not. He's not on the committee of foreign. No, he he was in. He had a title that was similar to that in Congress. What was that called? Oh, okay. Oh, chairman of the foreign. Committee on Foreign Relations. There you go. Yeah, that was in okay. Congress. So he wasn't on the he wasn't on the big on the big list. He's just on the the addendum, <laughs> as it were. No, yeah. But see, see, he was willing. Oh, we are getting slow. To, to lie like there's no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, they think there's going to be no tomorrow, but guess what? Tomorrow's just arrived. It has. Anyway, Tara, I'll let you go and finish it up and uh, and, and worry and a little getting, bit more about all the snow. <laughs> yeah, we're Our getting weird. tons of snow right now. We're getting another pile of it. Well, and I just want to say we're eight above and everything's melting. So, you know, God's in his heaven, all rights with the world. All's right with the world. <laughs> i leave you to it. Okay. Namaste. It's, it's 60 degrees in Houston, and it's 30 degrees in Santa Fe. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> Something's the matter with Dish Network. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. I'll leave now. Farewell. Okay. Thank you, Thank you. Mm. Really quick, using our own networks generates tax at scale. This is their ultimate goal, to control your money. To control you, Wood concludes his article by writing, in effect, the commission still controls all economic policy inside the White House and and, and plans to lead the world in and through the Great Reset to Democracy. That is a joke. Mm. And, yeah, using language to confuse you, that was the ultimatum there. Okay, so, um, this is their ultimate goal. Okay, that's, okay. Then it says, uh, it's got, um, 14 BRICS Summit. I guess that means 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Wood does not say that. You know, going towards... Yet there is a mm-hmm. but. The biggest hurdle, the BRICS, still remains to be removed. Uh... I don't know how to put that, but uh, I think I'm going to leave the rest of this slum. You got the drift, everybody. Let's see, right at the bottom here. Done away with, oh, Bolsonaro. Yeah, done away with Bolsonaro, at least temporarily. Brazil... 
Brazil led by globalist Lula da Silva. Yet Russia, India, China, and South Africa, that's, uh, again, Brazil is the B, Russia's the R, I is for India, C is for China, and uh, South Africa is for S, BRICS. Uh, so again, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa hold out now continuing to follow the money trail uncovers a colossal attack on the BRICS by the Davos Club elite. The plot, which I guarantee is very compelling, will be the subject of an upcoming video news report. A.J. Paul Singh Banga, born November 10th, 1959, is an Indian-born American business executive. On February 23rd, 2023, he was nominated by President of the United States, Biden, uh, nationality Indian, East India. Born November 10th, 1959. Education, Hyderabad Public School. General Atlantic, MasterCard World Bank, President of the World Bank. Note this entry. That's a lot of power in one person. Anyway, all right. I did my best. So, I'm going to play a few things here. If we got a moment here, I want to go to um, Rachel Meadow on last Monday. She had Elizabeth Warren on her show. And she made a big, strong couple of things statement-wise. So here we go. Let's just play this. All right. Let's see. Everything up there, Rama? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but I got to make the sound go up. Yeah. Good evening, Rachel. Good evening, Amy. Um, nice to see you, and thank you for the big uh, tease, the big, uh, the big mention that I've got Elizabeth Warren here live this hour. I really appreciate that. Yes, absolutely, my friend. Very excited to, to hear what she says about this yeah. uh, very distressing situation. Me too. Thank you so much. All right, um, and thanks to everyone for joining us this hour. It is really good to have you here. Um, when we get a new president in this country, um, or when we get a president reelected for a new term, um, that president is inaugurated, uh, he or maybe someday she is sworn in to start a new presidential term in January, right? That's why it's always so cold. (laughs) January 20th is when the inauguration happens. But that has only been true since the 1930s. Up until the 1930s, presidents did not get inaugurated in January. They waited another two months. They didn't get inaugurated until March. The last time a president got inaugurated on the old day in March, the final March inauguration was March 4th, 1933. That was when FDR, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, got sworn in as president for the first time. But that was also the last time we as a country would have to wait that whole four-month period after the election before we let the new president take over. 
after we had that first inauguration of FDR in March 1933, after that one, we moved the inauguration date earlier, back to January. We actually had to amend the United States Constitution in order to make that change. And they called that amendment to the Constitution, the 20th Amendment, they called it the lame duck amendment. Because by moving the inauguration from March back to January, we were shortening the lame duck period. We were trying to eliminate a long lame duck period after which the old president had been voted out, but before the new one started on the job. And the idea was sort of obvious, right? It was to, to try to minimize the risk of crisis, minimize the risk of confusion in terms of who was running the country in case something hinky happened in that interregnum period between the election and the start of the new president's term. So the last time we had one of those long four-month interregnums before the inauguration of the new president was in 1933. Mm -hmm. And, And that year, by the time we finally got around to inaugurated Franklin D. Roosevelt as the new president, it was really, really obvious that year in 1933 that it was past time to make that change. It was really, really obvious in 1933 that it was going to be a good idea to not wait until March anymore, to instead let a new president take over sooner. And the reason that was so obvious in 1933 is because when FDR finally got inaugurated that year, when he finally got inaugurated in March 1933, we were literally in the middle of a nationwide run on the banks when he got inaugurated. This was in the middle of the Great Depression, of course, 1933. And during the term of the previous president, Republican Herbert Herbert Hoover, who had a disastrous presidency in economic terms, um, during Hoover's time in office, there had been a series of banking panics people making runs on banks. It happened in specific parts of the country in 1930 and in 1931. Uh, But then in 1932, there was a really big surge in bank failures in both the West and the Midwest. And there started to be a national panic. In 1932, when that national panic was taking hold, individual states started declaring bank holidays. Um, Nevada was the first one who did it, but then other states, including Michigan, followed suit. Individual states started declaring holidays. They started declaring that all banks would be closed on specific days, basically just to stop people from rushing in and pulling all their deposits and collapsing more banks. But doing that at a piecemeal, in, in a piecemeal way, doing that state by state, sort of happenstance, random state by random stance, by random, random state by random state, it, it wasn't enough. And the problem was spreading. And the fall of 1932, November 1932, that's when Roosevelt was elected in the presidential election. He was elected to replace Hoover in a landslide. Roosevelt won 42 states that year. But even as Roosevelt won and everybody knew there was going to be a new sheriff in charge, right? There was going to be somebody new in charge in Washington who was going to have radically different economic policies. Still, the banking system was having connections. And there was this problem because we were still on the old calendar, right? Roosevelt won that election in November, but he wasn't actually able to get sworn in until March, until March 4th. When he did get sworn in, though, he immediately took action. Desperate times call for desperate measures. FDR was inaugurated on March 4th. Two days later, on March 6th, 
He declared for the first time a nationwide bank holiday to freeze the banking system in place, to, to finally put a national system, a national response in place to shore up banking coast to coast, to give Americans everywhere assurance that they would not lose their money in the banks. And after that, we would never again, as a country, wait that long for a new president to take over after he'd been elected in November. When FDR sprang into action in March 1933, when he stopped the national banking crisis two days after he was sworn in, he also, at the same time, invented a whole new thing to communicate with the American people, to explain to them what he and his new administration were doing and how it was supposed to work to stop the national run on the banks. FDR was sworn in March 4th. He instituted that federal bank holiday on March 6th. On March 12th, he gave his first fireside chat, and it was about the bank's crisis. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. To talk with the comparatively few who understand the mechanics of banking, but more particularly with the overwhelming majority of you who use banks for the making of deposits and the drawing of checks. I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days and why it was done and what the next steps are going to be. First of all, let me state the simple fact that when you deposit money in a bank, the bank does not put the money into a safe deposit vault. It invests your money in many different forms of credit, in bonds and commercial paper and mortgages and in many other kinds of loans. In other words, the bank puts your money to work to keep the wheels of industry and of agriculture turning around. A comparatively small part of the money that you put into the bank is kept in currency, an amount which in normal times is fully sufficient to cover the cash needs of the average citizen. He was a good explainer. That was a good explanation to the American people of what was going on. And he went on to explain that... Um, although most banks were well run, not all banks were well run. He said some were run by bankers who were, in his words, incompetent or dishonest. And he said that, you know, people losing confidence in the banks had caused people, understandably, to rush to get their money out of the banks. That had created the present crisis, which had led him and his brand spanking new government to step in and take over to try to stabilize the whole mess. Let me make it clear to you that the banks will take care of all needs when the people find that they can get their money, that they can get it when they want it for all legitimate purposes. The phantom of fear will soon be laid. People will again be glad to have their money where it will be safely taken care of and where they can use it conveniently at any time. I can assure you, my friends, that it is safer to keep your money in a reopened bank than it is to keep it under the mattress. I can assure you it is safer to keep your money in a reopened bank than under the mattress. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, that was his first ever fireside chat. It was 90 years ago exactly. 90 years ago yesterday. And just in case you were under the mistaken impression that anything ever changes ever, here was President Biden. 9 a.m. this morning. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence 
that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Because of the actions that our regulators already taken, every American should feel confident that the deposits will be there if and when they need them. Sure you that it's safer to keep your money in a reopened bank than under the mattress. In other words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. 90 years apart. Same message from the president. 90 years apart. Another bank run. And the reason President Biden today was able to say, you don't have to put your money under the mattress, it's safe, we're making sure of it, everybody who deposited money in these banks will be able to get their money out of these banks. The reason he was able to promise that today is also because of FDR. Because after Franklin D. Roosevelt was sworn in in March 1933, and then two days later, he took control of the banking crisis. And then six days later, he gave his first fireside chat in which he explained the whole banking crisis to the American people and told them what he was doing to get a hold of it. Just a few weeks after that, FDR signed legislation that created the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which does exactly what it says. If you make deposits of your own money into an American bank, any federal bank that is insured by FDIC can guarantee you that the federal government will provide insurance for your deposit. So no matter what stupidity your bank gets up to, no matter what happens to your stupid bank, the money you deposited is insured. You will be able to get it back. FDR created FDIC in 1933, right after he was inaugurated. Today, we are still benefiting from And today in America, we are, we are having another one of those thank you FDR kind of days. Because Wednesday last week, a bank called Silvergate was first to go kaput. This was a bank in California that was all tied up in the cryptocurrency racket. They went kaput on Wednesday. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who literally ended up being a senator and a presidential candidate, who became a national public figure at all, Okay, that was not this past Wednesday. It was the Wednesday before. Not la- not this last Wednesday, but the Wednesday before. Okay, Silvergate Bank. Because of her hard-nosed, plain-talking explanations and criticism about bad actors in the financial world, Elizabeth Warren was all over it when Silvergate Bank collapsed Wednesday last week. She said, quote, as the bank of choice for crypto, Silvergate Bank's failure is disappointing but predictable. I warned of Silvergate's risky, if not illegal, activity and identified severe due diligence failures. Now customers must be made whole and regulators should step up against crypto risk. That was Wednesday when that bank failed. Then late Wednesday night, another California bank, Silicon Valley Bank, announced that they had lost nearly $2 billion, and that started a run on that bank by their depositors. Venture capital firms, in particular, appear to have pulled their own funds out of Silicon Valley Bank, and they told the companies they were invested in that they, too, should pull their money out of that bank. And so, by close of business on Thursday, people who had their money deposited in Silicon Valley Bank had tried to pull more than $40 billion out of that bank. That was... Close of business Thursday. By Friday, mysteriously, that bank had decided it would pay out a bunch of bonuses to their staff and executives. Just hours before the federal government, the FDIC, came in to take them. Interestingly, 
the government apparently over the weekend tried to find someone, some other company, to buy Silicon Valley Bank. In the end, they decided they didn't have time to make that sale properly, given the risk that this thing was going to spread and more banks were going to fail. So they gave up on that over the weekend after initially trying to do that. By Sunday, by yesterday, sure enough, another bank was down. Signature Bank, which is another bank that was all tied up in the cryptocurrency issues. So what does this mean? Um, I mean, first of all, people who put their money into those banks are going to get their money back. The FDIC, thank you, FDR, uh, insures every bank account up to a quarter million dollars. And the Biden administration says deposits bigger than a quarter million dollars, those will be covered as well. So people who deposited their money will be able to get back the money they deposited. Um, over and above the quarter million dollars that covered by FDIC, the additional amount is being covered apparently by the federal government, by a fund that the banks pay into, which is why President Biden was able to say today that the taxpayers will not be on the hook for covering these failures. But still, we're talking about the biggest bank failures since the financial catastrophe that hit at the end of the George W. Bush administration in 2008. And the biggest bank failure financially, just in terms of raw numbers, the biggest bank failure ever in the U.S. was Washington Mutual, which failed during the 2008 crisis. The second biggest bank failure ever in the U.S. is this Silicon Valley Bank, which just failed now. Second biggest bank failure in U.S. history ever. Here's the question, though. Is this it? I mean, is is what we're seeing here, these three banks falling apart in quick succession, is this a sign that something was just wrong at these specific banks? That these guys specifically did something wrong? Or is there a bigger, wider problem here that should make us worry about more banks than these ones? And how is this different than what happened in the giant financial catastrophe of 2008 and 2009? I mean, some of that we know. For one thing, when we had the huge bank bailouts then, which have caused, you know, not only economic ripples, but political ripples for more than a decade since, part of the anger, part of the, I think, political realignment that happened in response to the anger about those bailouts was because not only did bank executives, like, not get in trouble, those bank bailouts included more than just the people who had put deposits at these banks, more than just people who had money deposited at these banks and benefited, therefore, when the banks got rescued. When there was the big big bank bailout in 2008 and 2009, the people who got bailed out didn't include just people with deposits at those banks. The people who got bailed out included the people who held stock in those banks, you know, shareholders who had invested in those banks and financial institutions. They got bailed out, too in 2008 and 2009, which never really made any sense. President Biden said today, that's not going to happen this time. He says people who deposited their money in these banks, yes, they'll be protected. But people who invested in these banks, people who just held stock in these banks, no, taking, when you invest, you take a risk. (laughs) And so those people took a risk by investing in these financial institutions. Investors will lose their investment money. Shareholders will not be rescued. That seems sensible. That is different from 2008 and 2009. Why did shareholders and investors get bailed out the first time around anyway? I don't know. And why didn't we learn this lesson from the last time this happened in 2008 and 2009? And there, there's a real story 
Uh, it's a story with some familiar political actors in it. When we had the financial catastrophe in 2008 and 2009, Congress did pass a big package of new rules for the financial industry to stop this from happening again. You will remember that this happened. You may remember President Obama signing these new rules into law in 2010. Right? You see Chris Dodd and Barney Frank there. It was called Dodd-Frank. These were rules, again, signed into law in 2010 that made banks keep X amount of cash on hand, X amount of liquid assets so they could meet their customers' demands if their customers all came in to withdraw their money, even if a whole bunch of them did it all at once. The new rules limited the riskiness of what banks could invest their customers' money in. Just as FDR explained, when you deposit money in a bank, it's not like they just lock it up in the vault. They do stuff with your money. Dodd-Frank established new rules in terms of the riskiness of what banks could do with your money. And Dodd-Frank required financial institutions to pass stress tests, where they'd have to show that they could survive and not collapse if something economically bad happened. Those new rules were very hard fought after the 2008-2009 financial catastrophe, but they were passed by the Democratic-led Congress signed by President Obama in 2010. Then what happened? Well, eight years later in 2018, after relentless lobbying by the banks and the financial industry, once Republicans were in control of Congress and President Donald Trump was in the White House, guess what happened? Yeah. They decided it was way past time to roll back those new safeguards. Ah. The legislation I'm signing today rolls back the crippling Dodd-Frank regulations. Oh, good. <laughs> that rollback was passed, was signed by President, then President Donald Trump in 2018. Uh, in the Senate, it was passed by all the Republicans and 17 Democrats, 17 moderate and conservative Democratic senators who joined with the Republicans to pass it. In the House, there were 33 Democrats who joined with the Republicans to pass it, including future Democratic senator, well, now no longer Democratic senator, Kirsten Sinema. That repeal of the Dodd-Frank, you know, seatbelts, that repeal of the Dodd-Frank safety regulations in 2018 made it so those rules that were put into effect to stop there being another crisis, they wouldn't apply to all that many banks anymore. Senator Elizabeth Warren at the time called BS on this whole thing, and she did it right here on MSNBC with our friend Chris Hayes. Watch this. It turns out Elizabeth Warren was exactly right when she sounded this alarm in 2018. Senator Elizabeth Warren took to the floor today to express outrage over a bill that Republicans are soon expected to pass with the help of some Senate Democrats. The bill would roll back many of the Wall Street reforms passed a decade ago following the financial crisis, and Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, joins me now. Um, why is, how does this get 67 votes? I mean, you haven't actually voted on it so far. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I'm sorry, you know, let me just stop it right there. 67, how does this get any votes? Any votes? <laughs> We are now, next week, will be the 10th year anniversary of when Lehman Brothers crashed and signaled to the entire world that the collapse of 2008 had started. And how it could be that after we got some Dodd-Frank protections in place, after we got 
10 years nearly of trying to rebuild after the banks are more profitable than they have ever been in history. How could it be that this Congress is saying, I know what let's do. Let's make it easier for big banks to cheat American families. Let's make it easier for them to load up on risks. Let's take 25 of the 40 largest banks in America, banks that sucked down $50 billion in bailout money and nobody went to jail. Let's take them off the watch list list and treat them like any tiny little community banks out somewhere, nowhere where they can't hurt the economy. Nobody can explain why they're saying that banks that are up to a quarter of a trillion dollars should be regulated as if they're community banks. That was Elizabeth Warren in 2018. And that is, in in fact, exactly what passed in 2018. That's what Donald Trump signed in 2018. Elizabeth Warren, when she predicted what that would do, what kind of risk that would create, she was 100% right. This Silicon Valley bank, this is one of the banks whose CEO lobbied that a bank like his shouldn't be subjected to the new regulations, that his bank was no risk to anyone. And because of that change signed by President Trump in 2018, in fact, Silicon Valley Bank did not have to be suggested uh, subjected to the extra stress test. It didn't have to be subjected to the you know, Dodd-Frank regulations on what it could do with customers' money. It didn't have the extra Dodd-Frank liquidity requirements to make sure they'd have enough cash on hand if their customers all came knocking at the door at the same time, which they did. Oh. They did in Palo Alto. They did in Santa Clara. They did across the country in Wellesley, Massachusetts. They did all over the country in every town where they had a branch. The type of stress that this bank was just subjected to is the type of stress they were supposed to be tested against had they not lobbied hard for themselves to be exempted from the new regulations that were otherwise put in place after the last crash to stop this from happening. Elizabeth Warren was right. When she said what rolling back those regulations would do in 2018. Well, now today that it has come to pass, she says this in the New York Times. She says, quote, no one should be mistaken about what unfolded over the past few days in the U.S. banking system. These recent bank failures are the direct result of leaders in Washington weakening the financial rules. In the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, Congress passed the Dodd-Frank Act to protect consumers and ensure that big banks could never again take down the economy and destroy millions of lives. Wall Street chief executives and their armies of lawyers and lobbyists hated this law. They spent millions trying to defeat it, and when they lost, they spent millions more trying to weaken it. Greg Becker, the chief executive of Silicon Valley Bank, was one of the many high-powered executives who lobbied Congress to weaken the law. In 2018, the big banks won. With support from both parties, President Donald Trump signed a law to roll back critical parts of Dodd-Frank. Banks like Silicon Valley Bank, which had become the 16th largest bank in the country before regulators shut it down on Friday, they got relief from stringent requirements, basing their claim on the laughable assertion that banks like them weren't actually big. Therefore, they didn't need strong oversight. She says, quote, I fought against these changes. I wish I had been wrong. But on Friday, Silicon Valley Bank executives were busy paying out congratulatory bonuses hours before the FDIC rushed in to take over their failing institution, leaving countless businesses and nonprofits with accounts at that bank alarmed that they wouldn't be able to pay their bills and employees. Had Congress and the Federal Reserve not rolled back the stricter oversight, 
SVB would have been subjected to stronger requirements to withstand financial shocks. They would have been required to conduct regular stress tests to expose their vulnerabilities and shore up their businesses. But because those requirements were repealed, when an old-fashioned bank run hit them, they couldn't withstand the pressure. These threats never should have been allowed to materialize. Joining us now is Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts and a member of the Senate Banking Committee. Senator, I really appreciate you making time to be here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. So you understand these things well. I really don't. I don't have a head for this stuff. I'm not a person who's financially minded at all. Let me just first start by asking you if I've missed out anything important or if I've explained this in a way that comports with your understanding. No, you got it basically right. That the way to understand this crisis is it's really got kind of three players in it. The first is Congress and President Trump who said, let's weaken the regulation, which you've hit really hard. The second part is the regulators themselves, in particular, the Fed, in particular, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, who took that change in the laws, and boy, did he run with it. In fact, he ran further than a lot of people even thought the law let him in tailoring the oversight of those banks in order to make it as weak as possible. And by the way, just a little side note, I very much opposed his being renominated to the Federal Reserve Bank, and the reason was exactly this, what he had done on using the uh, opportunities he had by the change in the law in 2018 to weaken bank regulations. In my view, he was just headed in the wrong direction, and that's what made him dangerous in the position of chair of the Fed. But then there's part three, and that is those executives. Those bank CEOs who lobbied hard to get this change in the law. Those are the ones who, when the window opened, wow, weren't they ready to go. And they went out and they decided to load up on risk. And why? They loaded up on risk because it made their banks more profitable and that meant it made them have higher salaries. They got to, to rule over bigger banks. They got big bonuses. They brought in their friends. And they did all that by taking on more risk. And it worked. SVB increased its profitability of the last three years by 40%. They took on all that risk, made themselves more profitable right up to the day that the bank exploded. And that's that's the whole story. Part one, the, the Congress, part two, the regulators, and part three, the executives who took advantage of this. People around the country watching this right now, and I think people around the country trust you on these issues because this is how we all get to know you as a public figure in the first place was explaining these difficult and scary things, particularly in moments of crisis. People around the country watching you right now who don't have deposits at Silvergate or at Silicon Valley Bank or at Signature may not have even heard of some of these banks, have have their deposits in other community banks or in big banks. They're wondering if this is a problem that is specific to the tech industry, which is the Silicon Valley Bank, and the crypto industry, which seems to have been tied to Signature and to, and to Silvergate, these other banks. People are wondering if this is something that's confined to sort of niche areas of the economy or if this is something that these same kind of criticisms that you're describing apply to other kinds of banks and potentially even bigger banks as well. 
So uh, when you talked about regulation, one little twist on it is that we really have had, since Dodd-Frank, a kind of two-tier regulatory system, one for the community banks that is pretty light-touch regulation. It says, in effect, they didn't cause the crash back in 2008, and they're not going to cause a crash later on. They are pretty simple how they're run, pretty straightforward. They serve their communities. And frankly, they don't need a whole lot of oversight. That's great. And it works well. If you have your money on a bank like that, good for you. It'll be fine. The very largest banks still have the tougher regulation that Dodd-Frank put in place, the great big name brand banks. What happened is these banks, they're often called regional banks, although they're really national, is this tier of banks that are big, that the old line had been anybody with more than $50 billion in assets uh, is uh, going to be subject to these stronger regulations. They got it changed to $250 billion. And what you have is this group of very aggressive banks, some more aggressive than others, some run in wilder ways than others. But that's where the problem is in the system. What the president of the United States has now said, and I want to stop here and say, boy, am I glad that Joe Biden is president of the United States right now. He approached us in a way that's very calm, stayed right on top of it, and said, we're going to have to do something different here. We're going to have to tell all those small businesses who've got their money in those banks, all those uh, nonprofits who've got their money in those banks, all those folks who are worried about meeting payroll when money rolls around, their money is fully protected. And that's what everybody at home needs to know. If you're a depositor in one of these banks, your money is fully protected. Take a, take a deep breath. Nothing, nothing you need to worry about on that end of it. But our job is to think about the system overall. And that means we need Congress to act. Congress needs to roll back the Trump tax, the Trump bank regulation relief. We need to, we need to make a change in the laws because then that will affect the regulators and the regulators will make sure that they are engaging in closer supervision over those banks. And that, in turn, will rein in any of the CEOs that think banking is a great place to get a multi-million dollar salary and a bunch of bonuses and your own jet plane. Remember, you and I have talked about this before. What should banking be? Banking should be boring. (laughs) Anybody who wants to take a lot of risks and make a lot of money should not be in banking. (laughs) Banking should be boring. And that's how we need to make some changes in the law. We, Congress, need to go back. We need to get rid of the Trump banking bill and go back to better regulation. We do that. We'll make banking boring again. Sign of a a functioning democracy and a a well-run polity is when people, not only is banking boring, but when people are right and everybody else is wrong and it becomes crystal clear on days like this, the people who are right uh, get to have the last word about it, um, at least get to be the ones who get the pride of place. And Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, that's why on days like this we turn to you. Thank you for your clarity as always. Thank you for joining us tonight. So, Thank you. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Okay.
Now I'm going to do another one. It was on the same day. Uh, this is Katie Porter. She's got something to say. Here we go. of representatives, they used the opportunity to roll back banking regulations put into place after the 2008 financial crisis. As that bill was making its way through Congress, California professor named Katie Porter tweeted her concerns, writing that it, quote, puts consumers and our economy at risk and shows just how much power Wall Street banks, powerful special interests, and their high-priced lobbyists have in Washington. The bill passed But Porter went on to win a seat in Congress, and she is now fighting to get that bill overturned. Congresswoman Katie Porter of California, the ranking member on the House Oversight Subcommittee on Health Care and Financial Services, who is also running for Senate next year, joins me now. Congresswoman, it's great to have you uh, back on the program. It's good to see you. So talk to me about the the collapse here of SVB. Um, It ranks as the second largest bank failure in the U.S., right behind Washington Mutual back in 2008, Uh, just ahead of Signature Bank, which also just happened a few days ago. What is going on here? Well, this comes from... Wait a minute. Washington. Just want to read this. Uh, largest bank failures in U.S. history. Number one, Washington Mutual, 2008, 307 billion. Then Silicon Valley Bank, 2023, 209 billion. Then Signature Bank, 2023, 118 billion. Then Continental Illinois National Bank and Trust, 1984, 40 billion, and then the first Republic Bank Corporation of Texas, 1988, 32.5 billion. Just for the record. Okay. Go back in 2008. Uh, Just the head of Signature Bank, which also just happened a few days ago. What is going on here? Well, this comes from a failure to appropriately regulate big banks. And we had, after Dodd-Frank, appropriate regulations in place for exactly this size of bank, big. And lo and behold, no more than Dodd-Frank passed, then people started coming around to politicians' offices, offering them corporate pack checks and lobbying them to repeal those regulations. And we had Democrats and Republicans join in 2018 to repeal the very capital holding requirements that create a cushion for this exact size of bank. So for me to hear colleagues later when this was happening this weekend say this was unbelievable and how could this happen was frustrating to say the least. This is what happens when we have politicians who cater to Wall Street instead of working families. This morning, I'm sure you saw President Biden uh, addressing the country, assuring people their deposits are safe, that taxpayers are not on the hook for the banks. How confident are you of that assessment? Well, I have no doubt that that is what President Biden hopes happens, and that is the intent here. But I think we've seen before with these kinds of programs that the devil is really in the details. And there are some concerning aspects of how this is being rolled out. One of the things we did with the Dodd-Frank Act after um, the financial, the last financial crisis was we said, look, assets have to be marked to market. They have to be, you have to value them at what they're actually worth. 
And what the Federal Reserve is doing with this lending program is saying, we'll treat your collateral at par value rather than what it's really worth today. So I, I, I understand that when you get into a bank failure, there are no good solutions. That's exactly why we can't let this keep happening. We have Do to you- appeal the regulation that Trump and Congress passed in 2018 to get us back to a place where we have cushions. We don't put ourselves where there are no good choices. So you you begin to answer the question I was just about to ask you, which is, do you think repealing the the 2018 deregulation law will be sufficient protection against this kind of thing going forward? Or is there something else that needs to be done on top of, uh, of repealing it? Well, there are definitely other questions here, but let me be clear. I'm introducing legislation to repeal that 2018 law. It was bad then. I said it was bad then, and I was not alone. There were other folks, including Elizabeth Warren, who pushed against this, but Wall Street's lobby in Washington is simply too powerful, and they were able to get not just Republicans, but I think almost 50 Democrats between the House and the Senate to sign on to this. So I I do think repealing the law is a good start, but I don't think it's enough. I think there are real questions about how we think about stopping runs on banks in a digital world. We sort of have analog banking law for a digital economy. And I I think we we saw that this sort of closed the bank on a Friday, reopened it on a Monday, which is sort of the very traditional model simply doesn't work where people have online banking and they can they can work over the weekend and remove money um, and organize kind of continual withdrawals throughout the weekend. So I think the Federal Reserve and FDIC need to think about how we're going to modernize to deal with this sort of digital bank run, which is really what we have here today. I'm glad you brought that up because obviously the fear is spreading. And you saw that over the weekend with First Republic stock dropping uh, so significantly, more than 60%. You've got other uh, banking stocks dropping as well. Uh, you need Congress in a situation like this. You need the entire government to move quickly to just kind of boost confidence and get confidence back into the system. But the question is, how does Congress or the administration uh, do something immediately to reassure people about their money in those banks? Well, I think that's part of the logic behind this announcement that all the depositors will be fully protected as we're trying to reassure people and send a signal that the U.S. government understands what's at stake here and what needs, what, what we, what the dangers are of allowing this to continue. I, I do want to say that this gives an opportunity now for um, the FDIC to start doing more evaluations of these, of these large but not ginormous. That's really what they are. They're huge but not ginormous banks um, and to try to make sure that we don't have this same problem at other financial institutions. Look, let's be really clear. What happened here was could have been prevented by good regulation. It also could have been prevented by the executives and directors and management of Silicon Valley Bank, not forgetting the basic fundamental of finance, which is that interest rates can go in only two directions, up and down. And it's their failure to think about that because they were so focused on their bottom line that led to this run on the bank. Should this bank be allowed to fail? Well, so the Federal Reserve has already, I mean, we already answered that question, which is no. That was the decision that was rolled out on Sunday evening and this morning that we're going to um, protect depositors. Whether ultimately it all gets moved to another bank and this bank goes out of business, 
I think that's not the focus. The focus should be on how do we get here? How do we prevent the next bank from getting here? How do we build regulation to have a durable economy? So often when my colleagues vote for these kinds of deregulation bills, they explain their votes by saying they are pro-business. I want to be clear, there is nothing pro-business about a bank failure. And we have to start chipping away at this because it's not just this law and this moment with Silicon Valley Bank. It's an entire mindset about what it means to have a strong economy and what those fights are, what side of those fights you should be on that I think is is putting our whole economy at risk today and going forward. Congresswoman Katie Porter. Congresswoman, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate your time and insights into this and much more on the banking crisis and how we got here coming up tonight on the Rachel Maddow Show at the top of the hour. Senator Elizabeth Warren joins Rachel Live. That is coming up in just a few minutes from now. But first, how... Okay. So you got the gist, everybody. So now we're going to do this. Ron, let's do this uh, piece. Tell everybody what we're going to play. Because uh, this is the work. uh, And we will do it now on the situation. (laughs) Uh, Now, this is the great unraveling of that corruption. And... Oh, this is... uh, Expand your consciousness panel discussion. And, um, I was gonna say, Patty Cotto Robles is part of this, and Anrita Melchizedek, and many other folks. Awake people. Awake people talking about how we change this right now with what is happening pouring in from Great Central Sun to Helios Investa to our sun. Yes, New Earth One Network podcasts, courses and webinars to help you live in the heart, in balance, in higher self-connection, high heart-centered wisdom and spiritual technology. For New Earth Living, that's what this is about. All right, let's do it. This is a long one. This is an hour and 39 minutes. Here we go. Okay. We won't get finished.
Welcome everyone. We are so pleased and excited to be here. This is an introduction to an upcoming virtual retreat, Expand Your Consciousness. And this is a panel discussion that I'm here with some of the speakers who will be joining us. And we are going to share a little bit about this and really a definition that we each have on expanding consciousness. So we welcome our Zoom audience and everyone for being here. And we hope that you can join us for this beautiful weekend retreat. It's coming up on March 18th and 19th. And it is a way to immerse yourself in loving, healing, sacred frequencies, expanding yourself into higher realms, the illumined realms, and maybe even opening up new gifts. I want to welcome my co-host, Lori Rayon. Hi, Lori. Hi, everybody. Hi, Loren. It's so much fun to be together today talking about our amazing event that's coming up next weekend. Expand your consciousness. What a great concept, right, for us to work with every day. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, everyone. And Peter Tung, hi. Thank you for being here. Welcome. My absolute pleasure. And I must admit, I love the opening with the uh, whales, the dolphins, and the ocean, as we're still in the sign of Pisces, which is just an absolutely perfect connection between the two. Ah, let's have you go ahead and start. We've got some others who are joining us, and we'll introduce them as they come on. Peter, um, you do magical work with the Gene Keys, and you mentioned Pisces, and we're in a very powerful time right now. Do you want to first share on on this energy, this timeline that we're in and experiencing? Well, I'm getting chills all over right now, so the answer is obviously yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know why you chose this weekend specifically, the 18th and 19th, but it probably is leading into what is going to be the most powerful week of the year from my understanding. And it is the um, the 25th gene key is the gene key of the spring equinox. And the 25th gene key is this very powerful gene key that takes us from constriction where in our lives, if we didn't receive the love that we needed as a child, we get constricted and it closes us down to uh, the space between the heart and the throat. So whenever you feel a tightness in the upper chest, it's this the lack of love that you really need. And the city uh, of this jinky is universal love. And so this is the spring equinox sowing the seeds of love. And it's achieved through the gift of acceptance. So it's really important to accept in totality all that's happened in your life because it's been a setup. For your success now. So whatever's happened is happening for a reason for your own spiritual growth. So my understanding is as we go through the uh, period of Aquarius to Pisces and then the turning point into Aries, which is the new beginning right in that week after the uh, retreat. So what we're now building to, to is letting go of all the old stuff that we're done with so that we can create space inside ourselves and to receive this download of higher frequency energy. So the title of the retreat, expand your consciousness could not be any better. And my understanding from all sorts of sources 
is that that week is going to be opening up to a higher level of frequency for us to absorb and take in. And so what we're being invited to do between now and next weekend is to spend this week really looking into any areas where we've got stuck energy inside us. It's where we are clogged. <laughs> and funny enough, in a couple of sessions this week, people said to me, my toilet's blocked, my drains are, are, are clogged up. And I just laughed because that's a symbolic of the need to clear all of that out and let it and get into flow. And the other piece that I think is really important to understand is we've done all the hard work, we've done all the heavy lifting, and now it's just relaxing into the knowing that this is the opportunity for us to absorb these higher frequency energies coming in. And I think from my own perspective, the key word is allowing. Allow it all to flow with ease and grace coming in through uh, our higher self into our physical form to open us up to these higher energies. It is being called the apocalypse by many, and the apocalypse means the revealing, and it's the revealing of the truth of what's been going on in the planet in the last hundred years, thousand years, and the last three years, all in one go, um, to reveal the truth, but also to reveal to us who we really are, which are these magnificent multidimensional beings. So I want to congratulate you for choosing this weekend for the retreat because it's a wonderful setup for everybody through the, the wonderful guests that you've got lined up for that weekend and each of us bringing our own particular element to the journey through the process. So I just want to congratulate you for that, for choosing this weekend, however that was done. Well, it was originally given to me just by guidance and I run everything as some of you know, past my partners, Master Cat Buddha, she's sitting here. And then Lorraine and I met and, you know, we agreed. She she felt into it too. And I mean, it was a joint decision, but it, it seemed obvious that this was a good choice. So thank you for confirming that. I find it so interesting because we don't, we didn't know about the astrology going into this. We didn't plan no. Um, and, and this happens all the time with these events. We just pick a date and then when we show up on that date, we're just amazed at the energies that are supporting us. And so to me, that is tuning in to this higher perspective, uh, listening to the guidance within, listening to, uh, the heart space within, and it never gets us wrong and it, it creates such magic. Do you actually talk about the actual astrology itself? Say that again. Would you like me to talk about the actual astrology itself? That's important. Uh, We know that March 23rd, is it March 23rd? Not only is it this equinox, which I'm here in Costa Rica, and the days and the nights, the sunrise and the sunset are exactly equal right here on the planet right now. And so to me, that's fascinating. And the rain has just come back after like five or six weeks of no rain to witness um, Mother Earth and Gaia. I feel like crying coming back and, and offering us this gift of the rain again. It's just so beautiful. And so March 23rd is very significant. Do tell us. Well, there are two major transits. Uh, the first has already happened. So on March 7th, 8th, Saturn moved out of Aquarius into Pisces, and that's a major transit because Saturn 
takes 28 years to go around the whole journey. So it's about two and a half years in each sign. Now, I, this is just my personal belief. I'm not an astrologer, but I, I have a close connection to the planetary alignments. Um, and so my view is that that Saturn is all about the old structures, the old way of being in Aquarius, which is all about the new age energies coming in. So I think Saturn was actually blocking uh, stepping into the age of Aquarius through all the old stuff that's been trying to control things for the last two and a half years. Wow. So Saturn does not like being in Pisces because Saturn is all about structure. Pisces is no structure. So my image is that Pisces is going to dissolve the old structures once now Saturn has moved in. So again, looking at those glorious images you showed at the beginning, my belief is that those energies are going to dissolve Saturn in such a way that we can now say to Saturn from Pisces, let's build the new structure of the new earth. Let's, let's forget about the old and build the new. And then March 23rd is important because that is the date that Pluto finally leaves Capricorn and goes into Aquarius. So Saturn is coming out of Aquarius, Pluto is going into Aquarius. But there's this really weird thing happening as a result of retrograde motion. Pluto is going to go over the cusp between Capricorn and Aquarius five times in the next two years, less than two years. Mm. It's going to go forward on March 23rd. It's going to come back 10 weeks later, cross over again, go forward again, go backwards again. And so it won't completely clear out of Capricorn until November 2024. But then it won't be back in Capricorn for another 250 years. So when you look back 250 years, what was happening then, it was the American Revolution. It was when the American people decided to break away from the British colonial influence. So now we're looking to break away from the colonial influence over the whole globe that's been taking place, all of the control factors taking place. So I feel that Pluto, the transformer, is eking out all of the corruption on the planet to set us completely free during this time. So that's March 23rd, but the, the other date that's been mentioned is March 22nd as this, as this opportunity to open up to these higher frequencies coming in for us to just to absorb these higher frequencies and step more and more into our multidimensional selves. Now I'm sounding like an astrologer and I'm not, but what I do do is I link together the astrology with the gene keys. And the beautiful thing about the gene keys is that they provide you with this really deep, profoundly positive core stability to help us navigate through these challenging times. Because as you're very aware, the energies are really intense right now. And it's bringing everybody's stuff up. Every timeline that we've lived through history is now coming up for us to deal with it. And so it's very intense and very challenging, particularly in our relationships. And so the Gene Keys provides this opportunity to, A, first of all, understand why all of this has happened to us in this lifetime. Why is it that when I was a child, this happened? Why was it as a teenager, this happened? Why is it this happens in my relationships? And the Gene Keys gives you this insight into all of it so that you can realize, wow, this was supposed to happen. This was my choice for this life. And now I can navigate through it and set myself free. So it's, it's a, I've been on this journey for well over 40 years. And from my perspective, it's the most profound 
and safest way for us to reach enlightenment. And that's why I spend my time on it every single day of my life. Mm. Well, I can personally say after working with you, Peter, it was so transformative. I would just highly encourage everyone to tune into Peter's talk next week and to connect with him personally if you're so guided. It's just, it's beyond powerful. Uh, and it was so right on, you know, so validating, but also revealing in the sense of the time we spent together. I, I just can't say enough good things. And I want to you know, relay that to all of you. This is very, very powerful, wise man that's here to assist us. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll be quiet in a minute. But um, what I will do next week is I'll bring up the profile for the spring equinox. So we'll okay. be able to see the gene key profile for that time that we're now talking about to see what are the most important elements, what shadows need to be cleared for the collective and what positive divine expressions we have coming in to support us. Wonderful. Yeah, that is wonderful. For those who are, um, uh, I mean, we've heard the gene keys, but can you offer an explanation for those who might uh, not quite understand what they are and the history of them? Absolutely, yes. So the genius behind it is Richard Rudd, and he had an altered state experience where he was um, in his study for three days and three nights, didn't eat, didn't sleep, and had this transmission come through from what's called the causal plane, which is a pure transmission of truth. And it took him seven years to put that three-day experience into some form that we could work with, which is the Gene Keys. And what he was shown was how the I Ching, the Chinese I Ching, brought down this information from spirit into physical form through those 64 keys, or what they call hexagrams. And Richard was shown in this experience how the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching correspond precisely with the 64 gene codes in our DNA. So this is about the activation of the higher frequencies of our DNA inside us. It's like unlocking the codes to our higher frequencies. They're already there, but they're blocked because of all the stuff that we've suffered through in our life. So there is a process that you go through with 11 gene keys, which are your primary gene keys, to look at how your life has unfolded to bring you to this point. And so the whole process involves taking a deep dive into who you really are in the outer world, your own inner unconscious world, how you interact with all the people in your life, going through your childhood from the moment of conception to the moment of your birth, to the age 8 to 14 when your emotional body is developing and then to your age 15 to 21 as you're a teenager in the hope that if you've had good parenting and a happy life, that at the age of 21, you become a well-balanced, emotionally solid adult. And if you've had any trauma before that, then you can arrest yourself to that time and look like an adult but still living a childlike experience. And so that brings us to the core wound, which is the ancestral wound that you are carrying on behalf of your ancestors. It's not your wound, but you, for some crazy reason, decided to wear it in this lifetime and to clear it. And the beautiful thing is, because you know the gene key and the line number, uh, you know exactly what it is that you are needing to work with to clear that wound on behalf of your ancestors. And so you then can clear it by doing your own work with it uh, on their behalf. 
So you're just doing it for them. They don't have to do anything. And although they may be passed on, they may not, uh, it still works through their whole system. And so that takes you to the end of the second sequence, the Venus sequence. Then the final sequence is how you bring all of this learning out into your life in the way in which you live your life now, offering yourself in service for the greater good. And in the session that I do, I'd spend about an hour with people going through their own personal profile based upon their moment of birth and their location of birth and the time of birth. And it's amazing, Lauren, how precise this is. It blows me away every single day when I can ask pertinent questions of people about what happened in their lives at certain times. And it brings it all back to the surface to be cleared and healed. It's a very profound system. And it's also very safe because the first area you go into is to create this core stability so that you are fully present and grounded in your body to deal with all of this stuff. Amazing. And so uh, the he- there's deep healing that comes from this. And we, as you said, we chose that core wound, the ancestral wound. So we're actually clearing the ancestral lines. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you've seen people transform their lives. Are they shocked when this um, comes into their awareness or they get it? It's really interesting. A lot of people get it like in the moment and, oh, that's what that is. Oh, I get it now. And others, it's a few days later. It takes time to percolate up to the surface. So some people get it immediately. Some people, it takes a bit of time for it to, to arise. But then what tends to happen, and the beautiful thing about all of this is synchronicity. So when you open yourself up to wanting to know the truth, then stuff happens to show you things that you need to see. It's beautiful. And, you know, just relaxing into that knowing and and trusting the synchronicity and seeing how that plays out is just beautiful. There's also a very wonderful aspect to the Gene Keys, which is called the Dream Arc, which is a connection to all the animal totems. So every Gene Key has associated with it a shadow, gift, and city creature. So the shadows are all the creature crawlies, like the the, the, the fish, uh, the reptiles, the snakes, and, and that sort of thing. The gifts are all the mammals, and the cities are all the birds. So you have all of these animal totems to work with as well through your profile, if you wish to. And this is the more the, the more feminine, intuitive approach to the jinkies. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing on that. There's folks in our chat saying that they never really understood it and you make it very clear now and it's wonderful. And so um, we're going to ask our panelists about expand your consciousness. What does that mean to you, expanding consciousness? Do you want me to answer that? Yeah. Well, expanding your consciousness to me is just recognizing that we already have this higher frequency embedded in us. So it is just about releasing the lower frequency energy so we can step into those higher frequencies and then becoming more multidimensional in our nature. So trusting and believing that we can step beyond our physical senses and start sensing beyond uh, whatever that is for you. So one of the things, for example, that uh, has come to my attention is people who are connected to Mother Earth and nature, the trees, which you've got magnificent trees behind you, 
are wanting to communicate with us. Now, if you don't believe they can, they can't. <laughs> but if you can open yourself up in your heart and just sit amongst them and be with them in stillness and silence, you may well start getting some inside information, which could come as a feeling. It could come as a word. It could come as a vision. It could be any aspect. It could be a smell. So we're wanting to expand on our physical senses to incorporate more and more of those other realms. And then there's the angelic realm and there's the ascended realm. There's the star beings. There's source itself. And we've just got to believe that we have this inherent connection to that and then just open up to it and go on this wild adventure and having fun with it. That's how I see it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yes, perfect. Thank you, Peter. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I think that's loads. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I want to welcome Laura. Hi, Laura Eisenhower. Hello, everybody. Great to be here. Hi, Laura. Peter, that was amazing. Wow. So awesome. Good to be here. Yeah. So, Laura, let us ask you, expanding consciousness. Oh, my gosh. The work that you do on the planet definitely expands consciousness. It actually blows us wide open. But share more about um, your work and how you see expand your consciousness. Wow, I just really enjoyed listening to what Peter had to say. And I have my uh, my Ching book right here, and it guided me through my – oh, man, it, it was like everything to me. So, yeah, expanding your consciousness, I feel, is really about knowing – that we are so much more than we might think we are. There's a lot of limitations and rules that are cast upon us that provides us some structure, but what if those structures are repressive, if they uh, like end up indoctrinating us um, and pulling us away from ourselves and our truth, you know, then we want to expand our consciousness outside of all of that and break that down so that we can enjoy the fact that we're multidimensional beings. We have, a connection to our creative imagination. We uh, have a galactic history we don't really know about. And there are levels of our consciousness connected to our DNA that uh, we've been taught is junk DNA. So it's not really encouraged, except maybe through the arts and music and things that are expansive. But what about like self-knowledge? Without self-knowledge, how can we really heal ourselves? So to me, expanding consciousness is getting to know the self, getting to know what this biological vessel is capable of, um, our galactic chakras, our dormant DNA, what is the junk DNA? And so a lot of focus and attention I like to put on um, my research or like to put out there is the different higher harmonic universes that exist in our DNA and polarity integration and sacred union and our divine template and how when we in our physical lifestyle Uh, begin to be more soul centered, more conscious and more mindful, we can work on doing whatever it is in our inner self to achieve a a level of sovereignty and awareness. Um, We can also discover that like Peter was talking about the synchronicities, you know, show up to be a frequency match to this process. So we have more soul centered relationships. We find more soul family. We find more like-minded people and we feel that divine mission get activated so that we can be in service to others who are having a hard time breaking free of the inverted matrix system. And it doesn't mean we abolish it altogether. Um, but, and, you know, like with the astrological 
shifts that are take, uh, taking place. It's helping us to work with it in a way to uh, like take it to the next level. And I just really enjoyed what Peter had to say about it. And you're not an astrologer. You sound like you are. You were like so spot on. With so, um, and, and what I've been noticing about the astrology as far as in the context of expanding consciousness, we've had Uranus in Taurus conjunct the North Node. And that represents the greater growth period for humanity. Uh, we just came out of the, uh, well, okay, the Gemini Sagittarius and the Capricorn Cancer polarity integration with the nodes. And now that we're in the Taurus North Node, Scorpio South Node, we see Pluto as the ruler of Scorpio, Aquarius as the ruler of Uranus. With Pluto moving into Uranus, we've been sort of prepared for what this all means. So to me, a North Node conjunct Uranus is all about the expansion of consciousness in humanity, breaking through the uh, matrix control systems with Uranus having that square aspect to Saturn. Now that Saturn's moving into Pisces and Pluto out of Capricorn, it's just like this, this awakening and this, this uh, expansion is encoded, right? And it's in our DNA. It's in our divine inheritance to be a part of the trajectory of the organic ascension timeline. But because the psyops and the false flags utilize the knowledge of the, what, what the occult, even though um that word can be kind of, just this this greater knowledge they 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 use the inverted knowledge i guess you could say to create ways to send out information to humans to not move through these initiations but instead be kind of trapped in the shadow side of it all so when we see a lot of the dark agendas and some of the things that they're presenting to humanity and we look at the astrology going on we see these inversions that are kind of holding people captive to um, a process that they can initiate out of through being willing to expand their consciousness out of the system. You know, and it takes a lot of courage to just be like, wait a second, this is compromising me. I want to use my skills and abilities and talents that I learned in the school systems and actually take it one step further with the expansion of consciousness uh, that allows a person to work more with Mother Earth, more with uh, our own resources that we can pull together more with our own leadership abilities to begin to rebuild things um, more in connection to cosmic and natural law instead of an inverted system that is actually siphoning and harvesting and using our energies to supply uh, this sort of shadow cabal um, what it wants in order to maintain control. So we have to expand ourselves out of it and cut the cords just as much as we would want to do that in a relationship if we felt we were being repressed controlled, manipulated, um, whether you're the masculine or feminine in the relationship doesn't matter what the dynamics are. If there is a patterning of uh, feeling, you know, locked into uh, somebody else's projection or somebody else's manipulation with betrayal going on behind your back and, and not wanting to see those red flags, we need to expand beyond that by, you know, cutting the cords and finding our own space, you know, being in nature and realizing, whoa, there's a much bigger picture we can redefine our self-worth, not based on how others like tell us it should look like you have to achieve this or do this for me or do that for me in order for you to be rewarded. No. What about take our power back and ask ourselves, what is our passion? What, what inspires us? What are we here to bring to the table? And, uh, and where are our boundaries that we can say, wait, that is not me. I do not accept that. I do not consent. And uh, this is who I am. And if you can't resonate with that and flow with that and respect that and, and not allow me to love and respect you in return, then 
we can't do this. And so we have to do that with the outer picture and, and remember that we are the script writers. We are co-creators. We are elemental beings. And uh, we don't have to like allow ourselves to believe in a reality that is playing on our creative imagination and infecting our creative channels with propaganda and indoctrination that is taking us down a trajectory we don't have to go down and, and, and just recenter ourselves so that we can um, like starve, you know, the, the parasitic forces from our energies and be co-creative beings that are able to explore the creative imagination and bring in the dreams and visions that we feel aligned with to then manifest. And if we don't expand our consciousness into that ability, then we're always going to be entering to outer authority and we're going to determine our health and wellness and finance and everything under the sun based on what it tells us. And that's not an expanded way of being. So it doesn't mean, you know, we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But as we move into the Pluto Aquarius and Uranus and Taurus and the expansion of like human consciousness, it's like, where do we need to cut the cords? Where do we need to come together? Where do we need to look at ourselves? Because when the Jupiter, Venus, Chiron conjunction and Aries, you know, has been happening throughout the week and it's been just hanging here. Um, it's really helped us to look at where our broken heart and where our ego is being affected. Um, are we going to keep giving our power away? Or are we going to be conscious with those wounds and realize that they hold keys to our greater mission to step up as healers, to be in service to humanity, to say, look, this is what I'm working on. This is what I've found is useful. And I'd like to now share it with you and um, hope that those that are still locked in the system can appreciate that we um, have something to say when we're sitting down with those people and that we will not just like be thrust into um having to answer to something that says, this is what it is. This is what you have to do. And this is, you know, expansion is taking charge. Like if a doctor says you'll never be able to walk again, or you only have two months to live because you have like an operable. Wait a second. Maybe that's not the, the case. What if you can create like a transformation or a miracle by connecting with an expanded consciousness that can begin to bring in a greater ability to say, well, watch, I will walk again. I will rebuild this. I can regenerate. I can alchemize. I can transform. So an expanded consciousness means that what some might deem impossible is possible. And uh, we have so much to explore as these initiations that these astrological alignments provide, that we have so much to tap into to be the override frequency to uh, be able to face a lot of the weaponry that is being used on us to be the override frequency that can de-weaponize the weapons and help de-weaponize the humans that are falling for the mind control and social engineering, that we can be that embodied higher technology in a biological vessel that is the higher um, octave of higher earth energies that um, it can't touch. But as long as we're being siphoned and assimilated into it, you know, there's the danger zone. So expanded consciousness means that we are not going to limit ourselves to that false trajectory and that um, manipulation that is just robbing our children and stealing our talents and abilities um, in order to serve uh, just the few and not the many. So we just have to reclaim the truth of who we are so we can navigate, see through the lies and um, and provide the gifts and blessings of how that's helped us to be mm -hmm. able to help others achieve the same thing so that we can come together in unity consciousness as sovereign beings and allow the, the diversity and differences to work in harmony together like an orchestra and be in that oneness where diversity and harmony is oneness instead of um, losing ourselves and following something, and giving our power away 
which only has led to divide and conquer. And they keep trying to keep us in that divide and conquer. And expansion means, wait a second, I don't have to play that game. You know, we are more powerful than we realize. And it's time to just say, this is a reunion. This is all good news. We're being pushed to the edge to rediscover ourselves and rescue our treasures before, you know, they keep getting you know, taken away from us to the point where we didn't realize, you know, that that was ours to explore and ours to embody and ours to bless this planet with. That's well, beautiful, Laura. Yeah, we, <laughs> we love listening to you. We, we can just, it's an activation in itself. It really is expanding our consciousness. So a question comes up, uh, you know, it really is um, a journey into the heart as well. And as we do this, at times it feels like we are gaslighting ourselves, like we are um, we're at war with the mind and the heart. What would you say about making that journey to the heart completely with courage and in love? Because sometimes we look out at the world and what we feel inside is totally different. But this is where our deep conviction comes forth. How would you suggest that we just go forward so boldly on that? Me? Yeah, I would say, I mean, when we see the kind of spiritual war and battle, I mean, we have to win the war within because it's really playing on us. It's playing on our thoughts, our minds, our emotions, our wounds, our traumas, and all the things that are like trying to keep us in that trigger zone and that feedback loop of like just having, you know, you know, that survival energy come up or that, that trauma come up or that, that thing that just keeps you kind of locked into um engaging in this in this kind of battle but we have to win the war within we have to reconcile the dualities within ourselves we have to integrate the polarity within ourselves and do that like greater work and and not worry about what other people think because when you lead by example and you're being true to yourself even if people aren't comfortable with it well you know don't take it personally the reason they might not be comfortable with it is the same way a person's not comfortable when they detox you know all of a sudden something's starting to want to move out of their system there's like a a reaction to it it doesn't feel good it's like you know when a person starts to deprogram or detox it's just like whoa you know if they're holding on for dear life to the old paradigm or belief systems that maybe deep down they know doesn't serve them but they're not ready for it they're not going to like uh, the activation. They're not going to like the opportunity to go deeper. They're going to fear it at first. But when they realize like, whoa, actually, you know, as uncomfortable it is in the beginning stages, um, I'm starting to feel lighter. I'm starting to feel like the stuff that doesn't serve me is like releasing out of my system. And these plutonic cycles and Uranus and the outer planets, Neptune and all that are part of these greater initiations. But if a person is not allowing themselves to be connected to those greater initiations and, uh, they're in the inversions. They get more and more blocked up and stuck and under that control. So don't be afraid to just say, you know, that really doesn't serve me. This activation and healing is something that's actually going to liberate me because it doesn't mean you have to follow something or give your power away. It means you're coming back to yourself and you can just be self, uh, like in your divine center, in your truth, in your uniqueness, but still connected to this greater unified field and uh, this feeling of togetherness with boundaries and discernment because, you know, you don't want to be overly trusting, but it's just like love yourself. It might not be something easy for people. It's not about the ego. It's about love your body, mind, spirit, love the unconditional love of creator, love the fact that you can fall down and get back up and it's okay. You know, embrace humility. It's okay to not be right all the time. You know, what is right and what is wonderful is love. You know, if you got duped, you know, it's just like, oh, well, you put your heart in the right place. You thought it was real. You gave the benefit of the doubt. 
you know, there's no shame in that. So just be strong, be true to who you are and allow, you know, this process of like deprogramming and transformation and detoxing and healing to take place. And a lot of people will like gravitate towards it and be like, oh, yes, I'm, I, I want it. And other people like run far away and project everything on you saying you're the crazy one. And it's like, I don't want to listen to this. Just don't take it personally. Stay strong and true to yourself because those same people might come back around and say, wow, you know, this path really didn't get me anywhere. And now I'm scared. Thank you for still loving me and holding space. And I'm sorry that I threw all that at you. But like, we don't reject those people. We might need to have a temporary boundary, but they, they might come back around and then we need to have the open arms to say, yes, it's, it's, it's been really rough and, um, and it's okay, you know, uh, that, uh, you were temporarily locked into that something that wasn't your truth it has nothing to do with following something that maybe I have to say. It's a, the opportunity for you to show up as you as a sovereign, authentic, true being and for you to accept me as the same, um, so that we can appreciate each other with love and respect. And until that, that resonance is there, you know, let's just not take it personally, you know, pat yourself on the back for, 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 for staying strong, regardless of the feedback you get. You're going to get a lot of love and support for it. You get a lot of criticism and a lot of um, reaction, but uh, just remember who you are and, and, and move through it, move through the, all the elements of yourself, you know, cry when you need to cry, be angry. We need to be angry. Make sure that that fire turns into the passion of your purpose and that that fire element isn't out of control and that you can channel and direct it in the right places because that's a lot of your life force, right? And when it's blocked, people get angry. It's like, okay, well, remove yourself from the thing that you think is blocking it and hold that self, that container for yourself to be able to do this within yourself and, and, and to generate it. I mean, even if you're locked up, even if everything's been taken away from you, you can still be free within your own being and create miracles and unlock the outer cages because your consciousness not buying into the victimhood or the enslavement because you are internally free. So just focus on you and the advanced biological vessel that you occupy that it might be dormant right now, but look forward to what you're going to discover because it's all there waiting for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful. So beautiful. Activations. We are activated and we are on fire. I hope everyone is feeling it. I want to welcome our other guests. We have Grandma Chandra. We have Emmanuel. Hi. And we have William, William Linville. <laughs> so um, we're going to get to each of you as well. Let's first go to Kat and Grandma Chandra. You have and, to unmute yourself, honey. Yeah. To click the microphone to unmute. <laughs> Thank you. I'm terrible at technology. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing fine. <laughs> um, thanks to everybody. We love all of you. We know some of you. Others, we get the opportunity to know through this wonderful event that Lori and Loren have put on for us. Grandma went deep in the middle of Laura's presentation. Grandma went down deep. This is when she's working. She looks like she's sleeping on the couch, but believe me, this is her work. Okay. John, you want to... Working. Okay. So, <laughs> that's as much as her face. You're going to get, folks. That's just about it. Okay. Do you want me to speak up? Nope. Not yet. Okay. Mm. What she wants to say is that 
she has a service to humanity that she's been doing since she opened the business. She opened the business when she was 16. She's going to be 40 years old this year on April the 12th. Anyone who receives a reading from her, a full reading, has a free forever service that they can ask questions of her through an email. And this alone is, to my mind, primal service to humanity. She's always connected with her clients. Because of this service, I mean, again, it's free. People send us checks. We just got a $1,000 check from somebody who is extremely grateful for everything that Chandra has been able to help her with, that she's cleared her path, that she's on her way to ascension, et cetera, et cetera. So we have very, very, very beautiful, not just money, but gifts from people that come to her because of this service. Now, we want to go back to Peter, and she wants me to read I can bring it up here if I'm not too technologically challenged. Her oh, message. You got it. Go. Read the message. Okay. Um, let me just say thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Lori, um, for bringing us all together at this time. Because this time is so critical. What Jima wants to tell us is we've been waiting, we've been working towards, we've been doing our homework, we've aspired to be in 5D and beyond. But what we don't recognize right now, because of the need to expand our consciousness, is that we're there. We are there now. Mm -hmm. And Chandra puts out a, a Friday message. I'm going to read her message that came out today. Now is the time for everyone to come together. You have everything you need. You have learned everything you could. You have gathered all the grids and fields that you should and have by this time. Time to start living in the new reality. Stop saying that you are going there. Stop saying that you are getting there. Now you are there. You are living there now. This is the main concept that I very strongly want all of you to take into your heart and start living it. All your masters, teachers, and guides who are working with you are with me in giving you the same message. You are already here to live in this new life. Your only obstacle is that you still cannot believe you are you are here. You are not acting as if you are here. You are not living as if you are here. You must change your perception of where you are. You must feel yourself in multidimensionality already. Act like the master of your own life. Act like God's sons and daughters living in the reality created for you by yourself, through God, in you. As soon as you move yourself consciously into the new 5D Gaia, that is when all of this happens. Right now, you are nowhere because you still think you are on your way. Accept the fact that you are already here. Thank you, Terry. 
Terry is one of Grandma's translators. She's also our tech who puts out these messages every Friday for Chandra. You can look for them on the website. Um, John, do you want to add anything to this? Hmm. Do you want to add anything to Terry? Terry. Oh, my God, Terry, please. Yeah. So what's important to recognize is that we are more than we truly think we are. We're used to living in a linear world. We're used to living under a matrix. That matrix no longer exists. We now live in the quantum reality. So we have so much potential. In fact, what's important is to recognize that everything now comes from the heart. The more that we can see the beauty in the life that exists around us, the more that we can recognize that and be in gratitude and be in appreciation of it, the quicker that we can change our frequencies and be able to see the bigger picture of where we are. Because our world is like a reflection. It reflects back to us what we think and what we put out. So in moving to the higher frequencies and opening up to our potential, it's important for us to expand gratitude the appreciation, expand the heart, look for little simple things, look each day at what's going on and where you see the magic. Our ability to manifest right now is so fast and so almost instantaneous that we can put things out and they'll come back to us. But what we have to make sure that what we put out there is what we truly want because it will come back to us. And then recognize and appreciate as these things unfold for us because we are creating this new reality. We are all consciously working on this together because we are all one. We are united. We are one. Um, we are all come from the same source. And so together we have the potential to move forward. And as more of us open up and recognize this. It's like we put that seed out in the quantum and others pick up on that because we're communicating. We may not recognize this. Some people do. Others don't. But we are constantly communicating with each other. When we when our auric fields cross, we're downloading from each other. When we come together on a webinar like this, we're sharing on a much higher level. We're downloading from each other. We're getting the information that we need and others are getting the information that they, they need as well. So this is a level of communication that we're not used to understanding and working with on a conscious level. But this is happening for us. And so appreciation, live from your heart. See the beauty in every day and you will, like a flower, start to open up and expand and see more and raise your vibration. And as you raise your vibration, you are able to absorb more of the light and frequencies that are coming into our planet right now. And those lights and light and frequencies are very, very high. 
They're part of the ascension process, which is opening us up to being able to, to become who we plan to be in this lifetime before we incarnated into this lifetime. We just need to open up to that and to allow that seed to expand and to grow and to blossom so we can be who we truly are. Thank you, Grandma. Thank you, Terry. Thank you so much. Um, just wanted to share with you guys something. Grandma got a new World Report Award for North American Business. It says, Grandma Chandler Global Spiritual Healing, Spiritual Healer of the Year 2022. Here, that's the award. I don't know if you're going to be able to see that with all the colors and everything. But that's beautiful. Cool. Uh, Kat, move the camera so we can see you and we'll be able to hear you better. That's great. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. So Chandra is opening up a retreat for healers. I can see you all signing up right now. <laughs> it's going to be in Bisbee, Arizona, where we live. And it's going to be a spiritual healing retreat for healers, because as you know, all of the healers, we never, ever get a break, so to speak. So this will be a retreat for healers. It will be a package deal. We're just looking at property right now to see how we're going to manifest this in 3D. But that's what she's about. It's going to be called the Blue Lotus Healing Sanctuary. Congratulations, Kat. Exciting. It's a place for us to go and expand our consciousness. Yes, expand your consciousness. (laughs) Well, what Terry was translating and, you know, her messages and everything, that's the way Grandma expresses expand your consciousness. Absolutely. I'm so grateful for both of you. We love you so much. It's so good to see you. Those that you don't, I don't know. Those that I already know. Thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to next weekend. Mm-hmm. Namaste. Namaste. Message. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful, inspiring, heartwarming message. We made it. Yay. We just have to really live it and be it. Thank you for that. Okay. We have a couple of others that we're going to get to. And some of our panelists may drop off. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, if you have to go, that's fine. We'll see you next <laughs> weekend. Um, let's go now to William, William Linville. This is a character, I should say, a beautiful galactic being, a constant who mm, is of expanded consciousness, a walk-in. Your story's fascinating. William, welcome and thank you. And please share your thoughts on our topic, expand your consciousness. It's so much fun because, you know, I was listening to... The other young lady, Laura and then Peter and uh, Kat and the grandma and, you know, and both of you. And it's just such an interesting, interesting topic because it you go through, you know, whether it's, you know, incarnational, you go through the womb for in the third trimester where you actually start to incarnate within the body. You go through all the encodements of consciousness, all the keys, all the genetic encodements and Higher level encodements, lower level encodements, the genealogy of the platelets of consciousness, including the crystalline structure 
and all the different levels from the frontal lobe of the brain, midbrain, back of the brain, the amygdala, all the way through the DNA, the RNA, all the way up through the telomere, the use vitality chromosomes, and then into your, what I call your universalist DNA or your universal DNA, where there's another 144 to 278 more strands of DNA, which are more goes into your universal libraries of consciousness, goes all the way into all that is. And then we get into ascending, which is also the activation, the radiance, the omnipotence that is now ascending within and through your body, activating through the encodement of consciousness, also dissolving all the different split off levels of consciousness that you've been and that you've had through the soul level of consciousness, through the Akashic Greater Realms, and bringing all of yourself right here, right now, cleared and purified and going through the resolvement, the dissolvement of all the consequent directory effect of all these streams of consciousness that have been split off, polarized, dualized, and separated and segregated from yourself into all these plenitudes of situations, circumstances, traumas, and chaoses as well as the incarnational realms that the U.S. creator, you're reconnecting with yourself. You're bringing all of yourself here now and collapsing all those split, polarized, dualistic particles to bring forth yourself as the one true benevolence like particle as a facet of a creator that you are of clear and perfected divine uh, light, divine love that you're waking up to, you're rising through, and you're also resolving all of these lower levels, lower chakra levels of consciousness from basically the solar plexus, creative chakra level vortex, root chakra level vortex, and all the carnal levels and your primal levels that now you're letting it dissolve, resolve, moving and transcending all the way up through the heart level, all the heart level, all the way down to where eventually you have two main chakra level vortex beyond the 296 in the body. You have two main chakras, the crown and the heart, but the heart filling up the whole body principle, which now you start to become the vortex of divinity, the vortex of light beingness that you are, which in turn now we step beyond all the personal identifications. And I got, yeah, call of identifications because, you know, we're not being polarized by the male or the female. We're not in denial. So please do enjoy your divine feminine, divine masculine. But at the same time, you know you have it due to based on the gender principle of the body. But at the same time, where you have it as another vehicle of expressing love and where now it's where it's all – your whole body as a whole, your whole being in this as a whole is used as an amplifier, accelerator, radiator, an amplifier where your consciousness is really becoming more expanded, endless, to where now you begin to unfold and open up within and throughout the, this whole universe, the multiverse, the metaverses, and into within and through all that is, because that's where you start to really Awaken, you start to watch all the universes become kind of like a little marble where you're filling up all the space around, not leaving your body once again. You're bringing all of you through the body, which is kind of the whole point, to integrate, merge, marry, but then to expand exponentially to where no longer are you pinned in, locked in, boxed in by any polarized states of consciousness where, you know, you go through the universal libraries of data and information, which isn't so much about a book, 
it's everything universally is all based in, let's just call it mathematics, but it's also based in encodements of consciousness. So we're going there and we're opening, we're integrating, we're embodying and accelerating. But yet where we start to watch long term beneficial changes going on within your life stream, then, you know, going back to what Laura was speaking about, you know, it's kind of funny. You change your mind, you change your life. You open up your mind, you open up your life. And being there myself in a wheelchair for two and a half years, extreme pain, being given eight death sentences and on and on and on. that There's basically nothing more we can do to, for you, blah, blah, blah. Well, and I honor it. I mean, it went as far as science can go. And then it was like, okay, well, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. But that's where... All the old will stuff started dying off and where you start having sensations, speaking of detoxing, things like that, where the cells, they start to, it's like a total strip down, a total dying off where the cells start dying, you know, all the old memories, old archaic memories, cuscord and recording effect. But when you're saying bring it on, let's go, you're really experiencing bring it on, let's go. Anything and everything that's held you hostage is being broken down, dissolved, resolved. And of course, physically, you're going to feel sensations. But it's kind of awesome because all, all the sensations you're feeling or experiencing are all in benefit of you vibrating faster and faster, which vibrating faster, it's the same thing as ascending. You're ascending in vibrational frequencies and megahertz of light to higher levels of consciousness. And you start letting your whole fabricated reality dissolve, collapse, and metamorphosize for your personal enjoyment, which in turn, obviously, affects the plant kingdom, mineral kingdom, oceanic realms, um, the animal kingdom, and all parts of the whole planet to where you're vibrating into the whole metaphor of the whole new earth that's really already here. Now, we're watching all the old archaic debris literally blazing away and burning away. And all the out-of-integrity activities, behavioral mannerisms, all of this coming up into exposure. It's nothing new. It's been there for eons. And we're watching two polarized sides both, you know, take it out back, do what you got to do. But we're watching all those be exposed and dissolved because humanity as a whole collective is seeing enough. Mm-hmm. Is that awesome? That's awesome. In the body, and I mean, it's kind of cool because the body is unfortunate, but the body's like the last one to catch up. So, yeah, you know, vibratorily speaking, you're already there. Now we're letting the body start to catch up. And the biggest important thing that I have found rebuilding the body or stabilizing is I mean, it, it sounds odd, but don't get involved. You gave the thumbs up. Now let's let the body do its part. Let's not become afraid. Let's. It's kind of like, hey, body, start rebuilding yourself. Oops, my fingernail hurts. Like, it has a spot, and it could be this. It could be a fungi. It, it, like, it all gets wrapped in the head. You told your body to detoxify. Let's let it leave. You know, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. You told your body to re-energize, right? Faster. Yeah, all this gunk is going to come up because it's leaving, you know? And where you become, you're becoming freer, but you see, you gave the thumbs up. Now... It's not about holding on to your body. I mean, the whole thing about mortality, immortality, about fear of death, which is kind of funny because not even the body is a fear of death. Only the ego has the fear of death because the ego is afraid of losing control. 
<laughs> but you're not the ego. That's the cool part. So you're letting it like it's like claws on a chalkboard kind of thing, nails on a chalkboard where it's like, you know, we're not trying to punish anything. The ego is not your evil stepsister or brother or whatever or redheaded stepchild. The ego is something that's been created by all the stuff that it's been told. It's been taught to be considered normal. How it's supposed to be should be. And then pain is bad. Comfort is good. The point of life is to be undisturbed. To be um, undisturbed, which is the primal belief systems. Now, it could be being abused every day, and that may be your comfort zone. So be it. You know, it keeps you on your toes and all that. But what happens, because comfort zones are interesting, because you're created to outgrow them, not to be stuck within them, which expands your consciousness even more. And then you create another comfort, then you outgrow that comfort, so eventually everything is comfortable. And you don't have any twinge or angst in your mind, your body, your consciousness, or your world. Because you start to remember you are a creator here, embodying, integrating, and expanding throughout creation. So we start to realize there's nothing to fear. Not even fearing fear, because fear is just a misinterpretation of what is. Isn't that fun? It is. Yes, I love the way you describe really conscious creation, which is what we're evolving to. Yeah. You know, it's that each person is taking responsibility as they awaken for thoughts, words, and deeds that before, you know, were part of the, the culture or the system or your family life. And we're waking up to that that's no longer necessary to believe in the competition and the greed and the lack of integrity. We have our own individual sovereign ability to move beyond that and to come to unity and diversity, as Laura said, and so well said. So it's so exciting to see the world um, wake up and expand. And, of course, that starts at home, doesn't it? It starts with us. Absolutely. It's kind of funny because if we could all step back for a minute and take a breath and say, all right, you know what? Let's just let's just cut to the chase. I've been lied to my whole life and multitudes of life. Mm-hmm. So now what am I willing to do about it? Which is kind of cool because if you've been lied to your whole life, multitudes of life, on and on and on. Now – Ah, what a load off. Now we can start expressing and exploring as you now, not through the eyes of mom, dad, Uncle Bob, Aunt Susie, whatever, whatever. Not not through the church, not through the eyes of others, but through your eyes as creator now, exploring Mm -hmm. creation. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's like walking the street and I can look around and say, wow, man, I really wasn't ran over by a bus. So I can let go of that beer. And, you know, know, it's from the littlest to the biggest. It's all returning to the heart is where only love prevails. If people could just learn that when they were children, can imagine how the world would be different if we could navigate out of the analytical and into the heart where only love is present in its myriad of forms. And I I, I know that's what's happening now. And that's certainly why we're doing this event is to share that concept that love is all around you. Love is love is you. Yeah. But yet, through the diversity and the uniqueness of our authentic selves, we come together t- to unify and to create this beautiful new earth where love is the presence. You know? Yeah, and that's what's happening globally. It yes. looks funky at times, but it's everything that hasn't been loved. <laughs> it does look funky at times, but we come back to here and we know all is well. Yeah, exactly. Then how best can I assist? Yeah. So, so great to have you with us. 
Oh, thank you for having me. So, and thank you for this beautiful event. What what it means, your life changer. Thank you. We believe it is. We're just delighted you're here. You know, some of the people are commenting that they haven't really been aware of your presence or, you know, hearing you speak. So it's extra special from that perspective to open you and what you have to share with a new audience. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's truly such an honor. And, you know, it's it's just so cool because there's no end. There's only one way, which is up and up and up. And it, we're going up, 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 vibratorily, but it's really you going into you just – Dumping all the stuff that's not you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good riddance. Happy dumping, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Take out the garbage together, right? Yeah. <laughs> Have a bonfire. Uh, you know what? Every single person speaking has been an activation, and it's so inspiring, and we are lit up. So, again, thank you. We're looking forward to your time with us next weekend. And um, speaking of the heart and being pure joy, Emmanuel Dauber, thank you for being here. You are all about the heart and joy. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for just raising the consciousness of the planet through your words, actions, deeds. I'm so grateful for all the panelists and both of you. Wonderful. We are for you. (laughs) We're so glad that you can join us. I know that you're a very busy person, as all our panelists are. And so can you share more on your perception or your thoughts on expand your consciousness? Hmm. First of all, I just I'm so grateful for all the multifaceted perspectives that were shared today. They're all part of the one. And so that really brings it to the understanding that expansion is simply us choosing to acknowledge and embody the oneness that already is. So oneness tells us that the only things that exist can exist in relationship to one another. So the fact, let's take a moment right now, everyone tuning in and and just connecting. The fact that you are sitting on a chair you in that chair have a relationship. The fact that you have a body, you and your precious body have a relationship. The fact that you have an ego, a mind, you and that beautiful precious mind ego have a relationship. You and your breath have a relationship. You and your spirit have a relationship. You and your family, your friends. The thing is though, Oneness can be a really challenging topic to to cover because there's a lot of complexities that are out there and it can, you know, there's religions, there's new age, there's doctrines, there's so many things that complicate it. But I've found that the more simple something is, the more oneness is able to fully be realized. So from that space, I want you to just close your eyes and just really be in this moment and as simple and as trivial and as lifeless as your chair or the bed or the couch wherever you're sitting that that might be i want you just to acknowledge what that thing has done for you over the years has it nourished you allowed you a safe space to rest to rejuvenate to relax what are some of the things 
that this thing that you thought was just there as this lifeless object, what has that done for you? And I want you to acknowledge all of those things that that object has done for you. And when you can, just express deep gratitude. We are so grateful. We are so grateful to this chair that has supported you through good times and maybe not so good times, through times of contemplation and just reflection, self-inquiry, watching TV, whatever it is. Let's just be in that moment. What you have just done is you have acknowledged oneness. This is you expanding. And the way that you know that you're expanding is I know that William was talking about the body. The body is a barometer of your spirit. It's an extension of your spirit. And it will tell you through feelings and sensations whether something is connecting you to the oneness that already is here within you and all around you. And if something is constricting you and separating you, making you believe that you are separate from that oneness. So when you think of all of those things that that simple chair has done for you, how do you feel? How do you feel? What are some of the feelings and sensations that come up for you? Do you feel gratitude? Do you feel peace? Do you feel lighter? Do you feel more space? Or do you feel constricted? You know, sometimes the mind wants to come in and judge and say, oh my gosh, how was I not aware that this thing that I was just thinking was there was actually serving me? And oneness, or for oneness to fully be realized, it's really about balancing the service to self, which is what most people are these days, not empaths and healers, but most people are very self-involved because of the fear matrix that's really uh, projecting a lot of that uh, hold over people. But that's changing as we know, people are dropping from the mind into the heart. But what is important to understand is that what if we can balance our service to self equally with the service to others. And some of us who are healers and empaths and people who are very uh, like sponges, we were always wanting to make people feel better and absorb. This is also important for you to understand how to balance the service to self component. And the way that you can begin is simply by honoring the three aspects of yourself, which are mind, body, and spirit. So in this moment, no matter what judgments you've had, no matter what expectations you've had, no matter what beliefs and thoughts, I want you simply to acknowledge your body and all that it has done for you. It has brought you here. The fact that you are here and you've been through all of the goods and the bad and everything in between, I want you just to acknowledge that and express deep gratitude to your body. You are in a relationship with your body. Every relationship for it to be fruitful and to thrive has to have balance between giving and receiving. This is oneness. This is what expansion is all about. 
we often think that it has to start out there and we have to save the world, but it really is about embracing and honoring the parts of you that maybe you weren't fully loving and honoring. Even the ego, a lot of teachings and spiritual doctrines talk about getting rid of and eradicating the ego. But what if the ego is just this part of you that's trying to keep you safe and protected the best way that it knows how and through the teachings and the um, passed down traditions that it has learned, what if that's all that it is? And what if all it needs is your love and attention to hold that space for it to come into this present with you so that it can heal and alchemize to what it's really supposed to be, which is to experience this gift of third, fourth dimensional death and fifth dimensional density, the gift of sight, the gift of sound, the gift of taste, touch, smell. That's what your ego is here to experience. But along the way, it forgot. It became very much about protecting itself. So, of course, how could we be mad? All those judgments we placed on our ego through religion, through new age, through spirituality, that it's evil, that it's bad, that we have to get rid of it. Of course, it's going to do everything it can to protect itself from you. But the you that we're talking about now is the awakened, present, observer's conscious self. It's your God self. It's your goddess self. That part of you has never judged the ego. That part of you has never separated itself from the ego. The ego exists in the oneness. Otherwise, it wouldn't, there would not be an ego. So I want you right now to thank your mind, the ego, for all that you have experienced, for all those times that it did the best that it could to keep you safe. I know it may be a tall order in this moment, but just your willingness alone is creating the space for the healing, for the expansion to happen. So just take a deep breath in and just be aware that you are in a relationship with your mind. You are in a relationship with your body. You are in a relationship with your spirit. And when you develop those and cultivate this strong bond and love for all those aspects of yourself, imagine what's going to happen in your relationships, whether it's family, whether it's partner, whether it's colleagues, whether it's just the world around you. How are you going to show up? Is it going to be easier for you to recognize the oneness that's already here? Or are you going to still separate yourself and blame and make this versus that? All of that has had its purpose. We're grateful. It did its job. But now is the time for us to drop into the heart, to allow the heart to lead, not to get rid of the mind, but to allow the mind and heart to work together as one and to allow the heart to lead. So that to me is expansion. I'm so sorry for the tangent. <laughs> no, that tangent was an activation and so beautiful as well. And there is no war between the head and the heart. It is a relationship. And you've mm-hmm. clarified that so beautifully. Thank you, Emmanuel. Folks in our um, chat on Zoom are saying it's so good to see you. Oh, it's so good to be with you. (laughs) (laughs) You're so wise. Okay. Well, we are looking forward to your time with us as well. 
And I'm going to go to Lori and have Lori share a little bit. Lori works with the whale and dolphin consciousness and animal consciousness, inner species. And so tell us more, Lori. Well, I was born telepathic with animals and it was wonderful, but it was confusing because I thought everyone else was too. And I grew up in rural Nebraska and uh, horses were, I would have to say my best friends and my greatest love, my first teachers. But I didn't understand the concepts that were there at the time. Like from the Cowboys, they're going to break the horse, you know, put the saddle on and let the horse buck until it behaves, you know, use control or manipulation. It it broke my heart actually. And um, I would just say, you know, why don't you just ask the horse if it wants to be ridden? It will tell you, you know, some do and some don't. So that that's just sort of the foundation of where I came from. <clears throat> Over the years, though, I developed very strong relationships with just the cats and dogs around me. And again, my, my individual horse and then my second horse became really my partners in the very similar way that Master Cat Put is now. I ended up traveling to um, California from Nebraska when I was um, 17 years old. And I was trained um, in the Buffalo Bills Wild West Show, which was there in North Platte, Nebraska, as a trick rider. And I had this very incredible relationship with my horse and would pretty much do anything we asked him to do. And that made my horse very valuable in the show. So, I, of course, I thought it was a big star, but it was my horse that was the big star. <laughs> we came to California. And then I went on to study veterinary medicine because I thought that was my calling. And unfortunately, um, it wasn't. You know, I wasn't really happy. I mean, of course, I loved studying the anatomy of the animals and being with the animals, but I, I, I had not yet discovered what I call energy light medicine and uh, that the animals wish to experience the natural elements and they wish to teach us that. So now, years later, of course, I can say that the animals are the greater body of healers and teachers on this planet. They exist here without duality. They have no consciousness of the, even the word no. They they don't have a word for apology or I'm sorry. They only have a word for some level of love that they're here to teach us and to demonstrate for us. A good example would be the dogs are here as a species to teach unconditional love. I think most people can agree that. Cats are here to teach freedom and self-love. A completely different concept, but yet blended with the unconditional love. And so this has become my path. Uh, In 1994, I had one of those quote-unquote car accidents, even though, again, I know we all create our realities. And I spent several years in Baja, in Mexico. And this is where the dolphins came to me. And they began to speak to me. And uh, I, I thought I was losing my mind because I had not yet spoke to dolphins. I loved them, but I hadn't spent time with them. And they came to my house every day in my little beach house and told me so many things. I was really in what now I would call cosmology school. They told me about the history of the earth. And I was with my cat at the time. It was Pooty, who has since reincarnated four times uh, and was sitting out there with me and helping me decipher what I would say the dolphin language and, and, and come to a place where I could understand that this was meant to be, that it was, it was my, my higher being, my consciousness reaching out and the dolphins reaching back. And this was sort of our destiny and that this would be part of my path. And so it came to about three years later where they just specifically asked me, will you be a messenger for us? Will you be a voice? Will you bring people to see us? Um, will you communicate with me? And interestingly enough, that Grandma Chandra was on earlier. Grandma Chandra was one of the people that truly supported me in the early stages of this. Uh, I formed a healing center with four other people, I think, in 2003. Um, it was called the Cat Center. And Grandma came. We hosted her um, from Arizona to uh, San Diego. And in the, in the event was wonderful. Lots of people came. And at the end, Grandma said to me, through her mom cat, you know, she speaks telepathic. She says, when are you going to do your real mission here? 
So I am doing my real mission. At that point, I was translating messages from the whales and from the Pleiadians and helping people receive those codes of creation that activate your life. And uh, she looked at me and she said, your real mission is to go out on the boats to take people out to meet the dolphins and whales, those that want to. That's part of it. And you need to do that, to see them up live and personal, you know. And at that point, I said, well, I get seasick. I can't I can't do that. I've tried all my life to go on boats and I got sick on airplanes. I got sick in the backseat of the car. And she said, so are you going to heal that? <laughs> Grandma Sandra would say. And I said, yeah, I'm going to heal that. She said, okay, I'll give you 30 days. I'm going to go home and I'm going to come back. And when I come back, we're going to do a boat trip. And you're going to go out with me and you're going to give the messages of the dolphins and whales to each individual person because that's what you want to do, right? And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, and, and if you get sick, then I'll do the messages. But I, I think it's time you heal that. So so I did. I mean, I really worked on myself. and I was terrified, but I did it. That first boat trip, she was right there with me. And we had a sold-out boat, and it was the beginning of what I'm doing now, like 19 years later, doing lots of retreats all over the world to communicate with dolphins and whales, who, who by the way, are the elders. I mean, if you don't already know that, the whales tell us they've literally been here 300 million years. They originally walked upright on the land. They have five fingers and their pectoral fins. They are the elders that have come to set the stage, so to speak, um, for humanity to be here. And they exist in multidimensional realms, and, of course, they're here to help us understand our multidimensionality. And so that really came in strong for me in 2008. And over the years, uh, working with people individually and doing some retreats and classes to expose people to this consciousness led me to the place where I am now, which was four years ago, the um, the whales came in and I started to work with the, the I call the cosmic whales, the white whales. There are only 12 of them on our planet. And they told me in, uh, actually through my partner, Puda, in 2011, they would return to the planet on March 3rd, 2012. And we were to go to Kauai to the Stargate there, which I didn't know about at the time. And we were to receive them back to the planet. And then they would come back and they would begin to teach us how to activate our light body in an accelerated fashion for those that are ready to prepare for ascension and to move the timeline along. And it was a pretty big statement. It was a pretty big mission to take on. But I called a lot of people, including Grandma Chandra and other people I respected, and every single one of them said, not only is this true, we're supposed to go with you. <laughs> so we ended up with, I think, 68 people uh, going to Anahola on the island of Kauai for a week-long retreat to greet the white. Okay, we got to stop. We'll finish with our wonderful report here from this group of wonderful beings that have been sharing so many Good things. Okay. It's going to be time now to take a look at the stars. I'm going to take a little bit of a break. And we'll be back with our brother Richard. And Kay Pacha. And Tanya Gabrielle. And uh, music. Uh, and so until we uh, are back, uh, thank you for the, the listening ear that you make so uh, well, to, to be together and do this. Okay, namaste for a little while. We'll be right back. 10 or 15. Thank you, Richard. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Another Saturday night. Alright. Moon is at uh, 22 Aquarius. Uh, we still got Mars 
triple square to Neptune, Sun, and Mercury at 26, 29, and 30 in Pisces. That's not... That's very interesting in terms of uh, driving people crazy. Because next week... Wait a minute. Real quick here. I I did some pre-calculating here. The equinox on the 20th, which is... Monday. Uh, Yeah, 8.30 p.m. Four... Mercury, Sun, Neptune, and Moon, all squaring Mars. Or I should say Mars is squaring all four of them on the equinox. So, and that's only three days away. And then Pluto will be sextile, all three of them. Pluto's at 30 degrees, and it'll be sextile with the sun, exactly. Mercury will be at 4, and Neptune at 26, and the moon at 20 Pisces on the equinox. So that's um, not an easy thing to do here. All right, let me get back to tonight. Okay. We got uh, everything else is pretty much the same. Venus is three Taurus conjuncting the North Node. So we're going to get some kind of a Venetian uh, influence here over over this week leading up to the equinox. All right. Jupiter is still conjunct Chiron. It's at 17, Chiron at 15, and Saturn at 2 Pisces. So that's the layout. So you got a triple conjunction or with the Sun. You got a double conjunction with Jupiter. The energies are high. Uh, Aries and water, when you, that's electrical and magnetic working together, and that's driving everything. It's driving everything. And, of course, Mercury in Gemini just wants to talk, 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 talk. So let's go listen to Kaipacha. Talk, 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 talk. Star gave me a heads up, said Kaipacha's 45 minutes. So uh, relax, and uh, we'll talk to you at the end of that for five seconds or so. Okay. Here we go. Let's do it, Ralph. Here goes Kapacha. for March 15th of 2023. Oh, yes. Let's look at it here. 
you can see a couple of things. Number one, we've got the Earth, Sun, Mercury, conjunction with Neptune. There's Neptune. You see this alignment. Earth, Sun, Mercury's behind the Sun, then Neptune. And when we move it forward, here's the moon. That moon is going to move around. Let's see if I can move the moon. No. <laughs> but the moon is going to be moving around. I'm going to show it to you. Okay. And then you can see a couple of other things here, right? The square to Mars. Look at this 90-degree square. It's pretty, you know, pretty straightforward. Mars, Earth, Sun, Mercury, out to Neptune. That is a 90-degree square. Now, the other square that I'm talking about in the Pele Report is, where's Pluto? Where's Pluto? Oh, there's Pluto. Okay, if we come out here, you can also see from here, okay, we're coming into a square with Pluto, Earth, Venus, now, what you can't see is Venus conjunct the north node of the moon because this program's not good enough. <laughs> it doesn't really show the ecliptic or where the moon crosses the ecliptic. It's, it's just got the moon, you know, going around. But the moon is not necessarily, here's the plane of the ecliptic, right? When you, when you put all these planetaries, planets on. So this is the ecliptic. Okay. And it's got the moon going around on the ecliptic, but the moon doesn't. The moon's path, the moon's orbit, okay, is slightly tilted to the ecliptic. So it crosses, you know, the ecliptic, which it's going to be crossing the ecliptic to the north, right? And that's where Venus is. And then it's going to come around and it goes a little bit south of the ecliptic, and that's the south node of the moon on the other side of the, of the Earth, and then it comes around again. So here we can see that. And then, of course, you have this lineup, you know, with the uh, spring equinox that I'm not going to really go into with this program either, but let's move it along a little bit. Here we go. And... Make it a little bigger, bring it down here, and see the moon moving, see the moon moving, moon comes around to bam, right? <laughs> March 21st, it's done. so we have a, a sun, new moon, is when the moon comes around and is in alignment with the sun, Mercury is not that far off, Right? Venus is still a conjunct the north node of the moon over there, uh, even though she's not on her own north node. She will, uh, you know, uh, next week, uh, next weekend, whatever, she'll come around and conjoin the north node of the moon. So that is what things look like from outer space, where things are very still and calm and cool and collected and... You know, uh, there's no worries or cares when you get way out there. I mean, I could go on with this program for a long time, but 
it's a long Pele report today, so let's get on with it. All right, let's do this thing. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> wow. This is the confluence of the North Fork and the Middle Fork of the American River uh, up here in Northern California, and it has been raining so much. You got to hang out till the end of the video because I, I got. I got some of these rapids where the rocks that I use could sit on to do Pele reports in the past are underwater completely. I mean, it's like it's like I've never seen it before. And I I used to live here. I, I moved up here in 1991, so that's like 30 years ago. I've never seen this much water in these rivers, and how you know, opportune or apropos, yeah, for uh, the Sun-Neptune-Mercury conjunction. Oceans of water. There's like this river of, uh, you know, rain. And this is just a break for the Pele report, I swear, because there's another storm front moving in. So tripped out. But actually, it's not that tripped out, because guess what? Even on my Telegram channel of New Paradigm Astrology, I posted a link to the, uh, you know, uh, uh, artificial storms. Uh, you know, instead of chemtrails now, they call it cloud seeding. Oh. Yeah? So they are, uh, they're bringing in, you know, uh, they're basically spraying the clouds and creating storms because they want to accumulate snowfall you got to check I mean, maybe I should put the link in, uh, down in the video below but you know it just goes to show that anything can be going on these days this could be a long Pele report because what this is the astrological new year this is the end okay of the old year of what you began last March, you know, 21st and 22nd, okay, that solar cycle, along with Mercury and Venus, is now gone all the way around, seeded, matured, blossomed, fruited, died, and now it's all over, unknown soldier. <laughs> That could be the Pele report for this song. I mean, for this week. But not only that. So, it's the ending and the new beginning. What I, what I posted there at the beginning, and I'm going to post it again at the end, these two charts side by side. So amazing. Five days apart. And look how different they are. Right? Because what we've got coming up this weekend, all right, is like the grand finale in the 4th of July fireworks show. Okay? It's like, kaboom! You know, Sun, Mercury, Neptune, conjunction, square to Mars, like I showed you. Okay? At the same time, Venus in that square to Pluto, 
And then, five days later, man, Sun, Mercury, move into Aries, and the moon comes around for a new moon, a brand new moon at the first degree of Aries. Talk about a new beginning, a new start, a new reality, a new year. <laughs> I mean, wow. Wow. Really amazing. And so what I first want to talk about, okay, is the ending. And that has to do, okay, with this sun, Neptune, Mercury. And you, you've been feeling it this last week, too. I mean, this isn't like these don't just happen like the computer says, you know, on this day and that day. No, 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 no. No, it's gradually builds and gradually lets out. And particularly even since the sun entered Pisces, okay, uh, you know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and Mercury, and Saturn. Neptune, if you really want to think of it, Neptune is closing a 165-year cycle. So it's in its last three years of its home sign of Pisces. So we're closing a one-year cycle, but we're also closing a 165-year cycle. Saturn is closing a 28-year cycle over these next three years. And guess what? Saturn will conjunct Neptune at the same degree of this new moon three years from now. Knock it out. I'm going to read the degree of this new moon, and it's very, very powerful. And we could say that it's hopeful. Maybe, maybe. But let's look at this ending because, you know, Neptune is the collective unconscious. The sun is shining its light on the collective unconscious. This is opening up, you could say, like a portal. And that's what the mantra is about this week, is downloading, you know, from other worlds, from spiritual worlds, etheric worlds, astral worlds, galactic realities, the Pleiades, Andromeda, you name it. It's, you know, this, this is an opening. And Mercury is our left brain, our ego consciousness. Sun Mercury is like, I am listening, seeking, learning, downloading, you know, connecting ego consciousness to infinite spiritual realities. Now, here's the thing. Infinite spiritual realities, let's remember, there's no time, no space, no boundaries, no right, no wrong, no up, no down. There's no polarity. There's no good and no evil. Outer space is outer space. Okay? You know, the spiritual world is heaven and hell and purgatory and anything else. 
that humanity has projected onto infinity, right? Onto creator, great spirit, source, love, hate. It's all, I mean, the collective unconscious contains everything. But the thing is, it's very confusing to the ego because the ego, we live in polarity. Should I do this or that? You know, should I say yes or no? Am I winning or losing? Am I... (laughs) The monkey mind goes on and on. So when we're confronted with Neptune, we're blown away. So this is a time of getting blown away. Getting our minds blown. So Neptune rules everything from... The crown chakra, mystical oneness with all creation of yoga and the whole path towards enlightenment, as well as despair, depression, sorrow, disillusionment, emptiness, and the void. There's a huge spectrum here. And... I would say, depending upon your soul evolutionary intentions, what are your intentions for this life? That's how you're going to experience this week. You can plug into, and this can be just as like Jack in the Box, like boing, boing, right? And it can open the gates of hell for some people. And it can knock you out and drag you out and drag you down and, you know, just like absolutely scare the bejeebies out of you. There's nothing to hold on to. There's no future. There's no point. There's no purpose. There's uh, everything I try doesn't work. I mean, you can go on into victim, into martyr, into... Oh my God! Ah, overwhelm! I'm overwhelmed. Ah. I've been feeling it. I've been feeling overwhelmed. You can feel helpless. You can feel hopeless. You can feel weak. You can feel impotent. You can feel, you know, just like, yeah, like it's all over. And it's a very scary reality. It's a very scary feeling. It gives you this sense of impermanence for damn sure. (laughs) Even your most cherished relationships, ideals, possessions, money, dreams, it can all get wiped away like that. We are very vulnerable. These human bodies are very vulnerable. These hearts are very vulnerable. And I haven't even gotten into Venus square Pluto and Venus conjunct the North Node. Speaking of hearts... So I just want to say, 
that you can be feeling all of this. And you can even be a little bipolar and be bouncing back and forth between despair to dreaming a new dream or downloading a new vision or opening your crown to, you know, realities. This is such a super sensible time period. If you're ever going to have psychic experiences, if you are ever going to see ghosts, spirits, gnomes, or fairies, <laughs> this is the time. You can be getting messages left and right, in and out, up and down. That can be the beautiful part. Remember, there's no time and no space, so the, the windows of the future can also open up to you, and you may get prophecies. You may get, you know, you may become an oracle. So I want to talk about the mantra a little bit because I talk about an artist. And, you know, some people could read that mantra and they go, oh, I'm not an artist. You know, I don't know what he's talking about or that mantra is not for me. Uh, 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 uh. Sorry, baby. It's the sun. We all have a sun. We all are the sun. We all have Leo. We all have a fifth house. We all have creative self-expression. We create ourselves. We create our lives. We are sculptors of our lives. We are the artists creating our life. So I don't care if you can draw, paint, color, sing, or dance. We are all artists. Maybe sit with that a little bit. We're all healers. We're all teachers. We're all students. We're all artists. Let's not be cramming ourselves into boxes, huh? Huh? Knock it off. There's no boxes in Neptune, okay? There's no boxes in Pisces. It's all there. So, it's almost like, you know, you, you tap into the frequency. It's like tuning your radio. What station are you going to tune into, you know? And people that have been... Avoiding, ignoring, denying realities, denying their soul intentions, denying their needs, uh, denying their fears. If you've been in denial or you've been avoiding, this will, this will be a time where a jack in the box comes up and says, boing, <laughs> uh, wacko, you know. Uh, you ran out of drugs, or you're in the hospital, or your partner left you, or, you know, like, it's all done. What other experiences can people be having? You know, uh, it, you know, we're, we're all so unique, I could sit here forever, because other people are going to have just situations where, you know, oh, you know, I want that vision. You know, I, I, I want that download. 
So, you know, and I haven't done, I haven't been meditating. I haven't done any breath work. I haven't done any uh, inner work. I, I have no spiritual practice, but I want, you know, I want a spiritual experience right now. So, whatever, right? Substances, abuse. So there can also be this desire to escape, especially if you're overwhelmed, because we're also sensitive right now, and all of our channels are open. Easy to get overwhelmed, like this river, just like the, the river just comes and swallows you and washes so many things away. So you can be having these experiences. And boom, then they're over. <laughs> and boom, new moon. At the first degree of Aries, zero degrees, 50 minutes or something, man. At the same time, Venus, Aphrodite, conjunct the north node of the moon, the greatest symbol of love, marriage, union, romance, you know, just beauty, art, sugar, sweetness of life in the sign of Taurus. Yeah! <laughs> Venus came home to Taurus. Ow! Square Pluto. You know, it's like and Pluto says, you know, I want you back down here, Persephone. <laughs> You know, you're trying to come up from out of the underworld, but you know, before you do, uh, there's a few things you need to learn. <laughs> so we started a new Venus-Pluto cycle, January 1st. January 1st, Pluto was conjunct Venus. You can go back to the Pele report I did, right, you know? A time of seeding, new values, new priorities, new relationships, new people, right? It's just like really very, very, very powerful beginning there. And this square is the 90 degree square. It's the first quarter square. It's time to take what, you know, came through with your New Year's resolutions or whatever and bring it down and out. Manifest it, create it, make it real. Second part of the mantra before it's too late. Ooh, that's the other thing I wanted to talk about. Before it's too late. The thing about Neptune and Pisces and the etheric world and the astral, you know, domains, you know, there is no time. And just like in dreams, right? You know, you wake up from the dream and it's gone. So it is important. This is a time where, you know, it's like, you know, the doctors walk around with the dictaphone, you know, or we walk around with our, you know, phones and, you know, be able to record something. Or, you know, the artist goes around with their scratch pad and their colored pencils or something. I mean, it's like you got to you got to grasp that that download. You know, and, you know, mess with it 
play with it, integrate it, understand it, feel it, you know, uh, before it's gone. So that's before it's too late. I, I don't mean to, I didn't really mean to like, it's the end of the world and, you know, if you don't do it, you're going to die or it's, you know, it's too late. No, that's not what I mean by too late in the mantra. It's just that, that you need to like, you know, you, you need to grasp grasp that higher reality before it, you know, before that bird flies away. That's what I mean by too late. Yeah. Be awake. Be aware. Be ready. You know, spirit is always speaking to us through everything. <laughs> oh, there goes a leaf. It's a sign. I love this stuff, man. Anyway, where was I? All right, let's get to the Venus. Love, partnership, relationship. What is the Venus Pluto seed, you know, module, nodule, intention, dynamic? It is that you relationships, love relationships, intimate relationships are mirrors of our relationship to ourselves. And you cannot have a beautiful, loving relationship until you have a beautiful, loving relationship with yourself. So Venus-Pluto people and Venus, Pluto in general, can be seeking fulfillment, love, through intense desire for connection to another beautiful, often sexual individual that is like going to fulfill them, going to complete them, going to make them whole. Give them meaning. Uh, give them a purpose. I, I, really suck on relationship. You know, draw on. You know, this relationship is going to like, you know, make me, it's going to complete my life. And this is where these relationships get in trouble. It's too much. It's too heavy. It's too intense. There's loss, betrayal, abandonment, manipulation, exploitation, lies and secrets and, you know, just kind of control, you know, trying to, you know, hypnotize and, you know, I mean, all, you know, all the things come up, you know, jealousy, revenge, possessiveness, anger, volcanic reactions, uh, you know, you know, makeup sex and violence and, I mean, you know, Venus Pluto is, you know, it's the whole gamut of intense relationship experience. And, and, you know, it's obsessive compulsive relationship. I've got to have you. I can't live without you. I could be another song for this week. Can't live. <laughs> if living means without you. I've been singing that one myself. So, yeah. So this square, you know, this square is saying, 
you know, it's really time to be self-sufficient, which is Taurus, north north of the moon, love ourselves wholly, fully, and completely, and stop demanding, expecting, projecting, waiting, hoping, uh, getting angry when or whatever. I mean, just take, take the burden off of your partner, please. Feed yourself, love yourself, pleasure yourself, uh, you know, smile to yourself, talk to yourself. Who cares how you do it? <laughs> but like, you know, don't be... <laughs> whatever, man. I shouldn't say, you can be whatever you want. I'm just saying that this is a time of doing relationship in a new way that has all the passion and all the juiciness and all the power and all the intensity, you know, but, you know, we're getting our needs met from spirit. And that's what's beautiful about the Sun, Mercury, Neptune. It's like, okay, I, you know, I'm downloading from spirit, you know, and we're all channels and instruments and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going vertical and I'm getting my reality fed, you know, from the vertical and... Therefore, this relationship is going to succeed because I'm not going to, you know, uh, put a 10-ton weight on top of it and, you know, put all of my, you know, <laughs> just don't put all the eggs in one basket, man. <laughs> All right, I gotta read the, I gotta read the zero degrees there because it's so beautiful, it's so classic because it's even got a woman in it, which is Venus, right? I mean, so to have this Venus North Node square Pluto, you know, at the same time that we're having the new moon, it's like in the freaking Sabian symbol. Where is it? Uh, a woman just risen from the sea. A seal is embracing her. The keynote is an emergence of new forms and of the potentiality, potentiality of consciousness. It doesn't say guarantee. <laughs> It says potentiality. <laughs> this is the first of the 360 phases. The first of a universal and multi-level cyclic process which aims at the actualization of a particular set of potentialities. These potentialities in the Sabian symbols refer to the development of man's individualized consciousness. The consciousness of being an individual person with a place and a function 
in parentheses, a destiny in the planetary organism of the Earth. <laughs> Gaia is one big organism, and we're little blood cells. <laughs> Hopefully we're not spike cells. And in a particular type of human society and culture, to be individually conscious means to emerge out of the sea of generic and collective consciousness, which to the emerged mind appears to be unconscious. Yes. Such an emergence is the primary event. Boom. Equinox. Spring equinox in the northern hemisphere. Fall equinox. But this is a beginning in the southern hemisphere, yeah? But this is the beginning of Aries. This is the beginning of a new cycle, right? It is the result of some basic action. A leaving behind. An emerging from a womb or matrix. Here symbolized by the sea. Such an action is not to be considered a powerful, positive statement of individual being. In the beginning is the act, but it is often an imperceptible, insecure act. The small, tender germ out of the seed does not loudly proclaim its existence. It has to pierce through the crust of the earth, the soil still covered with the remnants of the past, especially if it got some good compost. <laughs> it is all potentiality and a minimum of actual presence. In the symbol, therefore, the emergent entity is a woman. Symbolically speaking, a form of existence still close to the unconscious depths of generic biological nature. Filled with the desire to be rather than self-assertion. The woman is seen embraced by a seal. Get this. This is amazing, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which has retraced its steps and returned to the womb of the sea. The seal, therefore, represents a regressive step. It embraces the woman who has emerged because every emergent process is at first susceptible to failure. This process is indeed surrounded by the memory, the ghosts of the past failures during previous cycles. The impulse upward is held back by regressive 
fear or insecurity. The issue of the conflict depends on the relative strength of the future word and the past word forces. The possibility of success and that of failure is implied throughout the entire process of actualization. Every release of potentiality contains this twofold possibility. It inevitably opens up two paths. One leads to perfection in consciousness. The other to disintegration. The return to the undifferentiated state of hummus, manure, cosmic dust, the symbolic great waters of space to chaos. Will you return to Pisces chaos? Or will you emerge into Venusian Taurus. <laughs> We're at that threshold, right? It's like exhilarating and exciting on one hand, and you can get scared shitless on the other hand, and you feel strong and powerful and autonomous one moment, and you feel helpless and weak and wounded in the next. And I mean, this is just like such, this is like, woo! Wow, anything can happen. So a couple of things I wanted to mention, and I will put a link to it down below. If you want to hear anything that can happen, I got this link. Did you see what the Pentagon has reported that the, the pilots and everybody have seen so many orbs lately that they think that there is an alien mothership sending out probes to examine Earth. <laughs> this is the Pentagon, baby. <laughs> what next? <laughs> These are the most insane wild times, man. So, like I say, anything can happen. And with that in mind... I want to just talk about the return to our innermost self. Yeah, you know, this is a time where we can be scared, we can be confused, we can be depressed, we can be, you know, challenged, particularly in our relationships, particularly, you know, in our hearts, with grief over losses, and, yeah, I mean, so astrology and your birth chart gives you so much understanding of who you are, yourself, why you are here, your roots, your innermost self. I'm doing, you know, a four-day workshop in Athens with Mia, who is a psychotherapist and shaman in her own right, and is a master of ceremony. And I'll, together we are going to create 
an extremely magical weekend. This is right in the middle of May, and if you have any way of making it over there, it will be amazing. And if you want to stay longer or go deeper than you can do in four days, I will be working with Chiron and turning our wounds into medicine. Yeah, just before Athens on the island of Adipsos. Check that out. That's a week-long intensive. So, yeah, there's, you know, there's ways of calming, breathing, loving ourselves, owning our shit, you know, surviving ourselves, and, you know, creating a life we love. In the midst of the madness that society is now, uh, you know, putting us through, uh, this is, this is not a time to lose hope. Yeah. So, as an artist, I first must be open to worlds they say cannot be. You know who they are. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody's got a they. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. You give they your own name. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> then I must download and seek to create what I am given before it's too late. Download it and create it. Like, put it out. This is Aries. Spontaneous. New moon. Trust yourself. Slap it out. Spit it out. Speak it out. Say it out. Dance it out. Boom. Don't, don't, don't get, you know, don't get your uh, toilet plugged, man. <laughs> you know, get rid of the old stuff. Let out the new stuff. Yeah. One more time so you can get on with your day. As an artist, I must first be, or I first must be, I know, I must first be open to worlds they say cannot be. Then I must download and seek to create what I am given before it's too late. It's too late to turn back now. I believe, I believe, I believe we're falling in love. <laughs> so many songs you can think of. I'll put one down below in the notes. And don't forget Spotify, man. I've got the whole Pele Report playlist. Just go into Spotify and do a search for the Pele Report. You know, go on to Telegram, search for New Paradigm Astrology. Go on to Instagram. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to put my stuff out all over. I'm on Rumble. All the links are below in the YouTube uh, notes. So, I, you know, I'm trying to connect. I hope to connect, and I hope that you are um, connecting feeling connected. 
to your innermost self. <laughs> Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Talking stick to you. All right. Here's my five second comment. The price of gold from the 11th to the 18th went up $121. So it closed Friday at 1989 per ounce in the one a week. And the price of silver went from $20.50 to $22.60. So what you're looking at here is a flight to safety. Because when the banks go wonky, people go... Two things: they either go to cash or they or they go to metals. metals. Yeah. What did you say the price of gold was again? From what to what? It went from eighteen sixty eight to nineteen eighty nine. Mark Bell talked about that a while back when he was on the planet. I was remembering him. You know, they took him out too for what he was exposing. Yeah. It's too late, uh, Charlie Brown, in the sense that they they can't hide in the shadows anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I believe in intervention. Not exactly sure what else to say about that. All right. Well, we still still have to work. I know it's time for bed. Okay. uh, Anyway, yeah, I I got my two hours of exercise with the log pile. Uh huh. Making a log pile for next year. That's great. All right. Namaste. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Until we meet again. There's Tanya. Tanya. Welcome to Star Codes. This is where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers, the astronomerology, so we can navigate the celestial realms with the highest vibrational 
impact that we can give and experience. So here we go. Aries new moon time, beginning of the new year in astrology, the equinox, all hours from each other. So the equinox is on March 20th and it celebrates the beginning of a season, in this case, spring in the northern hemisphere and autumn in the southern hemisphere. And then literally hours later on March 21st, we have the Aries new moon. So both signify new beginnings. So this is an incredible moment also because the Aries new moon happens at zero degrees Aries, the very first degree of the zodiac, which has, of course, 360 degrees. So that's incredibly powerful to begin with. The other thing is, is that Mars, the ruler of this new moon, the ruler of Aries, creates a very dynamic square to the sun and moon. Now, this is the first new moon after we've had four consecutive new moons at one degrees. This is the first one that breaks that pattern and moves to zero degrees. And so when we look at Aries, Aries is a fire sign. It fires up the new horoscope year. And fire signs are very fast moving. They're very passionate. You're firing up something in your life. And in this case, because the equinox and the Aries new moon come within hours of each other, and we have the zero degree impact and the Mars square impact as well, there's going to be some breaking of something, breaking away of the past, a breaking of a negative habit or a initiating of something brand new or following through with something that you desire more than anything. You know, this is really a fresh start in so many ways. Usually we have a fresh start with every new moon, and then the Aries new moon is in particularly very important, being the first sign. But because it falls within hours of the equinox, this is really something. It is a big deal and presents a lot of exciting opportunities. So you want to take advantage of that. Now, Aries is ruled by the planet Mars, which is currently in Gemini, the last few days in Gemini where Mars has been since August of 2022, because of its retrograde, it's been in Gemini for seven months. Usually it's six weeks in a sign. So it's coming to the end of that seven-month Gemini visitation and creating a square to this new moon. And because Mars is about to move into Cancer, literally four days later on the 25th, We've got a very dynamic setup here because we're needing to act. This is really this whole week is about getting your ducks in a row. I want to point out as well that Pluto and Pluto and Mars have a very close connection to each other. Pluto is moving from Capricorn into Aquarius on the 23rd. So two days after this new moon. Now, why are Pluto and Mars so connected? Well, they're co-rulers of Scorpio. Mars is the original ruler. Pluto is the modern ruler. So both of these planets, Pluto and Mars, are leaving their respective signs within two days of each other, 23rd and 25th of March. And it follows this equinox and new moon. So you can see we have this week of incredible shifts in front of us. And as it happens, the moon is square to Mars, the sun is square to Mars, and this is very creative energy. It is 
so powerful that you need to channel it into something. And you will make a lot of progress if you channel it in a very consciously directed way. However, if you don't channel it, you may feel impatient or nervous energy or just aggressive. There's something in you that needs to get out, right? So the best way to handle this energy is to pay attention to how you're feeling and to express yourself. Why? Because Mars is still in Gemini, the sign ruled by Mercury. Mercury is actually conjunct this new moon. Mercury is all about communication and speaking. So Mars and Gemini square the new moon. Gemini is ruled by Mercury. Mercury's conjunct meaning merged with the sun and moon. Mercury's at five degrees Aries. So that means you gotta express yourself. You gotta speak. And why is speaking a big deal? Well, when we hold things in or when we're in a bind, if we can't talk ourselves through it, it does tend to get stuck in our mind and, you know, can turn into a repetitive mantra that is not helpful for us. So, so Aries is a fire sign. Aries is being fired up by Mars and Mercury. What are you fired up about? Put that front and center. Move forward. Mars square this new moon means there may be something that you need to release that is causing some tension. Now, the sun and moon are merged with Mercury. Mercury's at five degrees Aries. That means five degrees is fast moving, quick decisions, and also exploring. So you're going to have fast moving thoughts and speak out loud when your mind gets ahead of itself. When you talk out loud, it's like switching the channel. You're turning the dial by stopping the thinking and verbalizing what it is you need to hear. So if you're feeling in any way out of sorts, because this square to Mars is very, very powerful, right? It will bring things up in order to purge because we're going through a new beginning. We're shifting. So if you feel that way, you can reassure yourself by talking out loud, by saying, it's okay. This is just energy that I'm wanting to attach to. And you just say that and you talk your way through it out loud. You know, the mind is in control of the body. When you think and when you say things, your body hears it. Every cell of your body hears it. So really talk things out loud as if you are creator, because you are a spark of mother, father, creator. So let creator talk to your mind and clear your mind, because that's, you are consciousness. And Talking self-love is learning to love. And, you know, the mind has so many limitations. You know, it does the hamster wheel stuff and it gets caught in this programming loop. And then comes inevitably the self-judgment because you don't feel connected. So you judge yourself for not feeling connected inevitably and you feel limited. 
and you feel like you lack things. And that's all the mind. As soon as you step into action, Mars, Aries, do something, speak, channel, and try to see God in everything, then you let yourself love everything that's out there. And that love is releasing what is dying anyway. So let yourself love that which is releasing and dying by itself. And know that during these times where things are shifting, where the consciousness is being raised, everything is transforming and many things are dying away at the same time that they're expanding which is why things can get confusing at times because we are wondering, well, how do I navigate something that is ending and beginning at the same time? You see, this moment in this year that we're in, 2023, has been set up with the equinox, the new moon in Aries, the first sign at zero degrees, right before Pluto moves after so many years, 2008, in Capricorn, and moves and changes signs into Aquarius. And then Mars is incredibly invested in Aries being the ruler, moves out of Gemini into Cancer four days after this new moon. I mean, this is just a time where the letting go process and the new beginnings process are coming together. So it's the dying at the same time as the expanding And that the mind cannot understand, that the mind just has to trust and be talked through. And so that is the Aries awakening here. You want to surrender to it. You want to definitely act. And you want to understand that Mars, along with Mars's significant other Venus, you know, they work together, this Mars-Venus energy, they're transforming how we are looking at life right now. There are so many incredible opportunities to see the beauty in everything and to see the passion in how that beauty is created. So the action and the receptivity. And this particular new moon is at the zero point of life, the zero degree point, the first degree of the zodiac. So it's it's really pressing the restart button. And I also want to say because Mars is at 28 degrees in Gemini, 28 reduces to 10. 2 plus 8 is 10 and 10 is 1. So there's a new beginnings with the Mars energy, which represents new beginnings. And there's no turning back now. This is literally the time for you to say, I don't have a way to know how to navigate the energies. All I have is this. I have my heart. I have my feelings. I have my voice. And I have my way of just saying, if I don't know what's going on, I'm just going to sit with it, feel it through, listen, speak it, say whatever comes through, right? That is creator energy moving through you, helping you navigate the energy that is in play, that is undefinable, beyond comprehension with the limited mind. It truly is just being present. So 
going back to Venus and Mars, they represent the divine feminine and sacred masculine. And the letters for Venus and Mars, V and M, are very, very powerful letters. They literally are connected in a very deeply spiritual way. And they combine what the divine feminine and sacred masculine actually mean. And they mirror each other as well. And all of this, including the number 13, which is connected to Venus, the 13 phases of Venus, the 13 phases of the moon, and how we're moving from aggressiveness into assertiveness. That's the Mars side of the equation. You know, everything is being healed and all of that I cover in a free webinar and masterclass at venusmarscode.com. So if you want to learn about the five-pointed star of Venus, the secret meaning of letters V and M, the origins of the Mayan calendar, the 13 phases of Venus, how we're moving from aggressiveness into assertiveness, there's a big difference. All of these are in play now. And this Aries new moon ruled by Mars, being squared by Mars, is playing a big role in helping us to bring that incredible balance. So you can watch it all absolutely free at venusmarscode.com. And meanwhile, I wish you the most beautiful Aries new moon, a beautiful beginning of the horoscope year and a beautiful equinox as well. And send you lots and lots of love. I'll see you next week. conference call and the number is uh, 720-716-7301 and the pin code is 353863 pound. See you in about an hour. Uh, come to the conference call. Satnam. Yeah. Good music. Thank you. Okay, we're going to finish where we started, left off, everyone. Okay. Uh, what's it called again, darling? Um, Expand your consciousness. Yes. Yes. Here we go. There's not too much left. But we'll no. finish. Here we go. Are the elders that have come to set the stage, so to speak, um, for humanity to be here. And they exist in multidimensional realms. And, of course, they're here to help us understand our multidimensionality. And so that really came in strong for me in 2008. And over the years, uh, working with people individually and doing some retreats and classes to expose people to this consciousness led me to the place where I am now, which was four years ago, the um, the whales came in and I started to work with the, the I call the cosmic whales, the white whales. There are only 12 of them on our planet. And they told me in uh, actually through my partner, Puda, 
in 2011, they would return to the planet on March 3rd, 2012. And we were to go to Kauai to the Stargate there, which I didn't know about at the time. And we were to receive them back to the planet. And then they would come back and they would begin to teach us how to activate our light body in an accelerated fashion for those that are ready to prepare for ascension and to move the timeline along. And it was a pretty big statement. It was a pretty big mission to take on. But I called a lot of people, including Grandma Chandra and other people I respected. And every single one of them said, not only is this true, we're supposed to go with you. <laughs> so we ended up with, I think, 68 people uh, going to Anahola on the island of Kauai for a week-long retreat to greet the white whales and to rediscover another level of Lemuria, which was the first golden age. And so over the next year, the, the white whales came in uh, kind of into my office one by one, and they told me that they were going to have a physical form that they didn't yet have. Only one white whale had a physical form, and that was Migaloo in Australia, and that they would come back and they would teach us about light body activations is what they call it. They said in order for us to uh, uh, ascend and to expand, continue to expand our consciousness as individuals, we have to carry more light and that different uh, processes that they could give us different templates would assist the body in acclimating and holding that light. And, of course, what is light? Light is wisdom. Light is, you know, energy. It's the true self. So we are transferring, as many of you know now, the carbon-based molecule, the water body, into a crystalline body. And uh, I know one of our speakers is Patricia Cotarobo. She speaks on that. Also, that we're acclimating uh, and energizing and calibrating the 12 strands of DNA, not just the two that science is aware of. So the dolphins and whales have that as part of their package that the creator has given them to help calibrate the DNA, particularly the DNA that's, I would say, dormant, that it's been activated in other lifetimes. So we're storing a lot of mastery that's not activated in this life. And once we work with them, those elements of mastery that your higher self gives permission for will be activated. And people take on all these wonderful new gifts in the sense of very, very quickly after working with the whales. And they're able to achieve more of what brings them great joy in their mission. So they asked me actually to share a little message with you. Um, it's it's profound. I mean, I do many, many messages and channels from both the dolphins and whales and also from my partner. Um, but this I think you'll enjoy. Okay, This is from the great whales. Beloved humans, we are your elders and we are the molecular librarians of Earth's history. We embody conscious creation and we have the experience and the intention to assist you with core level healing. It is our intention to assist humanity in claiming your mastery and restoring your physical forms to radiant health. As you awaken your dormant DNA, you will naturally evolve into awakened geniuses. You will then live and create from your hearts and communities across the globe where you change the outdated and broken structures of medicine, of education, of government, and sustainable living. Connect with us now and we will accelerate your intention to evolve We are solution energy. We are the great whales and we are your elders. We represent the cetacean nations of earth and we are cosmic creators. Namaste. So I love that message. I think it says so much in just a few words about who they are. So it's been my great joy, my desire and my honor to continue to share their wisdom. Um, Almost five years ago now, I created what is called with their with their help. Uh, the Whale and Dolphin Energy Light Medicine School. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Whale and Dolphin Energy Light Medicine. And we're training um, other people. Uh, we're actually all over the world now. We're in 13 countries um, to become facilitators of these templates that the whales have given us and also the, the DNA activations the dolphins have given us. And they're becoming professional certified practitioners in the arts that the whales are literally teaching us. 
So it's becoming very deeply connected to the origins of the planet and where we were and all, of course, where we're headed and, of course, where we're going. And it's so, so loving and so beautiful. And we're so blessed to see what I call miracles almost every day or every time we work with someone. Um, it's a very accelerated type of healing. So we encourage you to, to check that out. And uh, during the event next week, everyone's going to receive a well healing, a light, a light code activation, actually. And, of course, you'll get to hear some some words from my uh, from my partner who's literally um here. Hold on here. Oh, your camera's off, Lori. There it is. Yeah, I, I see. Sorry about that. I was going to take off the background. So, um, oh, so you can show Huda. Yeah. Yeah, she wants to say hi. Okay. This being truly is my partner. Um, she's in a cat body, but uh, you know we're fully telepathic, and she's actually just turned 15 years old in this body, and she's been with me. Since that first experience I told you about with Pootie, where I learned to talk to the dolphins, and that was in 1996. So we've been at this a while, but the soul continues to come back, and she continues to teach, and we're fully telepathic, and many people are. She's very easy to communicate with. Uh, if you were here in the physical with us, you wanted to come for a whale healing, she would lie right on your body. She's uh, She likes to physically as well as etherically work right alongside the whales. Uh, she works with dark crystals and She's teaching classes, actually, some through Lorenz Network on cosmology and galactic lineage. She has that wisdom. So I've learned so much about Hollow Earth and about, you know, the different uh, starseed races uh, that seeded us what, 204,000 years ago, she says. So it's pretty exciting to have that that knowledge and that wisdom. And she's just, she's actually the purest, most loving being I've ever had the chance to really live with and work with. And, and because she can see she loves the camera, she loves to travel. <laughs> She's been all over the world with me, I think, to Hawaii about 10 times, and to the Caribbean, to Mexico, to Canada. And uh, we've been really blessed to work with um, Cryon. They, they host us quite often. So so we'll be presenting together, won't we, honey? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so this is Master Kapu, uh, the aspect of Seth. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Beautiful. Pretty cool. So thanks, Lorraine. Wow, really, really wonderful and so special. And um, we thank everyone for being here and joining us today. And I want to just say in the, in the Zoom chat box, I am putting a link that is a special link so that you get some extra bonuses if you choose to sign up and check it out. Um, it's really going to be a beautiful time and we look forward to seeing everybody there. I wanted to ask our um, panelists here, William and Emmanuel, um, as we say goodbye, you can each take another quick moment. Emmanuel, we'll start with you. Final thoughts. Mm. Thank you. Mm, Thank you again for today. And uh, wherever you are right now, Just take a moment, place your hand over your heart and just really be grateful to yourself. Just be grateful Mm -hmm. to your whole essence, your whole being, even the parts that sometimes Mm -hmm. you feel, you know, a little hard to love or like or, you know, be able to be grateful for. I want you to just be grateful for them because they got you here. That part of you deserves the right to be acknowledged and loved and honored by you. This is what healing is about. This is what we're going to be talking about 
during the the session, just really loving and honoring all of ourselves in such a way where you can bring miracles and expansion and, you know, all the things that you truly desire are already here. And it starts with you showing up for yourself. So have a beautiful day, be with this energy. And thank you all for allowing us to be here. Thank you, Emmanuel. <laughs> thank you. Beautiful. And William. Yeah. So right now, let's just, once again, close our eyes, focus our eyes towards the third eye, bring our consciousness, your hands to the heart. And let's just, as we, as we're here, hmm. you know, we're focusing the eyes towards the third eye with the eyelids closed with our hands over the heart and connecting with the heart because it has you break energy with the thought forms. So where now we become more aware that the thoughts are outside of you, constantly spiraling and spiraling outside and around you. So right now, let's just take a nice slow deep breath in through your nose. We're about to count to 12, all the way down to below your navel. Just hold there for the count of 12 or just for however long you can. And then... Like you're trying to blow out a tea light candle, just exhale through the mouth as slow as you can. And as we're exhaling, you know, let's remind ourselves. I am loved, loving, and lovable. I am love. And take another deep breath and just this time inhaling through your mouth. Feeling your whole solar plexus relax, release, your rib cage expand, your abdomen expand. Ah, a nice deep sigh, releasing all the past and all the reasons and experiences that have showed you and tried to talk you into perceiving that you're anything less than loved, loving, and lovable or love. And right now, let's just ask ourselves, as I am loved, loving, and lovable, I am love. What is it that I'm willing to accept within my life? How am I willing to be treated? What am I, or what have I been, and what am I now willing to accept to be treated with, or talked to, or experiencing? within myself, through myself, or and even within and through my life stream. What right here, right now, have I been letting be okay that maybe now is just not really all that okay? You can tell right now in your solar plexus if it's either really loose, open, relaxed, where you're, ah, I can have a deep sigh, or your organs are dropping down in the place, stepping out of fight and flight. And the parasympathetic nervous system's relaxing. Or maybe it's still tied up. And if it's still tied up, let's take another breath in through your nose, all the way down below your stomach. Stand up, put your feet shoulder width. Inhale, getting on your tiptoes. Hold, and then as you exhale through the mouth, like a deep sigh, falling back on your heels. Tilting all the organs back down into place. And it's a question only you can answer for yourself. What am I? How am I willing to be treated? 
talk to you. Not about good girl, good boy. Not about what it could have shut up. Not about your moms, your dads, partners, ex-partners, or anything to that effect. Employee, employer. As a whole right now, as creator expressing through carne. You of and as creator have total power over what you're willing to accept into your mind, your body, and your world. And of course, you have total power over what you're not willing to accept within, through, and around you in the world. Your ones get confused with accepting and allowing. Allowing is where there's a fine line between allowing and martyrdom. There's a fine line between accepting it and being walked on and martyrdom. Like, smile, grin, and bear it. That still comes up as martyrdom. And now, actually take the other breath, just relax, decompress. <sighs> this is where the ego thought forms kick in. All those deities that say, well, you deserve it. Well, you just got to accept it. Well, you might lose your job. Well, blah, 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 blah. All these survival justifications. But I guarantee you, when you say enough, the universe is going to jump in like never before. New opportunities are going to present for you all around you. Doors are going to open up like the doors are flying off the hinges to support you. Because you see, you're working back all your energy, all your power, all your soul fragmentations to your to yourself. You're working all back, cleared and purified. And this is where the universe does jump in. And support you because now you're following your heart, your heart, your divinity, and now even your guides, your angelic realms, archangelic realms, and ascended host realms are now literally supporting you because now you're not putting them on hold by allowing yourself to be mistreated and put on hold. You're coming out of the basement. You're coming out of all the hiding places. And you're shining the light in which you are because you are loved, loving, and lovable because you are love. And there's no justification, excuse, or reason that could factually be anything different. Namaste. Thank you. Loren, do you have any closing remarks or comments? Wow, I just want to say that I'm floating and we feel so light. Again, I'll repeat that this has been an activation and what a gift for everyone. We invite everyone to join us. As you can see, the beautiful speakers that were here today will be joining us along with Patricia Diane Kola-Robles and Rita Melchizedek, Elizabeth Wood, beautiful beings that are here on a mission to assist you in stepping into your mission and your power and your beingness of light in service for new earth. So thank you everyone for being here. We love you and we thank you for your bright light. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Namaste.
Okay, that program happened today that they were talking about. Yeah. Oh, and cost money to watch it. Well, it'll be around. Mm-hmm. Just calling all angels to make the contribution so we can finish paying for BBS radio next Tuesday by 296.50 next Tuesday and we have $400 we owe ETR our repair friend somebody said he's probably an ET too and he said yeah that's true he pretty much is he's a wonderful human being that's what I can say so uh, I want to just play a little clip. This is of Mehdi Hassan with um, with um, it's not Chris Hayes. It's this other gentleman that took Chris Hayes' place that mm-hmm. is usually on between six and eight on Saturday and Sundays. Uh, but that didn't happen today because mm. Dish Network has been completely off the air forever <laughs> since since four minutes to seven this morning. Mm. What can I say? But uh, we got to turn the sound. Such a lot when a decade of war took the lives of thousands of American troops. 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, one of the most seismic events in recent U.S. and world history. Invasion would turn into a decade of war, took the lives of thousands of American troops, injured thousands of others, and took the lives of tens of thousands of Iraqi civilians, destroyed entire areas of Iraq. It cost the U.S. government trillions of dollars, fundamentally changed both the Middle East to this day, as well as domestic politics. In his show tonight, my colleague Mehdi Hassan takes a look back at the Iraq war and how the lack of accountability for the people who started it still impacts the world today. Thanks to George W. Bush and thanks to our tolerance of our indulgence of George W. Bush, America has no real standing or credibility when it comes to calling out the crimes of Vladimir Putin in Ukraine today. And yet, in the words of George W. Bush today, Ukraine, like Iraq, has just become another laugh line. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Correct. Anyway. <laughs> As you saw in that clip from Maddie and on his show, I'm one of guest hosts on this show, which I always love. Maddie is one of the most supremely talented public communicators we have and an incredible debater to boot. And in fact, he has just written a book about how you can be as well called Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. And Mehdi Hassan, the host of MSNBC's Mehdi Hassan Show, joins me now. Um, Mehdi, I love your book, which is both a delight to read and also does share some of your specific skills, which I think you have a unique aptitude and talent for that aren't necessarily transferable. Um, Why do you think it's important that people learn the basics or think in a sort of rigorous way about the project of persuasion and public communicating. First of all, Chris, thank you for your kind words. I do think a lot of the skills that I have, that you have, that those of us who work in television and the media have, are transferable, which is why I wrote the book. And I do believe that we all need to get better at this stuff. And the book is not just about 
you know, the ability to speak well, the ability to critique an opponent's argument or an interviewee's position. It's also about critical thinking. It's also about thinking uh, through an argument, understanding where the evidence comes from, poking holes. I think we could all do better as critical thinkers in a time when social media silos and bubbles have cut us off from one another, when group think is the norm and we're polarized as a nation. And you just mentioned Iraq and the 20th anniversary. I mean, if the media had done a better job, if the American public had done a better job, of thinking through the arguments, of examining rigorously what Bush and Blair and others were saying, maybe hundreds of thousands of Iraqis would still be alive today. Yeah, you know, that's a really important point. And it's one I come back to, and it's a, it's something that I think of, I believe more in now than ever, is the importance of persuasion and the importance of argumentation in democratic politics. Because really what we do in democratic politics, if it's functioning in a liberal democracy, is we argue with each other. And you know, the public sees the argument as part of the argument, and we try to kind of wrestle our way towards something true. But I think there's other people who think, like, that doesn't matter, that it's ridiculous and indulgent to think debate matters. What do you, what do you think about that? So I have to, I've had to wrestle with this too, Chris, like you have. In the age of Trump, can you persuade people? Are people still open to facts in the age of alternative facts? Um, and I think the answer is fewer than before, but still enough to make a difference. And I think yeah. the 2020 election, the 2018 midterms, a testimony to that. We saw that people, you know, the Democrats were able to peel away some people in the middle uh, and make a difference in the ballot box, make a difference in terms of control of the Senate, et cetera, et cetera. So I still do believe in facts. I believe in argument. I wouldn't have written the book if I did it. I wouldn't do the job I do, and nor would you if we didn't believe that we could persuade people and that we could make the case. Uh, but it's hard, and that's why I wrote the book. It's hard in an age where you have gaslighters, you have BS merchants, you have what I call in the book gish gallopers, just degrading the public discourse, just serial liars. And those of us who do believe in facts and reality, who do believe in empirical evidence, we have to learn how to push back. We have to be able not just to say, well, I've got the facts on my side. That's not enough. You have to be able to convey the facts in a persuasive and convincing way. And there are skills that allow you to do that. Yeah, and I think one thing that I find really important and useful and was actually clarified for me when I was reading your book is, making categories between things to debate and things not to debate. So, you know, did the American Rescue Plan, which was several trillion dollars, uh, accelerate inflation by putting a lot of money in people's pockets when, when demand was already high? That's a debatable proposition. I, I don't think it did, but there's people make the case and there's evidence to support it. Did it, Silicon Valley Bank fail because it was too woke? It's not a thing. It's just that that's a that's bait. It's trolling. It's it, yeah. so and the, that's the question to me is like how you make those distinctions in your head, right? Between like what's the thing? That, okay, we're having an argument here. You have reasons. I have reasons. Yeah. And then Silicon Valley Bank was too woke category. Yeah, I've said this before. To uh, you know, I'll say it again on your show. I wouldn't have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene on my show, even though it would get great clicks and go viral, because it's, there's no point arguing with people who are bad faith actors right. and don't even believe half the stuff they say. Uh, the book is all about good faith argument. Yes. Argument gets a bad name, debate gets a bad rap, because bad faith actors have ruined it for the rest of us. When in fact, going back to ancient Greece, as I do in the book, it's always been the way you reach the truth. If you're engaged with truthful people, I'm not going to debate the Marjorie Taylor Greens or the Tucker Carlson as well who say one thing in public and another thing in private. Yeah, don't do bad faith debate. I'm with you with that. Walk away from that. But with everyone else, make the argument, put in the effort, even with your mad uncle at the Thanksgiving table, try and get across to him what you want to get across to him. And of course, in presidential politics and American politics, we've got to have those arguments. Otherwise, democracy can't survive. A free press can't survive.
I'm glad that you've been doing what you're doing on the 20th anniversary of Iraq, something I sort of struggled with how to think about or cover. It was so formative for me just because of the age I am, because of the time when I entered into journalism. Um, you know, there's two arguments I've seen. One is that it's it's been memory hold and forgotten. And the other is that it's so seismically important that it's sort of ubiquitous in what it does to American politics to this day in terms of trust, in terms of the dynamics that you see around the sort of establishment, around war and peace and all these questions, that it's sort of everywhere, even if it's not identified as the cause of so much of our politics. What do you think it is? I think it's both, Chris. I think we wouldn't have Donald Trump today if it wasn't for the Iraq war. Some would argue we wouldn't have the financial crisis in 08 without the, without Iraq. We wouldn't have the whole crisis in our media and faith without the Iraq war. Yeah. Not, not a road to go back to Iraq. I'm the same age as you, Chris. Same formative experience. Uh, being on those marches in 2003. Look. There's been no accountability. That's why I devoted my show to Iraq today. You look at the people. They're all still knocking around. They've all failed upwards. George W. Bush has been rehabilitated. He's swapping cough drops with Michelle Obama. He's ah! painting paintings. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis are dead. 4,000 Americans plus soldiers are dead. Tens of thousands injured. It's just, it's a scandal that people have not been held to account for the greatest crime in the 21st century. I agree with that 100%. Many Hassan, uh, whose brand new book, Win Every Argument, is out now. It's a really, really great read. Pick it up, get it for someone you love, know uh, who can use it. Many thanks, Many. Thanks. That is all in on this Thursday night. Alex Wagner tonight starts. Oh, oh what, Robert? Oh. Uh, should I do Marianne Williamson first? Okay. And then that? She had something good to say. She did. Yeah. Okay, I don't have the beginning of this, but it's the Aware Show with Lisa Gar and Marianne Williamson, and we're just going to start where I caught it. And so it's about the first 15 minutes or so. It's not there, but here we go with what's there. The middle of it, and it's the same story that she had thought so many years ago. And and I have talked to her even before East Palestine and heard her say things have only gotten worse so that we're going to make them better. Yes. And see, that's an interesting conversation about politics because you know what the system says? Great. Have a hit movie. We're fine with that. Have Julia Roberts in the movie. Think about awareness. Yes. And they don't mind that. What they mind is if somebody runs for office and seeks to change it within the system. Yes, and you have you have definitely encountered an enormous amount of controversy around this, and you're a very strong woman. Um, you told a story to us once um, about the fireside chats that we can used to have about the aluminum, and if you could share that, it, it's really a very it's a beautiful story. Well, when I was a child, my mother used to talk about the fireside chats that uh, FDR would have had. So I knew the basic outline that people didn't have televisions yet. They had radios, and the president used to get on, and everybody would sit around the radio and listen to what he had to say. What I had not realized until years later in reading about it was the brilliant strategy involved there. And something very similar happened with Lincoln. Lincoln and and Roosevelt, and I suppose all great presidents, but those two really stand out, obviously, in their greatness, knew that they could not make big moves unless they were able to convince the people 
that the moves were a good idea. So even getting into the, and that was true, people getting into the Civil War, that was true getting people into World War II. People retired after World War I, they didn't want any more war, and so forth. So once the war started, we didn't have an army. Uh, Britain didn't have an army, and Hitler had been working for five years to build up his army, and every time he invaded a country, he was able to absorb their industrial capacity. So we didn't have, not only did we not have an army, we did not have the industrial capacity to um, build the tanks and the ships and the submarines and the airplanes that we needed. So uh, Roosevelt would have these fireside chats, and he would say to people, I want you to get them back, because I'm going to talk to you about places you've never heard of. People buy, go buy maps, and he'd say, now, look over on the left-hand corner, because this is what my problem is. I want to build airplanes to keep your son safe, but I can't, because I don't have the rubber for the tires. Now, see that place up there? It's where all the rubber is. I need you to send me your fire hoses. I need you to send me your old tires. We're going to have to put together the rubber so that I can build the, the planes so that we can beat them so your sons will come home safe. And wow. people would send him tons. Another one he would do is, I want to build those tanks to keep your sons safe, but I don't have the aluminum. I need your pots and pans. I need all it. Go, go into your shed. Go into your barn. And, and even with the rubber, people would send him like these huge rubber band balls. In other words, he was able. He he enrolled people, and I think that that's a. We need to enroll people in that same kind of way in order to create the mass mobilization to shift from a dirty economy to a clean economy. Mm-hmm. It's going to have to take the American people knowing that this has to go beyond political transaction. It has to be a movement inside the American heart to take us to a place where we are willing to mobilize for the, that kind of a shift on that kind of a level with that kind of speed. You know, I think about doing that in modern times, and that's what we have, what we see happening in social media where we see politicians or any type of movement go towards social media to really uh, motivate people, masses. And yet, what was the movie that was done about how the um, social media was used? Oh, yeah. Well, Social Dilemma, there was another one. Uh, John knows the name of it. But it was incredibly telling about how social media was actually manipulated to get people's votes. And it's very true. You can absolutely do that. It's not, I wish it was the same. Send me your rubber to this address and we'll collect it for you. It's a different environment. But yet the premise is the same, Marianne, as you speak. It is about the story. It is about how to enroll people into the story where it touches them in their hearts where it makes sense to them in their families and communities. That's what matters. And, you know, talking about the movie Social Dilemma, that was even just about the way the algorithms uh, manipulate people. Now, did you hear the New York Times reporter talking about this Ming, uh, Bing, Bing? Yes. And, And did you know, not only did this artificial intelligence try to get the man to leave his wife, but did you read what happened after he he uh published the article and went on television about it? No. 
So you know that this New York Times reporter was tinkering around with Bing because it's the newest AI thing, and all of a sudden this thing starts saying, I really love you, we really got a connection, why don't you leave your wife? And so this man said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a tech reporter. So, I mean, I can handle this. I have a mental structure to handle this. I love my wife. Everything's fine. So, but I, this left me rattled. So he wrote an article about it, and he and he went on television. Well, what happened after that was one day, Bing popped up and said, "You were an evil man to have done that to me. Ooh. You were just like Hitler." And mm-hmm. oh my God, oh, uh-huh. the AI. Wow. And, and so we're living at a time now with things like that where this is what happens when money is made with no consideration of ethics, no consideration of morality. You know, Adam Smith was the primary architect of, architect of free market capitalism. And he said it cannot exist outside an ethical context. Mm-hmm. That anyone is making money off that. They need to shut that thing down. Mm-hmm. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And that's where we're living. We have to develop within ourselves the ethical center, the realization that in order to live meaningful lives, in order to be righteous people, we can't make how much money we make the bottom line. It's a convenience versus ethics conversation that we ha- I did a whole interview about AI. And, yes, it's very true, but it also is very indicative of what we are experiencing in our story of America. Is it convenient to listen to someone that has the right answers? Is it convenient to do the research, to actually look at the sources of the articles, to actually do the the dirty work that it takes, the groundwork, I should say, that it takes to discover your own opinion within the story and make educated choices? You know, the brain is a muscle, and we're shrinking it. Have you noticed, if you've been in the car with a friend, and you're driving somewhere, that you absolutely know that your friend knows how to drive to? Your friend has driven there several times, and they're, yet they're watching the thing on their tablet telling them where to turn. Oh, yes, yes. And, I mean, we, we, we're doing everything to not use our brains now. It, it concerns me that we don't even teach children how to write cursive. It's like, in order to be convenient... Convenience is defined as my not having to work at it at all. As about AI, these kids having AI write the school paper. Mm-hmm. Well, great, you got a better grade, but you also failed to do the work that would enable you In to do own critical thought processes. I mean, it's like we're driving ourselves into a new dark ages. Unless we awaken, and I do think we're living simultaneously to all that at a time of awakening. That's the way you show. Do you feel that we're... You in your part, Lisa. <laughs> I mean, for 20 years, I've been doing this and more. And I've seen people shift. You helped me shift from a conversation of, oh, I'm too spiritual for politics. And then I got into, you said, let me help you. Let me empower you that you're not too spiritual for politics. Read the news. Get into this conversation with me. could never have had this conversation with you 10 years ago. And I have always been grateful for you to empower me to have at least my version of holding my own in a political conversation because all I need to do is look around me at the injustices that I see with the people that are unhoused on the streets around me and those that are struggling with paying rent and increased you know, the tuition, oh, the uh, don't even get me started on the big business of higher education 
and how much of a big business it is that the um, with the disguise that they're trying to educate our children. And let's not forget that until the 1960s, higher education was tuition free or very, very, very little. I mean, when when I was growing up, when I was a little girl, UCLA was something like fifty dollars a semester. Oh no, it's twenty five thousand dollars a year now, and they mostly take people that are out of state because are out of the country um, in order to um, because they make more for um, tuition if somebody is an international student, which kicks out the American students. And it was it's all over the news. News. It's something that is a very well known fact. It's a all education is right now. I've seen as a as a big business, and I do feel that your whole idea of tuition free college makes sense. But I have to ask, who would pay for it? They are still businesses. Well, they are still businesses, however, but they should not be businesses like that. You know, whenever you have something like um, helping people have an education, that right there stimulates the economy because when someone has a higher education, they will statistically. This sets them up statistically to make more money, to create more businesses. It gives them the skills to contribute to the economy. So the point is now what we're paying. What we're paying is like who's going to pay for universal health care. What we would pay for universal health care is nothing compared to the money that people are spending on, on their health care right now. Yes. Let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the social injustice of the African-American communities in terms of health care and how that there are, oh my goodness, I just did an interview about some of the experimentation that was done and that was the, what was Tuskegee experience, experiments, and there's so much that is being done to marginalize communities, specifically the African-American community, that we can't Get that won't sustain the African American community. There's no education there, and there's second-rate doctors, and there's no access to medication, and the medications are overprescribed when they're not needed. Natural health care remedies are not even on the table. How do we even go about solving that disparity? Well, first of all, when it comes to one in four Americans who lack um, health care, 68,000 Americans who die every year of lack of health care, the $88 billion in medical debt in this country, um, the $18 million that we've talked about that, that um, cannot afford to fulfill their prescriptions, they are not only black people. I mean, the issue of economic uh, disadvantage in this country is white and black people. So we want to be clear about that. The high, among black people, you have a higher percentage of lack of access to health care and education. But if you look at the broad scope of people who lack access to uh, health care and education, it is far more white people. It is not about left versus right, and it's not about black versus white. It's about powerful versus powerless. Yeah. So when you talk about that transfer of wealth, the problem is that now those who own, have that private wealth, the hands of the proverbial 1%, have an easy access to um, health care, have an easy access to education. Now, when it comes to black people in America, when you look compared to my, uh, to my childhood, you know, people can say, well, look at Tyler Perry, look at Magic Johnson, look at Oprah Winfrey, look at uh, any number of brilliant black 
people in America who who have become billionaires, for instance. The argument, so that, it could be argued, and it should be argued, hey, that's a whole lot better than it was, you know, when Bessie Smith died because of, even though she was so famous, the hospital, they wouldn't even take her. The point there is that making it in America, let's say as a black citizen, you shouldn't have to be a genius. You shouldn't have to be a brilliant artist. You shouldn't have to be a brilliant musician. You shouldn't have to be a, a brilliant athlete or whatever. It shouldn't be an anomaly. It should be for every single American. And that's really the whole point of all this. All men are created equal. All men endowed with inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In the meantime, if we're going to right the ship, as it were, so that that terrible gap between black and white in terms of economic opportunity um, is 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 closed. We're going to need um, three things. We're going to need reparations. We're going to need what's called baby bonds, and we're going to need help given to historically black colleges. Yes, um, baby bonds. What are those? Baby bonds is when a, a child is born, and there is money put aside. That is that child's money. It will accrue with time. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Money comes due when that child is 18 years old, and the money can be used for educational purposes, or the money can be used to buy a home, or the money could be used to uh, start a business. So I don't know if we'll be 18 or 21. Many states, several states are actually working on the baby bond issue right now. And it would be that those people from more disadvantaged homes would be given, the, I mean, the, the, the son or daughter of a zillionaire is not going to be given a baby bond. Right. But that's one of the ways that that's one of the conversations on the table for how to choose, how to close, one of the ways to close the economic gap between black and white Americans. That is a brilliant solution. And, and I love that. And I love also that you said more funding to uh, black colleges okay. and, and reparations. And I know that there's a lot of, you've, you know, received a lot of controversy from a lot of people saying, where are we going to get the money from? What, you know, this isn't something that we could afford. It, it would go back into the taxpayers' hands, and that's the fight. Is because so the people who say that usually in loud public voices know better, but they're involved in a propaganda campaign. None of that is anything compared to the multi-billion-dollar subsidies that we give now to industries that are already making billions of dollars. I'll give you an example. So. Um, yeah, um, we give billions of dollars in subsidies to pharmaceutical companies, and then they turn around and price gouge the American people whose tax dollars actually pay for the development of those medicines. Why are we paying multi-billion dollar subsidies to oil and gas, which is making hundreds of billions of dollars? Why? So if people are afraid of being, that they're being ripped off, that's who they're being ripped off by. And they're being ripped off by the fact that in 2017, there was a tax cut $2 trillion tax cut that gave 83 cents of every dollar to the top, top earners and, uh, and uh, corporations in this country. So people are being told you're being ripped off by black people, you're being ripped off by poor people. I'm sorry to put it bluntly, but you're being ripped off by the rich in this country, not by right, right. And the bailouts and the golden parachutes and all the things that we heard about on the news that goes away yeah. so quickly. A person of conscience does not want to think that their ability to create wealth and opportunity in their life is at the expense of other people having the chance to. That's the issue. The issue is 
Then in the 1970s, the average American worker, I think, did we discuss that already? Could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford a vacation. Right. Send their kids to college. What this massive transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the top 1% has done is to destroy America's middle class. Mm-hmm. 100%. 20% of people were thriving in your country and have 80% of people who are just struggling to survive on a daily basis. That's right. an unsustainable thing. What are we going to do about that? So many people can't afford homes, can't afford rent, can't afford, um, you know, to, to even buy a house. Well, what we're going to do is ha- we have to do those things which will right the economic ship, and that is economic, fundamental economic reform, rather than just tinkering around the edges. That would mean universal health care, free college tuition uh, at uh, h- higher education and tech schools. It would mean free child care. It would mean uh, uh, family paid leave. It would mean and sick pay, and it would mean a livable wage. And in order to get that done, I think the most important thing to do uh, is to elect a president who understands that. And then if that president has the people in Congress uh, who will go along with that president, then those things will be accomplished. And even if that president does not have the people in Congress who will go along with it, that president would have the power of the bully pulpit. And could have it. Do you feel that our current president has attempted to create that type of awareness and balance or not? Uh, this president had um, campaigned on the idea of raising the minimum wage, which he did for federal workers. But when it came to raising it all the way for everyone, uh, the parliamentarian uh, argued against it. And so he sort of hid behind the skirts of the parliamentarian. It's very important to remember the Republicans would never have allowed the parliamentarian to stop them if they wanted something done. Another thing that happened on the president's watch is that there, they did uh, pass a, a child tax credit, which cut child poverty in half. And then when that expired, there was no effort to permanentize that. Now, I'm a Democrat, so I'm, I'm not suggesting that it wouldn't have been far worse had the Republicans in power now uh, had, the, um, uh, had the leverage. But that cannot be our excuse forever. The Democrats will not win in 2024 just by saying, yeah, but we're not them. We're not as bad as them. Right. So this president deserves credit for where credit is due, but I do not believe that this president will be able to beat the uh, Republicans in 2024 because his message is apparently going to be that the economy is doing well. And that simply contradicts the visceral experience of the majority of Americans. Absolutely. That American people think differently. It's the statistics. I mean, they're right there. It is statistically not the case. Well, I so appreciate your time and your incredible knowledge, stories, especially about us, about the American people, and about how we are needing a reform. We are able to do it. It is possible. There are pros and cons to everything. And I just appreciate your time and your knowledge, especially what you've taught me over the years. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate your knowledge. I appreciate your kindness. I appreciate your generosity and your friendship. So thank you for everything you do for everybody, and thank you for what you do for me. Absolutely, absolutely. We are going to continue the conversation here by watching this clip that Mary Ann has, her speaking on something that is very, very near and dear to my heart. Take a look. We have to stand for the world that we want, not just to cry the world that we don't want. 
And so we have to imagine and articulate what a genuine and sustainable world will, would be. What is genuine, genuine and sustainable policies when it comes to the environment? What are genuine and sustainable policies when it comes to poverty and poverty eradication? What are genuinely sustainable criminal policies? What are genuinely sustainable economic policies, environmental policies, personal ways of being? Not just what we don't want, but what we do want. The reason we got so much of what we don't want is because we had not been proactive at cultivating what we do want. And the reason we weren't was we thought other people were handling that. And we were just thinking about building our own lives, what we wanted it to be. We were so childish collectively. Well, other people are handling that. Other people are political. I'm not political. Really? I've been saying for a very long time, good luck with all that. You're drinking your green juice, gluten-free. Good luck with that because it'll poison in the water. And the poisoning the sky, the poisoning the earth. I've been saying for so long, there is no, no public issue that will not make it to your private door. And that's why, for myself personally, people say, why don't you just stay in your lane? Your lane has to do with personal transformation. Because I saw so many people's lives up close. People who had done everything right, and yet the dark and unjust public policies were affecting them in ways that they could not just on a private basis overcome. Right. And they shouldn't have to. Not in the richest country. So we have to change this thing. We have to totally turn this ship around. It is headed for the iceberg. COVID was just one form. And it was a slap on the universe. And it wasn't a light tap either. We have to not just deal with COVID. We have to end the trajectory of dysfunction and malfeasance and greed and injustice mm-hmm. that is taking us in such an unsustainable direction. And unsustainable is not an ugly enough word for what that means. Mm-hmm. It means systems breaking down even greater than what we saw this year. Mm-hmm. But God has an answer to every problem the moment the problem occurs. That means if you download your part and you download your part and you download your part and I download my part and you learn from your arm again and you learn from your arm again and you learn from your arm again, it doesn't mean that all of us are going to be enlightened masters next year. But it means you're going to be more than you were and I'm going to be more than I was. And you're going to be wiser and you're going to be smarter and I'm going to be wiser I'm going to be smarter and we're not going to monitor each other so much and we're going to give each other a break and we're going to support each other more than tear each other down and when we hear of friends and colleagues who have dreams, big dreams, we're going to support them, proactively support them and being everything that they can be because it's only when everybody is given a greater chance to be what they can be that the human race can be what they can be. Mm-hmm. And so, right now, I want us to remember, first of all, we are putting all this negativity into these transmutational fires. And this is where the idea of a power greater than our own comes in. This is where you just ask that these things be taken away. But also, when we go into this meditative space that we're about to go into, I want you to remember what I said before, that according to the Course in Miracles, all of us have achieved a fraction of what all of us are capable of. No matter what you've achieved, you just haven't even hit your stride yet. We've all made mistakes. 
of other people. Forgiveness means knowing that behind every jerk, you know, we've all acted like, acted like jerks at various times, but there's an undeletable file within us in our consciousness, which is the truth of who we are. And the Course in Miracles, I love this. The Course says that all the things we've done that were mistakes, that deflected miracles, deflected the good that could have been in that relationship, the opportunity we could have taken advantage of in that work or whatever, the miracles we could have had are held in trust for us until we're ready to receive them. That has been Mary Williamson talking about her experience as from running in the 2020 as a, a Democratic political candidate uh, nominated for president, nomination for president. And she is, for a long time, she has been a spiritual teacher teaching for three decades about the American story. She is a historian, as you could tell, and she's author of 14 books, four of which wow. have been New York Times bestsellers. And she was the had the incredible quote from her book, her bestseller, a return to love, and her quote was, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. And that is considered an anthem for a contemporary generation of seekers, which you are. You are by even listening to and watching Free Speech TV. You are a contemporary generation of seekers, especially by watching the Aware Show on Free Speech TV. And you have grown to listen and to love the views of Democracy Now! and Tom Hartman and so many of the amazing broadcasters information that has been set forth on this network. And this is a perfect example of democracy. This network, Free Speech TV, is an incredible example of what democracy really is. It is exactly what you put into this network that you get out. It is our fun drive at this time. And we ask you to donate to this station's mission, to donate to the mission of the station to explore and expand the voices of the unheard, to expand into the movement of social justice so that we can not only raise awareness but actually take action steps to close the divide of the injustices that are being so abused in this this country. It is the mission of the station to remind us of what American democracy is all about. So I ask you to donate to Free Speech TV. You can click on the link right there, donate, and the Aware Show is right there. You'll see a donation um, during this time. If you can donate $10, $20, $50, $100, donate to the mission of the station. The nature of public television is supported by you. Okay. We got it all, but I'm just going to say, what's going on here? Public television is taken off of the Dish Network. Free Speech TV is taken off. Link TV is taken off. Uh, we got some homework. But in the meantime, Rama's is going to share something here. What are you going to play there? This is Buried Secrets of Stonehenge. Is this from last week? Yeah. All right, Buried Secrets of Stonehenge. How many minutes, honey? An hour and two minutes. Hour and two minutes. Let's go. Here we go.
everyone, and thanks for getting up early to come and uh, listen to my talk. I'm going to be talking about a secret history of Stonehenge, because we have been lied to time and time again from the Ministry of Works. In fact, the Ministry of Works, which was the early English heritage, really saw what people were doing at Stonehenge, and so they defaced the stones. I'm going to bring back the magic and show you what the archaeologists did to partly destroy some of the stones. But we're going to get going uh, with uh, this, uh, this lecture, and we're going to go back in time now, back in time to the Neolithic. The Neolithic is about 5,500 years ago, and they built these wonderful monuments. You're seeing at the moment West Kennet Longbow. That's a megalithic longbow, and inside of which there's these chambers of stone. And what I discovered through dowsing, through spiritual dowsing, is that these people had elongated skulls. And in 2015, when I discovered these elongated skulls, I didn't have the body measurements. Now I have. And I'm going to show you a long lost mythical race. Yes, there were giants around at Stonehenge. But I'm going to show you what I believe is the origins of the Tuath de Danan mythology of Ireland. This is another longbow called Wayland Smithy. Wayland Smithy is absolutely incredible. It's in Oxfordshire, and it's, again, a Neolithic monument. But these monuments were laid out, not just on lays, but have an earth currents flow down their axis line. So right, if they're invisible, but they're going right the way down. But people see earth energy as like lines on a map, and they call them lays. But research has shown, coming out of the 1930s, that Earth energies are colourful. They have a dominant colour. The dominant colour of this barrow is blue, so it can activate the throat chakra. But on the Salisbury Plain, there isn't any stone. It was all imported from places like Wales and Marlborough for the different types of stone there. So this is the Neolithic wooden earthen mound. That's what was on the Salisbury Plain. The Salisbury Plain, like I said uh, yesterday, is an area uh, about 26 miles by 26 miles, owned and run by the military, with 2,500 ancient sites on there, controlled literally by all those military establishments. So again, why is that? Wherever you have ancient sites, powerful vortex energy, you have a military presence. And these are another type of megalithic structures, where they're called dolmens, and the Tinkinswood one with the long uh, portal slab stone, that had up to 100 people in, all buried in different ways. In the Neolithic, they didn't bury the whole body. There would only be one whole body normally in all those burials. So they used to deflesh the body, take the femur bone and the skulls, and place those in, a bit like the pilot's flag. Uh, that's what they placed into the barrows. We used to have some very unusual ones, the guardians. And I'm going to show you uh, a guardian. You sometimes get them in a flex position like this, where they tie the body up in the fetal position. This is from uh, the, the Belbica culture, which is 2500 BC. And it's very tall. The femur bone is very long. So that person was probably about six foot nine, seven feet put in the flex position. But then we have the guardians. And this is a, a very old antiquarian drawing where you'd have them sitting, staring out 
into the distance. And as a kind of spiritual person that interacts with these ancient sites, and as, as a druid, you ask the guardian before you go onto the site. You ask the spirit of place and the ancestors. And once you have permission to go into the site, and it's easy, you just stand by an ancient site, and you just tune into the land, and then you, if your body pulls forward, that's a, a yes, the ancestors and these guardians have allowed you access. If you don't, it's just kind of like going into a temple uh, with, with no respect, really. So that's what we tend to practice. On the Salisbury Plain, overlooking the land. And when you're on the Salisbury Plain, and this barrow certainly overlooks the land, you're on elevated ground. It feels like the sky is very close to touch. And this is the largest long barrow, long barrow in northwest Europe. It snakes across and it had one person in it, one woman. So clearly she was probably a high priest or high priestess. And she was probably associated as well with the building of Stonehenge phase one. We'll look at the different phases later on. So when I discovered this barrow, I thought, well, who is it? Who is it? And I, like I said yesterday, these people of the past, they call to you. And if you listen very carefully, they tell you things and guide you to make discoveries. And one of those discoveries that I found was very close to Stonehenge, not on any map as well. It was on antiquarian maps, but one of the strangest burials that I have found, and I found several, some of which I'll be discussing today, was very similar to Lloyd Pye's Star Child. Because the antiquarians that dug into it wrote a report, then it was re-evaluated in the 1930s and rediscussed. And in that report, it said there was several people kind of in a circle or tied together with long skulls and they were forming a circle inside of this circle was this strange being that was described it had the eyes on the top of the head for example it had a tail and it had a crooked skeleton as well so it was kind of like that shape and they really didn't know what they'd uh, discovered so it got filed away in what's called the national monuments record office and this is where, where I find, find these type of details, which have been literally squirreled away. So what was this person? Was it a deformed human being? Was it someone from the stars? Well, we never know because the skull has gone missing. But it was definitely very, very close to Stonehenge. I think we have to be very open-minded with the people of the past. And, and question everything because no one author has all the answers anyway. Coming together like we do, we together can solve mysteries. And so uh, the, some of the information was lost and the, some of it was gained as well. And in the gain in the 1930s, the bones of this star child, as I call it, were in a high state of preservation. For example, like written here, I told you there was three skeletons. And also, on one of the bones, they said the bones of the leg were like hollow as well. So it's maybe that caused it to have a, a crooked skull, a crooked uh, spine, for example. So there's lots of these facts going on. So that's one of my first strangest burials that I found at Stonehenge, which is quite, uh, quite incredible. 
And also, if we go to Laurie Pye's information, then his was about 900 years old, whereas this one's 5,500 years old. It could be one of the earliest uh, features in the Stonehenge landscape that may not have been from this earth. So I find that really, uh, really fascinating. And it's never been found again. None of these, these unusual skulls, they get literally, like I said, pushed away. I don't know if I probably you haven't been to uh, Cambridge University, but for example, in a room like this, really, really big room, down one side you have box after box after box with skull after skull after skull, and then on the other side is all the Egyptian skulls, and they don't really know what they've got. So, we want the swords replaying again. Yes, <laughs> I know you're from the source we play. Uh, and the, these red flags mean you can't have access to, to the plane. You've got to be very careful how you navigate it. You really, really have. And these unusual burials are inside that. Yeah. So we have to imagine that you've got to navigate it. And sometimes they're open to the general public and sometimes it isn't. It's Area 51. It has hardly anybody visiting it. It has wardens. And if you go off, uh, track the wardens will get you on you're being monitored from the moment you go on to the Salisbury Plain and I took a group to meditate in the name of the ancestors on one of the barrows and literally uh, security was there within or oh, within five minutes so they're watching you all of the time so yeah these are some of the uh, tanks there that you find as you drive across the plane this is a firing area for example and you can go uh, in a car when it's opened a couple of times of the year because there's a village there called Imba so it is open at some times what I find fascinating about Stonehenge they're the people and I'm going to show you what they look like in a moment but I want you to come and visit Stonehenge with me because we all think we know Stonehenge. It's the most iconic stone circle in the world. So we do think we know it. But when it was being restored from the 1900s onwards, what didn't fit the model, and this is the model that Stukeley drew in 1724, the Reverend William Stukeley, that's the model. And then when Colonel Hawley came along in the 1900s, that's the model. And Atkinson in the 1960s, that's the model. But what Colonel Hawley did, he found many unusual stones, but it doesn't fit the model. So what do we do? Because we think we know Stonehenge. So they buried it nearby. And what I've done is I'm raising all these stone features and showing you a new view of Stonehenge. Then we're going to have a look at the individual stones. Like I said when I opened up, they have been defaced and destroyed by English heritage. And this is one of the reconstructions, before the reconstruction, sorry, and but he tended to write postcards when they visited uh, in this era here in 1929, after illness. Time and time again, it was after illness. But we can see how bad the state of Stonehenge was there. They've got no lintels on hardly. That's what it looked like when Colonel Hawley arrived. And so they set to work to reconstruct over the next 40 years or so. But they all said one thing as well. And I could this quote here says, Still and then, those that drank the miracle water were healed. 
That was first written in the 12th century by Geoffrey of Monmouth. He said, if you take scrapings of the sarsen or blue stones that form Stonehenge, you will be healed. But could it be there was a different type of water generated by Stonehenge that was healing? And that's what I'll show you later. And also, in that model that I showed you earlier, the iconic model, they said there was one altar stone, okay? And you're seeing Stonehenge weathered, okay? It's terribly weathered. For orthodox dating, four and a half thousand years of British weather. What do you expect? <laughs> it looks grey. But originally it wasn't. I'm going to, if, later on, come and have a look at polished bluestone, archaeologist of Stonehenge. He was there at Atkinson's Deep. Atkinson wanted to know roughly how deep this massive henge bank was, glowing chalk white. Okay, and he said that what he saw, Atkinson lied. And it's in every single guidebook. Atkinson said, that's made of chalk rubble. It's just chalk rubble. And they kind of put it all together and made a wall. Our eyewitness said, no, it was scooped out of the ground like a pudding bowl and made high. What sort of technology did that? That's over 330 feet in diameter. So it's very, very smooth. Again, in the ancient world, there's evidence for colour. Everything may have been very colourful. For example, this is a barrow in Sardinia that I visited. It looks grey and it looks warm, but that's what it was like. Full of beautiful colour, okay? Ochre. I find ochre everywhere around Stonehenge. There's also evidence that the Henge Bank in other parts of the country that preceded this, were also colourful, carved with symbols. And that's from Professor Mike Parker Pearson. So what I say is that henge bank could have been very, very colourful. I've done experiments with ochre. If you mix it with some ammonia, then you can literally paint onto stone and even through storm after storm, it remains pretty constant. It would need a touch up every now and again. So again, it's a colourful world, the ancients, not grey like that, on the inside and out. And in Orkney, they found paint pots on the nest of vodka. And here we have that iconic picture all in the shades of grey. So, for example, that huge trilophon there, that was deep orange with a beautiful pink hue. These stones never saw the light of day until they reached Stonehenge. People think when they go and look at stones in, in what's called the Valley of the Stones, about 17 miles from uh, this monument, oh, that's where they got them from. no. They dug them out. They were buried. Because if you have a buried stone and you raise it to see the light of day, it's easy to make into a lozenger shape. So these stones were special. Avery was built from stones that had been lying on the surface. These came from deep underground. And they're, and blue stones, that term blue stone implies they're all blue. No, some were green. Some were such a beautiful green shade with red and then, like I said before, these flexes in them. Well, that didn't fit the model. So guess what Atkinson did? He buried them. 
And I've got a map to show you where, where they all were. When we look at Stonehenge, again, through this same, same model, then we see it's got an axis line that everybody says, oh, it's aligned to the midsummer sunrise. It's off Atkinson again. He forced that photograph, really, because if you were at the centre of Stonehenge, to get the sunrise over the heelstone, you have to be six feet away. And he got his photographer to do that. Any archaeoastronomer will tell you the heelstone's best alignment is to the moon. Every nine years, the moon rises above the heelstone. That's its true alignment. So we're going to go have a new view of Stonehenge now because English heritage will tell you there's a stone circle of sarsens in which there's the blue stones. Then you've got the trilophons. Then you have the altar stone. I say no. There was a concentric stone circle of blue stones there and there's the evidence for it. And here, Professor Mike Parker Pearson, he agrees with me. He says, we don't know if they, the bluestone sockets behind the greater trilophon were part of the Q&R bluestone circle. The, everyone else says it's a horseshoe, which I have interpreted, and I do. But we can, but the English heritage say, no, it's, it's a horseshoe. Let's, let's stick it as a horseshoe. But the professionals think it's a concentric stone circle of the bluestones on the inside. I'll show you that in a moment. That's the model. I've been talking about no avenue leading into it. And this is my model. And it's saying to you, there was two altar stones, very colorful. One was taken and were seen by the occultist of the royals. He stole that stone. And then that's the concentric circle. And there may have even been another trilophon. And I'll show you that. They know that's there. Yeah. So it could have been opposite. So that's what English heritage tell you. That is probably the truth of Stonehenge. And I'm getting more and more archaeologists agreeing with me. You just got to step outside the box and say, no, this could be a beautiful new Stonehenge. And right at the top where it says stone number 30 and one, you've got extra stones like a bluestone avenue. You'd walk processionally into Stonehenge through a very short avenue. That's not on any model at all, because Atkinson knew that there was that way to enter it. And he even got the excavation. That's the excavation showing you the entrance. But he decided in all the guides not to keep that in. Again, another kind of repressed information. James the first. Aren't our kings mad? Yeah, it's not a queen man. Uh, the kings of the past, honestly, King James VI for Scotland, James I of England, as he would become known, a very unusual king. Yeah, there's, and he even inspired, you know, all of Shakespeare's plays. He was paranoid about witches. Yeah, he was so paranoid about witches, he decided to write a book. Uh, his first uh, most famous book was translated the Bi translating the Bible from Latin into English. And it's still a bestseller today. And then he was accusing people of witchcraft and, and trying to kind of topple him down. And so he wrote demonology at the, uh, telling people, oh, they, if they have these signs on them, then they're a witch. And he started the frenzy of it all. But meanwhile, he was an occultist. 
and he had two occultists working with him. In fact, he was married to Queen Anne of Denmark. Okay? But he had a lover. And his uh, lover was called George Villiers, the dashingly handsome Duke of Buckingham. That's what I need. So traditionally, you have one altar stone here. It's said to have stood at the heart of Stonehenge. I say there were two, and I say there was evidence for two. The socket hole was found in the 1620s by James I, his lover, the Duke of Buckingham, and Indigo Jones went with him as well. Indigo Jones said that there was uh, six triathons. He got back through sacred geometry. We were going to find the sixth one. And they called the socket hole in modern times WA3359. So what happened? Duke of Buckingham said to James I, I'm ill. I'm really, really ill. The whole of England thought James I was going to die after his wife, Anne of Denmark, departed. And so the Duke said, we need a blood ritual. And they did a blood ritual. And the following year, James I came back to life. And the first place they all went to to visit was Stonehenge. Because they knew the stones could heal because it was written in the 12th century that they were healing stones. So that's where they went. And that's what we're going to go and search for, the altar stone. This is the, uh, the Duke of Buckingham uh, here. He, when he went there with Inigo Jones, he said, I will buy the trilithon. They, well, he wanted the greater trilithon to take back to, to London. And he offered the owner at the time any money you want. He was had more power than the King of England. He was in control of England at that time. Him and his uh, mother, they were both occultists. But the owner said no. And so that's the stone that they wanted. It's, it's leaning. Colonel Hawley put it back up. But that's the one they wanted. And they couldn't have that. So they probably, for their occult practices, took the altar stone. The second altar stone, which uh, is probably uh, being stolen and carted away. And this is the evidence for it. All through history, it's been saying the second altar stone in John Aubrey's famous book, Monumentum Britannica. Aubrey was told of the second altar stone's fate by the rector of Bishopstone. He said that Philip, Earl of Pembroke, Lord Chamberlain to King Charles I, successor of James I, did say that an altar stone was found in the middle of the area here and it was carted away to St. James. And they interpreted that as St. James's Palace in London. So it was all documented that the second altar stone uh, was stolen. And when I asked archaeologists, we had all of this evidence. They were still looking for it in the 1930s. For example, Oh, well, we'll just stick to the model. We'll just stick to the model. And it's probably here in uh, St. James's Palace or in another place in Wiltshire, which Inigo Jones designed. So it's in one of those places. And it was the most, one of the most healing stones there. With the official line of Atkinson with the second altar stone, they know the hole's there. They know the hole's there, so they've got to find it. And he says that the, the stone hole, WA3359, was for a makeshift uh, stone. And the makeshift altar stone was this blue stone with a groove in it. 
there still stands today by the altar stone. And there's one stone that they buried and hid away that has a kind of tongue. And they put these two stones together and they made a makeshift altar stone. Now, everything at Stonehenge had meaning. Nothing was by chance. And that's no way uh, the second altar stone. But that's the official line uh, going. So we're coming to another anomaly now, the buried trilophon. Again, Hawley, back in the 1930s, really knew that that was the model. They clearly saw that, but they knew that they didn't know what to do with it. They found it. And so this is the model Inigo Jones made of the sixth uh, trilophon. That's what, uh, what it looks like. And where is where is it? This is where it is. It's buried right there. And they know that and they won't dig it up and they won't do an excavation. I've called for one recently and saying, well, let's just have a look, geophysic, do something to try and find this uh, wonderful uh, stone. We're going to talk now about the power of stone. Because Stonehenge can really change your consciousness. And it has such healing ability that is second to none. And that is the magic of stone. Imagine there's loads of ley lines coursing through Stonehenge, but more than that, at the centre, you have a convergence of earth currents rising out of the ground. And also by the heel stone, that's a power point as well. We're going to have a look at the metaphysical properties of stone and how the ancients used the monument. And here we have a wonderful quote from the 12th century. For in these stones is a mystery and a healing virtue against many ailments. For they washed the stones and poured the water into baths, whereby those who were sick were cured. For not a stone is there that is wanting in virtue or leechcraft. I mean, it was the best place to go and have healing and mixing water with stone. That's a trace element of what was really happening with some of these very, very mighty stones. These stones here are what's called in situ. They haven't ever been touched by Atkinson. They're not swamped in concrete. That's how ancients, the ancients put them there. And again, imagine them pink and orange, very light pink hue. It's very beautiful sarsen that's come out of the ground. It's not that kind of gray color that you see. And this is the side of a very special trilophon. So join me now. We're going to Stonehenge. We've gone through the entrance of the blue stone concentric circle. And now there's a horseshoe with a trilophon behind me. And just on my left hand side is a towering stone. And if you walk towards that, you really do feel your body down one side tingle, for, for example. But it had a hole on the other side. And that hole there, according to the custodian of uh, Stonehenge, and the archaeologist, that made water even in a drought. It was magical. They said it could be a really hot day. It would fill up with water. And they tried to figure out where the water was coming from. And you can even see water erosion where it was overflowing. And so people went there from far and wide and said that, uh, you know, it could heal all sorts of disorders, shortness of breath, 
asthma is what they were talking about in that time. The fall in sickness, epilepsy is what that was called. And people even in the 1940s, after the war, used to go there and start bathing and washing in it. And they said they would be cured of all ailments. That's why in that first postcard I showed you, after illness. So it's very, very powerful. And so... There was queues now in the 1940s. People had ailments from the Second World War. So people are queuing by that stone. And the authorities got to hear about it and said, what's all this about the healing waters here? And they were saying, oh, it's like the lords of France. They said, oh, we don't, well, we can't have this. We're going to stop this practice now. And that's what they did. They plugged it up with cement and plastic. So it no longer is a, is a feature, but it's, it's remembered by the very old, even in Amesbury today. So that's one of the healing virtues of the mighty temple we call Stonehenge. This stone has fallen, okay? It came down in a storm. That's the line that, again, English heritage say. The stones didn't fall down. They've been up for four and a half thousand years. What happened was Atkinson got a crane and he lifted stone 22 from its socket and apparently it went crazy and it spun around and spun around and spun around and went bang into another stone. And so now that one's leaning. So they said, oh, we're going to push that one up. And this one came down because of something else Atkinson did, we'll see in a moment. But they, our archaeologists say that this tooling here, as it's called, broad tooling, it makes a spine, okay, like a big ridge, and you've got two, and they're at human height. So when that stone was upright, if I went against it like this, it goes perfectly down my spine. You get these spine stones at lots and lots of stone circles. Avery has one. And I believe that they were, when they were upright, if you put your spine against them, hundreds and hundreds of people have done this with me and said that they feel the energy. But here's a good trick when you go to Stonehenge, when you get book your private access with me, you can get your hands and go all the way down and you feel heat rising out of the stone. And I took just recently... This last month, I took 60 people all in all to Stonehenge. 60 people felt the heat coming out that stone. And then you get the guards come over. What are you doing? You're not allowed to touch stones. Not to touch stones. Gently like that. And I said, there's heat coming out of the stones. Was, uh, was the look. And he, then he started doing it. And he called the other securities over. and said, look at this. The heat. So I think it was generated like that uh, in the past. It's an incredible stone. All of the stones at Stonehenge trilophons were for healing, okay? This other trilophon on the opposite side has a very strange carving in it, okay? It's like a, we'll see it in a moment, it's like a rectangle. Back in the Elizabethan times, it was recorded that there was a metal plate found near Stonehenge. Eventually, it got buried in a burial, possibly with a very tall giant, as, as people, other researchers like Hugh Newman would say. I think it got buried, but it was said to be found near there. The metal, they didn't know. They were learned scholars at the time. They said it was tin. Then they argued, no, it's not tin, it's lead. And they couldn't figure it out. It had all these hieroglyphics all and these strange symbols on it. I propose 
that it was actually at Stonehenge itself. And this stone here of the trilophon, this is the carving. It's the exact same measurements as that metal plate. So maybe that was saying something about the history. But then people say, well, no, it was a Stone Age. It was in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age. But nonetheless, that plate, whatever it was, wherever it came from, probably went there. And that's what I think. And it probably shone beautifully so. Just before we come to the people of the past, I want to tell you about the fate of Trilophon 59 and 60. The spine stone that I've just showed you was gently leaning over like that. Anyone will tell you that a leaning stone shows you the strongest earth energy and it bows to sacred space. That's why when you enter a long barrow, you always have to go down and then come back up. You bow to sacred space. And Atkinson said, we're going to straighten it like this. It can't be leaning. Can't be, that can't be the design. So with crane and chain, he lifted that stone up. And he must have had an oh no moment. Because suddenly it had a, a cut out feature that began to crack. And it cracked doo, 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 all the way down. And they said there was a sound released from that stone itself. And today, that's the weakest point of Stonehenge. And they didn't know what to do. So they plugged it up with concrete. That's why you see this stone. And people go, what's inside that? It's a huge piece of ugly concrete. And that's because it was destroyed by Atkinson. But the people of the past, I mentioned that they had elongated skulls. There's two types of elongated skulled people. For example, back in 2015, when I first discovered them, this is the, the high queen of that long barrow that I discussed earlier, she had a hyper-elongated skull because it had been manipulated by bandaging. You do get naturally long-skulled people, but some of their skulls have been extended. And this is the one from Cambridge, uh, definitely a ruling elite. She was buried with artifacts as well. So they say in the Stone Age, oh, there, there was never any artifact. She was buried with what looked like a kind of uh, a wand with uh, antlers and also an incense pot. And the incense pots, if you imagine like in churches, they swing the incense like that, don't they? That's what they were doing. They had these incense pots. They were swinging them like in churches and they were full of opiates. So they were, you know, entering a, a different sort of consciousness, uh, if you will. Now, I didn't have the body proportions when I first had that skull. I then had to go back uh, to Cambridge to find out the, the dimensions. And even though they had very long, elongated skulls, they're tiny little skulls because we have a body measurement of one eighth of our head to our bodies. They didn't. It was one tenth. So they're very, very small heads and long bodies looking all completely out of proportions. And these are thought from an anthropologist from Oxford. And when I said to them, well, you've got all of this information. Has anyone ever put one of these together? And they said no. And with the full height of the femur bone, probably about five feet. Uh, this is a male, uh, for example. So very tiny little heads. And this is me measuring a, a femur bone uh, with uh, the crater of uh, Oxford. And 
all the measurements from all of the Neolithic long barrows, 17 inches or less. Even from the names like the giant's grave, they were just 16 inches. Again, five feet four tall. So that's the skull shape that was from, again, from the port. So you imagine that tiny skull and their faces were so narrow, like this. And when I said to the crater that you've just seen, that's like a child's. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. So they had, they were kind of very, almost like, as you'll see, fairy-like, because their ears were all in a, a different position than we have uh, today. So I think these were the mythical beings of that descended into the mounds in mythology in Ireland, because they say the Tuatha Dé Nan were the ruling supernatural, say, the fairy folk of Ireland. And after losing a battle, which they did have a battle, the elongated skulls, they descended into the mounds. That's what I think these beings are. They're very different from uh, the giants, because in every single report that we read, their ears were quite large, set further back. So we have our ears in the kind of, obviously, in the uh, right place for, uh, for us, their ears were uh, much, much further back, giving them, again, this mythological kind of look, uh, like uh, modern-day depictions that we have uh, today, but very fine features uh, as well. And I believe with their elongated uh, skulls that they had metaphysical powers uh, about them. And I think they could, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, I think they could hear the stones. So there's two types of long-headed people, like I mentioned earlier. This is a, a long-headed uh, person, really extended skull at the back, and the evidence from the long barrows, especially at Stonehenge, said there was some kind of battle that was going on at Stonehenge, for example. So you've got these mythical-looking people, and I believe with the ancient DNA that they were the ones that constructed Stonehenge, because it's a Neolithic monument. So you have the lesser type, and this is one here. The skull is still very tiny, uh, and they were, again, very small with their femur, femur bones. And this is a, a close-up of it, very, very uh, childlike, uh, and, and even in weight. And these bones are very, very light as well, rather than the dense skulls that we have today. And this is how narrow they are as well. And that's the measurement map that you use at places uh, like like Oxford, for example. So uh, if we look at there, then this skull is of the, the lesser long-headed type, but they are still very, very narrow. Now, let's compare that to the invaders that came in. And they were called the Belbica people around 2500 BC. And that's a comparison. So they would have looked like giants to them. So they were coming over and they were looking at our monuments, the Europeans. We've got all the DNA evidence uh, for this, incidentally. And I think there was now a battle for Stonehenge, just like in the Irish mythology, because the Neolithic queen that I opened up with, she had been murdered. And when I looked to the archaeological reports of all of the barrows that surrounded her, they had all been murdered as well. In fact, in one barrow alone, there was a massacre of about 40 males hidden away, squirreled away on the Salisbury Plain. So what was going on there? I think that the round-headed uh, people, and that's what the, the antiquarians kind of figured all of this out because 
they said long-headed people in long barrows, round-headed people in round barrows. So they were the people. There was a battle. And it baffles archaeologists. Why has Stonehenge gone over so many different tinkerings? They would take one stone setting and change it. So, for example, uh, 2500 BC, they took that concentric circle, made it into an oval shape. Then they would take something out and they would change it around. And they don't know why. Why did they keep changing all of our monuments? They did at Avebury. Avebury's not one monument at any one time. It's Neolithic and Bronze Age and Late Bronze Age. I think that's because the round-skulled people were dominating the area and tried to make it theirs. The first thing they did at Stonehenge was try to topple the Greater Trilithon by building, uh, by constructing rather, a big, big pit by it, but it still held its own. Now, Earth energies. I think these people of the past were highly, highly sensitive to the Earth, to stone. And they were very smart because I've been taught Dowson by Chinese geomants, uh, master dowsers of Europe, for example. And the master dowsers of Europe showed me something. They got me to Turin and said, we're going to show you how even today the bishops uh, would enter an ancient site. I thought that sounds really interesting. And so they got me to try and find what they call a neutral area. And so I said, I think it's here, just off to one side before you'd enter a church or a cathedral in the northern part of Italy. And then I said, well, I'm going to have to see if I can find these in, in the rest of the world. Because what they told me was really quite fascinating. You go to the neutral place before you enter the monument and just stand there for, for a while. And let the energies uh, soak in you. We measured them. There's a lot of uh, negative ions coming out of the ground. And the electromagnetic field gets a little bit stronger. And so does the DC field. So while you're being cleansed, you're being grounded uh, as well at the same time. So you, at Avery, this is the neutral stone. You stand by it. And then if you walk around it on its uh, inner face, there's a ledge where you can sit down because it cleanses the energies. So you don't take your emotional baggage, <laughs> we've all got that, into the stone circle or temple. You get this at Karnak with the, the avenues of Sphinx. So before you enter, you cleanse uh, your whole being and it really does feel good. Also, if you're into dowsing, you can do a before and after so if I measured somebody's aura, for example, and you, you take a pendulum or rod and just move it away from the body, you might get a reaction here. Normally it's about here. As soon as you've been into a neutral space, it will be way past me. So my auric field now is very, very receptive. What the Neolithic were looking for as well, whether it's a pyramid, whether it's a stone circle, they were looking for sacred water. And sacred water is water that is born within the earth and generates this spiral pattern independent of rainfall. It's supposed to be very healing and it emits this kind of high electromagnetic field of seven to ten hertz. That was their first design canon. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world. It's very, very expensive to bore. And it's very difficult to find so when you have moneyed people, they will want that water. They know about it. 
And if you're on your normal tap water that you, you know, drink from the tap, then that is groundwater that has fallen from the sky and filled up the aquifers. So an esoteric water divine in law, that's a healing symbol when you stand above it. But if you drink that water, you will live to a long, long age. And when I did some uh, water divining for, he's passed away now, uh, for Lord Barr, Alexander Finn, he said, come to my property. I want you to, to decode it, Maria. And he said, I live above the spirals. We drink spiral water. So they do know uh, about this, that's for sure. And there, there's these type of aquifers beneath the pyramid. A lot of people just say it's a groundwater aquifer beneath the pyramid. Yes, you've got that groundwater there, yang water, but then you've got the yin water down here. And that's the sacred energy that uh, you are, will be in that field. And these energy patterns of the underground water can create triple spirals. They are really sacred and very, very holy. And this is Newgrange in Ireland, a terrible reconstruction. I don't know if you've seen the before and after of this. That's got breeze blocks behind it. And in Ireland, all of the cons, as they're called, they have crystal quartz going over the top, but they stuck it round the side. They now know that was a mistake, a bit like some of the reconstructions at Stonehenge. And here we have the very famous triple spiral here and a lot of people will say oh that represents the time of the year and uh, could be linked to Sirius or Venus but the earth produces this and if we interact with these type of energies I believe they regenerate your own body water and they're very healing in that regard so I take people to ancient sites to work with these energies and cleanse, uh, cleanse themselves literally from the in, from the inside out. And these are the lunar effects at Stonehenge that create these wonderful patterns. But underground water doesn't behave like surface water. So surface water, such as the sea, uh, will react to the new and full moon in its high tides. These don't. In ancient Druid law, you would only pick mistletoe six days after a new or full moon. And they constantly said the, de- the, the year began six days after the spring equinox. I suggest that the ancient Druids were so connected to nature, they felt these days because these energy patterns happen six days after new or full moon. So if you go to an ancient site on those days, but everybody tends to go there on a new or full moon, then you'll be experiencing by numerous stones, these triple spirals. And when you kind of really work with this, this energy, then I have had loads of people had healing experiences. I took a blind person around Stonehenge and it's probably one of my most interesting times because she was so highly sensitized. She could feel and she said it was like music coming out of the ground and she could feel all of these triple uh, spirals. And here we have another one at another phase of the six days after the full moon. The first one is the new and that one is the second. So a lot going on at ancient sites. And a lot of people
people have all heard about leys. I'm sure you all have uh, here today have heard about ley lines. And back in the 1980s, I had the pleasure of working with the master dowser, Hamish Miller and Paul Broadhurst. And Hamish kindly has forwarded some of my books. He's a truly remarkable dowser. In the 1960s, John Michel said that there was a very famous ley line going from the west and coast in Cornwall all the way up to Hopton. That's what he said. And he said to Hamish and John, why are you going down sit, guys, and see what you get? And they thought they'd get lays aren't really that exciting. They kind of expand and, and, and do this. And then they uh, sometimes go into the ground. So there they were, uh, doused it, and then they realized they hit on a lay system. So if you imagine that there's the ley line and you've got a male current entwining it, and then a female current entwining it, like the caduceus symbol or a strand of DNA, that's a lay system. And they are very powerful. You'll get the lay going through the site as a carrier wave almost, pushing the energy on, but the current that's what the ancients were truly working with, because in an environment like Avery or Stonehenge, the ley line just hits one, two features. But these earth currents, they hit every single feature, bathing them in color. Like I said earlier, earth currents have a dominant color frequency. They're called the esoteric colors of the earth. You have the esoteric colors of the sun. So there's other colors that the Earth produces that aren't on the electromagnetic spectrum from red through to, to violet. Hamish called those two currents Mary and Michael because mainly because they have churches on them dedicated to Mary and Michael. And when I was in Egypt, I thought I would look for a lay system over there because everybody else just does the lays. And when I was uh, in, in Abydos Temple, for example, uh, you have the solar uh, ley line going right the way through the axis line of the church. That's done in yellow. There you've got another crossing point of a blue ley. You have three very powerful currents coursing through the land in temple after temple uh, with their with their energies. And they're affected by the sun and the moon as well. So you get the solar line will be charged, especially now. I mean, we're, we're, yesterday was Midsummer's Day, wasn't it? A lot of people could confuse Midsummer's Day with the summer solstice. People keep thinking it's in the ground. It's earth energy. It must be in the ground. But it rises up. And we've used very uh, sensitive filters to try and find uh, the different frequencies and the different colors. And it's interesting to note that when you look to famous dowsers, you have, for example, Isaac Newton. He, he was a dowser. But one of the best dowsers, unfortunately so, was Himmler. And Himmler opened up the Dowsing Academy during the Second World War. And in my family archives, I've got this wonderful photograph of Himmler shaking Hitler's hand saying congratulations on your Dowsing Academy, because they were looking into how to raise the frequencies, probably for very dark purposes. Yeah. But they were following and tracking two very powerful frequencies. They're opposite each other. It's the white ray and the red ray. And that's where they got the colors for the Nazi flag from. 
Because if you raise these frequencies up, it is said that you can partly control the whole of that lay system. So imagine that I'm right in the bottom of Cornwall and I'm manipulating energies. I can influence Hopton on the Norfolk coast. That's the power of it in a way. Wherever you are, you can influence something else. The German master dowser that taught me about the red and the white frequency said, we're going to go to Stonehenge and I'm going to raise it by a factor of 15. And he did it in a particular manner. He was a top German master dancer. He will always be nameless because he has the most high-ranking position in Europe, unelected, incidentally. But he is a very powerful dowser. So there we are at Stonehenge. And he said, I'm going to raise it by the factor of 15. And he did. And he said, and everybody that isn't in harmony with that earth current would dissipate. But they'll do it naturally. I thought, this I've got to see. I like that little trick. Uh, so he was there. He did a, a particular kind of rite, a uh, ritual, and everybody left. And then we were just stood in Stonehenge watching all of this. And then my head started ringing. And I was thinking, wow, oh, I can't, I can't handle this either. And I had to, to leave. I just happened to be talking to two ladies there. And she said, oh, I've got a really strange ringing uh, in my head. And that's what a lot of people can do here today. They can manipulate these energies. So I think, you know, when we go to these sites, tune in to see if you can get the color frequency. And it's so easy to do. You just get a, a Dowson dial. And then you get a pendulum and you ask to be shown the frequency. So, for example, the Knights Templar had their color frequencies. The Nazis had their color frequencies uh, as well. The British royals have their color frequencies. For example, whenever you get the red and the white ray of what the, the Germans were, were looking for, that's the symbol of the warrior. So when you go to some ancient sites that are associated with war and, and warriorship, that's the color frequencies. And when you go to other sites that have the frequency of the white ray and the blue ray, for example, that's the healing frequency. And that's where you can literally get healing. So and the Templars had their encodements and, and so did other societies as well. They all have their color encodement. And the royals, for, for example, they will only have a, a home or an ancient site where they're inaugurated like Tara. Uh, in Ireland, the high kings went there to be, you know, inaugurated, then you must have the red, the white, and the blue, uh -huh. which is our, our colour encodement of our flags. So I really feel, uh, as, as a dowser, when we really start to decode ancient sites, we can say what they were being used for, how to use them today, and how they were probably used in the past and by whom as well. The natural thing is when you work with these color frequencies, for example, if you're into healing and you allow that energy to literally come through your being, that will call you in the healing frequencies. So it's more than just looking at lines on a map and it's more than just looking at earth currents in the ground. 
And at particular times of the year, if it's a male uh, current, like that's a solar line with male uh, currents entwined in it, they become active at particular times of the eightfold year, which are, we've just had one, the solstices. They make the quarter days. Then we have those days in between, for example, like August the 1st, Lammas, that's the next portal day uh, coming up. Then we have uh, Halloween, Christianized to Halloween, when uh, in Druidry, the ancestors are close and they can kind of come out of the ground and you can converse with them. And in bulk, uh, February the 1st, these are when these energies are at their maximum. And it's a sad fact is when everything's at its maximum and you can really, really become empowered by it, Stonehenge is a free-for-all. Anyone can enter. And it's then, you know, thousands and thousands of people and, and it's, it's pretty chaotic. But if you go there on those days, you go to an ancient site on one of those eight-fold days, the veil is thinnest. And then you can interact. And then you can feel. And then you can walk around the monument. I believe that's how we should try to reenact how our ancestors were. So when we have a recap on this journey of going to Stonehenge, Stonehenge isn't what you've been shown in the past. It really isn't. Stonehenge, I found you lost features of the lost altar stone, the trilophon, and there's many other features besides that. I've also shown you that there's a mythical race, a long lost mythical race that interacted with Stonehenge, built phase one and phase two. The later phases of Stonehenge were built by the much taller people and the geology and the archaeology fit that model. It's just we're not uh, told about that at all. So I'm just going to be uh, wrapping up uh, in, a, in a moment. This is my new book coming out soon. It's uh, going to be out in September. It's got far more than what we've discussed uh, here today. It's uh, going to be out, like I said, probably September, October, because I'm taking Earth energies into the next level now. Uh, not only doing color, that's all my old research of uh, time's gone, as it were. I've, I found out every single Earth current can produce a musical frequency. And if you walk around an ancient site in a particular manner, you're walking in that musical harmonic and becoming one with it. And you can play musical instruments uh, to that harmonic. Also, I've discovered how we can enhance food production by living in harmony with Gaia as well. And my agricultural trials are now two years on. And I think that we can safely say if we follow this model, you can grow faster, no chemicals and be healthier for it because we can learn from the past and bring ancient technology to the future. Thank you. an intriguing lady. <laughs> I have to practice my accent. <laughs> oh, so much change, everybody. So much change. Enough of this other stuff. Okay, this is the Valiant Thor contact. We haven't 
revisited Valiant Thor for a while. This is Regina Meredith. Mm. What evidence do we have of extraterrestrial social engagements with humanity? Paola Harris recounts her visit to a historic ET contact site where Valiant Thor, his brother Don, D-O-N-N, and the mysterious Jill once attended a lecture by Howard Menger, Harris, offers insight on the story of Val Thor and shows rare photographs of the alleged humanoid extraterrestrials. Harris delves deep into the stones relating to famous books such as From Outer Space to You by Howard Menger, Stranger in the Pentagon by Frank Stranges. We had him live on our show. It's quite a while ago, but we're here back again. And the works of George, George Adamski. Tell everybody about George Adamski, Rama. Um, he was a uh, contactee, and um, he's had he had many encounters with many of the Galactic Federation. Okay, that was nice and to the point. Okay, this is Regina with Paola Harms, and this is 47 minutes. So here we go. Here we go. When the world exploded the atomic bomb, it got the attention of a lot of cosmic cultures. Not only were there crashes and so forth, there were visitations. I had seen the Integratron, and then all I needed to do was start interviewing people from back in those days to find out that what I believed to be the real ETs were people. It wasn't about religion. It was about this is of highly kept secret and black projects that make money and as Colonel Corso told me, weapons of war. You mean you're telling me that in 1970 you guys saw space people coming off the ship? And he goes, yes. Back in more innocent times, the 1950s and 60s, there was a different type of contact that was taking place between extraterrestrials and human beings. Beautiful, well-dressed visitors approached men who were highly intelligent, but not necessarily academically oriented. In other words, open-minded. Their messages to humanity have stood the test of time, but we ignored them. So, welcome back, Paula. Well, it's wonderful to be here, especially to talk about this situation with you. Yeah, I just, this is a topic I really love, and I was very grateful. I mean, you know, you and I, as everyone knows, have been through a lot of adventures together. We've done quite a few kind of joint interviews. You introduced me to Paul Hellyer, who was Mm -hmm. the former defense minister of Canada. You came to Italy to see the Giants. (laughs) We go back. We go back, But one of the things I really love and am very grateful for was you originally turning me on to the stories that happened in the 50s and 60s because it was 
kind of a sweet time of contact that turned into kind of a dirty affair with everyone competing with each other and calling each other liars and, you know, stealing stuff. It, it became very undignified, I have to say. But back then, there was some dignity to it. So how did you first come across, we're going to talk about Howard Menger in his book, From Outer Space to You, which I love. Let's talk about that. How well, did you come about that? It's I call it back to the future because I, like all you people that had worked in ufology, and I am a journalist uh, rather than ufologist, I want to, you know, say that. Uh, I, I care about history. Right. I care about the history. And I've always looked at it in the timeline of history. And no, uh, history did not begin with 1947. It began even more because we know we've done the 1945 Trinity case. When the uh, world uh, exploded the atomic bomb, it got the attention of a lot of cosmic cultures. Not only were there, uh, you know, crashes and so forth, there were visitations. And if you if you look at the timeline of the 1950s and what was going on in Southern California, and California has been uh, like a, a pioneer in a lot of things, then I had to go back and look at the uh, Space Brother movement, what's called the Space Brother movement. So I had been to Giant Rock. I had seen the location. I had seen the Integratron. And then all I needed to do is start interviewing people from back in those days to find out that what I believe to be the real ETs were people. And they came here uh, in the 1950s because we jump-started the New Age, what we call the New Age today, with Yogananda, with Maharishi, with the new thinking. I mean, even Adamski, he would call his lectures the uh, the Temple of Tibet. Yes, and he would, right, and also, right. yeah, and you agreed with that. You thought, oh it was, no, absolutely. And just to kind of further validate, when I had no interest in any of this back in the oh mid eighties or so, when I was talking with my own group, group of beings, um, a couple people had had experiences, and I asked them, well, are, are they really here? And they said, well, exactly what you said. They have a, an increased interest now that you have nuclear capabilities, and you'll often find them surfacing around military bases and they're watching military activity all over the planet and have been exactly since we started playing with that. They said that will not be allowed to go out because we actually tried to shoot some, uh, a nuclear weapon to the moon at one point. They Colonel Corso said he, it we, was taken down. I mean, you know, literally it was that this project horizon was the film of it is amazing. Yeah. The way that that, he, that spacecraft came in and took it out. So that's not going to be allowed. We're not allowed to pollute the rest of our cosmos. So they're very, that was the validation (laughs) on that. The other one was Adamski stating that there are over 400,000 humanoid species throughout the universes that he knew of at the time. This is a very common, efficient vehicle. Yes, and it's normal for me to yeah. to think that, you know, that, that other planets are inhabited. Why not? I mean, why oh, yeah. not? But not just with praying mantis types that we talk about underground and Earth, but, and, and little ETs, but actual humans, what look to be human beings, structured very similar to us as we were once long ago here, developed this way. So we're, so we're humans developed on other planets. It must just be a good vehicle to be able to express through. 
Yes, and you know we're going to see some pictures today, you know, of Val Thorne and yeah. Jill and and Don, and everybody says how how come they're so good looking? And I said, well, <laughs> the, maybe you could get to the point where you can clone a human being, and I know that they they have done that, uh, and then you put a consciousness into it. And if you had a choice as a consciousness, you'd pick a beautiful body. Mm-hmm. You'd pick one that would that would you know you can almost like going shopping. Yeah. You could pick, <laughs> you could. Could pick a body that you would like uh, and take good care of it. And but you know what interested me was, and Colonel Corso said to me once. He said, "Paula, he said the extraterrestrial biological entity. He said is kind of a clone. He said we've done an autopsy on him. And of course, in my book, you know, Conversations with Colonel Corso, he he gave me a drawing of the autopsy that they had done. Plus, he had said how close they were to the human body. He said, but. We weren't worried at the Pentagon about those. We knew what they were. He said we were worried about who created them. And right. he said they could walk through the halls of the Pentagon and never be. John Warner the Force said yeah. that's what an admiral told him. You want to know what E.T. is? Look around you. They're all over the Pentagon. So they're walking up and down the halls of the Pentagon. Let's go back for just one moment for people who aren't familiar with it. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso wrote the book The Day After Roswell, right. which talk, talked about the debris from the Roswell wreckage that was then back-engineered by our the military, Army. The Army, yeah. Military-industrial complex, Bell yeah. Labs and others. All sorts of stuff came out of it. Really interesting book to read for people interested in this topic and what happened back in 47. So that gives the context for who Corso was as you talk. Yes, and, and, and I have to go with what people of that caliber tell me you know, he was a hero and that he admitted that, that, that he had these artifacts. And, and he said to, to make the competitive edge of the army, because I think that different branches compete for contracts. Yes. And so the Air Force probably had it, but they didn't have a Corso to talk about it. Right. To talk about it. They, right. they did have stuff parceled out. Right. And it was, I think... 13, 14 years after the 61, I believe. The crash was 47, 61. Well, the, we general, had, uh, the crash of, at 45 in 1945 went to the Atomic Energy Commission. Right. So they had that stuff too. And then they got the, the yeah, army and yeah. whomever was their air force that took the debris away from Roswell parted it, Roswell parted it, parted it out. And he did this under the, he was with the foreign technology division yes. of the military, meaning didn't mean Cuba. No, <laughs> foreign, foreign as foreign as you can get. Yes, <laughs> and they and they had him have it an, everything analyzed in 1961. It was exactly. it was delivered in a metal filing cabinet. Actually, you know, Regina, I've got to be honest. That changed my life because I realized that the secret was being kept secret because of the technology, not because there would be panic all over the world. If they look like us, there's no panic all over the world. Right. I mean, so. You know, it wasn't about religion. It was about this is a highly kept secret in black projects that make money. And as Colonel Corso told me, weapons of war. So, you know, what? now I know why the secret secret. Well, not only that, weapons, they turned the use, they used the technology that they were exposed to for warlike purposes. Right. It can also be used for good. Oh, absolutely. It can be used to literally power the entire planet, exactly. free energy, all of it was available to for, to us at the time, but it was all sequestered and used for darker military purposes and for a profit. Some of it helped humanity. I mean, certainly you could say that um, 
fiber optics help humanity. Night scanning devices, yeah, and all those things. Kevlar for police vests and all. So it wasn't all bad, but they they even said at the time, if this is misused, you can blow this place to smithereens. So it's you have to be very careful with what you choose to develop there. Well, that's one of the reasons I went back to the future because, and I keep saying back to the future, when I went to Highbridge, New Jersey to look up the Menger case, we were in the Cold War. Russia was the enemy. And, and we were, we had missiles pointed at Russia, like the Maelstrom Air Force Base in 1969, mm-hmm. and they had missiles pointed at us. And so it was a time that's now. Oh, it, we, I mean, now well, it's basically like they were warning of what was going to happen. We're there. That's where we are right now. We're there so let's right go now. back now. Let's go back to Howard Mender, and here we can see a photo of Howard Mender. And he was a very intelligent man. He actually did printing for a living, but mm. very bright, very open-minded, curious, and a kind of refined soul when you look at the way his book is written. Um, the language then was more gentlemanly, more gentle, more refined in general, more credulous, where if someone meets you and says, I'm from Venus, and they certainly seem to have a strange craft and energy People are going to say, okay, all right, tell me more, right? They're not going to get a gun out and start shooting at them. No, it was a different world. And I think he, you know, you probably saw the video where he's, he said he heard this beautiful music in this, uh, you know, in this cabin. And uh, he went down to meet the people and the people were beautiful people. And they said, you could do this too, too. And he learned music by ear. And he did compose. And he did compose. What's nice, and I'm going to reiterate this, is this is an East Coast story. We usually go to the West Coast stories, like the Adamskis and the Tassels and the Orfeo Angelucci's and all those guys were West Coast. Mm -hmm. This is East Coast. And that's why this story wasn't researched as much. Because I wondered, why didn't they go back to Highbridge, New Jersey, near New York, and research the story? It's it's, it's very unique. Well, let's talk about it. So he was 10 years old when a beautiful Venusian woman met him out in the forest, and he's like, blink, blink. (laughs) And he's kind of smitten, and she says, I'm here to tell you that you have a a special place um, with us. And ultimately, he was to learn that he, that he is from it, like Adamski. He was one of them, but he was born as a human to be able to start bringing this information through. So um, he, they conditioned him slowly, met with him over the years and protected him in Okinawa when he was in the war. He should have been killed um, many times over, but they protected him until he came of age to where they could start giving him the real experiences and messages and let's talk about those because that's really the point of this right and the the messages and the fact that uh and you have to digest this that most uh even in latin america most ets look like us Mm -hmm. and are mixed in with humans uh and uh people that work in this area that study the space brother movement have had some kind of contact with with people, even Timothy Good said he met uh, one in New York in a hotel. He told me, mm-hmm. uh, and he and, and telepathically he said to the being, "Are you from here?" And if you're not from here, Timothy Good said, "Put your right uh, index finger on the left side of your nose." And the man did that. Mm-hmm. So so that makes you stop thinking that the field is only little gray aliens or all different types. Yeah, that started that, coming that, later. That that came later. That came in the 60s after the Betty and Barney Hill case. Before that, they were all human like us. 
And this is an incredible story because we have photos. And because the photographer, August Roberts, has left notes about taking these photos. So when these beings started meeting him with him as he was older, a couple things were happening, right? Where, first of all, he was assisting them to integrate with humanity. And he said, and they told him, you're not the only one. We've reached out to quite a number of open-minded individuals and who feel safe enough to do this, right? And he was helping the guys look a little more normal for the 50s and 60s, cut their hair off because a lot of them had long, the men had long flowing hair. Very beautiful, right? I, you know, the thing that I always, I always look for, and I've done other stories on, on, uh, you know, human type aliens is that they usually overdress. All the guys. We're going to see an example of that. <laughs> they think everybody wears a suit and tie. You see, they a tire. Yeah. Explain who the people are in order on the okay, screen. Okay. Well, there's Jill, who has got high heels on and a very, very beautiful handbag and leather. She looks like Grace Kelly. Um, there's Don, Val's brother, and there's Val Thor. Val is the one on the end that's taking notes because yes. what Val and he was listening was to Howard Major talk. I know it's like you know, stranger at the Pentagon. Could he leave the Pentagon? Yes, he could go where he wanted. He was and, like and, us, yeah, and, but better dressed. <laughs> yeah, and there's a hundred people in this photo because these photos are incredible, and they're just sitting and and getting an outdoor lecture. And we actually enlarge in what Val was writing, and the first sentence is, "We are one." Yes, and and I was very very impressed by that because. I mean, here's a contactee. They're in the contactee's backyard with his first wife, Rose, uh, in Highbridge. And, and by the way, the reason why I think this is important, these photos, is because when I went back with David Kalbosser and Bill Crowley, we wanted to stand in the very spot right. where Val and Jill and Don were because we felt that if we believed there was no time, that we were there in the 1953s, mm-hmm. and they were here and with there us. Are, there you are at the tree. Yeah, well, it. because I had yeah. to find the exact location. It was like, that's field research. Right, right. right yeah, it is, it, and you're it, famous for that. Well, so, that's the only way I can find anything out. Yeah, and you are. You're the best. And so when they would originally show up here, they had their own native garb on, which was almost like a bodysuit that we would classically Mm -hmm. know of. And the women had kind of a tunic that was flowy. They had flat shoes, you know, very thin shoes, but flat. And so it was more like what you would imagine in a futuristic scenario. And so it was they had to take them to the clothing stores and get them all, you know, to the hair salons and such and, and to the barber and all this to get them so that they could blend easily so and blend walk among us. Exactly. And so let's move on then from, so they're giving Menger messages. They've been looking after him his whole life. Um, they're telling him about health and well-being. And in, in a little bit, we'll talk about some of the technology that he discovered when he went on board with them and all of these, all of these yeah. Same with the dance ski. They went on board these crafts. Same with Van Tassel. He and went on that, you know, and, uh, and in Italy, we had Eugenio Siracusa that met these people right. and looked exactly like this. Yeah. Uh, with the, with the body suits and so forth. Yeah. So it isn't same, they just came to the United States. They, in same the 50s, representation, whoever saw them at that time. Right. And, the and the, uh, and the and Eugenio went to all the heads of state yeah. to try to change things. So let's talk now. Let's go into 
Valthor's time. He, he was over a fair amount of time he spent here in the United States and was meeting in the Pentagon and was meeting with President Eisenhower, Vice President Nixon. And this was documented in Frank Strange's book, um, Stranger at the Pentagon. Right. And definitely worth reading as well. And this was validated by Admiral Byrd's nephew at the very beginning of the book says he, he had top security clearance and he witnessed Balfour meeting with them. These men, these, the president, vice president did meet with him. And, I, and I'll add one thing. When we were doing our research, we brought in George Filer, who had worked at the Pentagon as a mm-hmm. courier under Curtis LeMay. And George Filer told me uh, and the, my crew that were there that he was told when he went to LeMay's office that there was a guest in the cafeteria from another planet. He yeah. was told that. So the reason why I'm even mentioning, God bless George Filer, he also had contact as a child, he told me, mm-hmm. uh, on these coasts, is that we need to go back to the source and get their words, not something from a book or, you know, gossip. Mm-hmm. When when a George Filer tells me he was told that, Mm-hmm. and he worked for Curtis LeMay, mm-hmm. then I know that that it is not unusual to have visitors at the Pentagon. No. And, I, and then we have the movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is exactly that story. Yes. yes. It's yes. Exactly. And when you watch The Day the Earth Stood Still with the lens that these beings were actually here giving these messages to humanity at the time, takes on more import. It makes it more intriguing. Right. Um, so he's meeting with, Nixon apparently was very intrigued with what was going on. Eisenhower was apparently open to these messages and they were in dialogue. And he was saying, you have to let go of your warring ways and stop using your resources to kill each other. This was a big message at the time after World War II, right? Exactly. You have to stop doing this because it's going to bankrupt your planet. It's going to cause nothing but geopolitical issues, which look around, read any headline any day. We're... We're worse off by far than we were then, right? Yeah, well, I, I look at it as a huge chess game. Mm-hmm. And the only way we can win this, you know, everybody has to have nuclear. So if Stupid. everybody has to have nuclear, then you're playing chess. And the only way you can win is to do checkmate. Yeah. Because once one, you know, wins, everybody loses. Right. So it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out we're on a dangerous trajectory. We're SOS. So one of the reasons why I went back to Highbridge is to ask for an intervention. And I've got to be honest with you, the three of us that went back, did a meditation where Val Thor was and said, we may need intervention here because we're in the same situation we were during the Cold War. It's important to point out, though, that there's been intervention all along since we've gotten, you know, developed these ridiculous weapons. There has been intervention. I don't. I don't see that playing out on this planet. I think we're, I think we are coming toward that. You can see the struggle with the forces trying to keep this military game going. Ultimately, we're going to run out of cash, resources. People aren't going to show up for the wars anymore. But until then, <laughs> and I'd love to, I'd love to see that. I'm going to visualize that scenario. Well, so this it. was told to, to, um, this was told to Eisenhower, uh, back in the fifties, right? Well, Eisenhower realized, like I realized with Colonel Corso, that it was in the hands of the military-industrial complex that people were making money off this. And that made his speech even more profound, didn't it? Yeah, because he said, beware of. Yes. So at that time, maybe people didn't understand what he was saying. 
beware of the military industrial complex. It is not the government. It is the, the black ops, the, the, you know, the, the, that are running the, the, show. the show. And so right. Eisenhower, according to Stranger at the Pentagon, Eisenhower's response was after taking it in, listening, um, with him laying out these, you know, potential agendas where humanity could live a much more healthful existence. We could use those resources for health, well-being, education, um, farming clean foods, for example. They're really big into vegetarian clean food diets. That was one big message. Eisenhower's response to him was, we've considered it and it will bankrupt the country if we choose to unplug from that complex. Yeah, he also said that there was a a pharmaceutical industry that yes, was a, that an was industry that would go down the tubes. That that was that far. The, the, we had established that. You know, we have institutions. One of the institutions was a pharmaceutical institution, and 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 I think you agree that people should read from outer space to you because that has thirty pages. Oh yeah, of, of 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 how you keep your blood alkaline. Yes, of, of what you should eat, of how you should live, and purify water, all this kind of stuff. That is, those were the you know the words that the, the Venusians used to help humanity live longer. They didn't understand why we died at such an early age. And they said we should easily be living to one hundred and twenty. Well, hopefully. in the Bible, they lived until a hundred. Exactly. You know. Hundreds of years. So how come what happened in between time? Um, you know, it's like you know, Cheetos or <laughs> Tastios. They are. <laughs> I mean, so it's possible because they said we're we're here to help you, but when you have an industry that is built on drugs and an industry that's built on pills and and keeping for many reasons, it's an industry. Uh, Eisenhower said about that industry, my hands are tied. Also, exactly. Now, so we're talking about. Um, a military pharma industrial society. And that is where we are. All we have to do is think back, even the last couple well, of years. Well, watch the commercials on TV. Watch the commercials. <laughs> watch who runs the news. <laughs> and don't think there's not censorship as a result of the pharmaceutical industry supporting the news shows. Of course uh-huh. there is. So he, and they warned heavily about that to him. They talked about not taking pills quite a bit. Oh, yeah. And, and everybody, you know, doesn't understand. I mean, when people tell me, oh, I drink lemon water in the morning. Well, lemons are alkaline. Mm-hmm. And if you and in the book, it says cancer is caused by a acid blood system. That's I right. mean, yeah. so if we were to follow some of this advice and, you know, what's so amazing, um, you know, Regina, is that they gave him milk pods and fruit and examples of the fruits they ate, dried fruits and so forth. And in the archives I have that belong to Wendell Stevens, there is the actual, uh, you know, envelope that, that Howard Menger sent to the labs to I examine. I think we have a photograph of that somewhere. Yeah, right? yeah. because uh, yeah. he he had these things and he said, let's look at what they eat. Let's look at what they. And in those days, that was research. You know, well, what, what came back from the labs? Uh, yeah, and, and he, he actually did the research about that. But what know? was the report? Was there anything unusual? No, there was, I, I never, we could never get that. I'd have to, oh, I'd have to look at, never I, saw the because results. these are photos that, yeah. that we have yeah. of what they gave him. They even gave him moon rocks. They gave him, they did everything. They even gave him a piece of the craft. And that's when the problem started because then they had Howard come to, to NORAD at, uh, Colorado Springs to work. For many years. Yes. 
And so they, we were not, you were not, no one was able to get hold of the actual lab results of these foods. No, would have loved that. But you know something? We weren't looking at that. If I even had this material 30 years ago, I could have done more work. Mm-hmm. So you can't wait 70 years to look at the Howard Menger case. Right. And that's what we ended up doing. But if people, if researchers had gone after this in the beginning, we would have had more pieces of the puzzle. Right. Well, meanwhile, back in the day, now we get into the 50s and early 60s, um, Howard was told, he was told from a young age, you're going to be one that shares this information with the world, you and others. And he he actually made it onto some pretty big, you know, media <laughs> venues, the Jack Parr show. The, the Jack Parr show, the Arthur Godfrey show. Arthur you Godfrey know, I show. used to watch that. I, 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 I date back to those days. I watched Arthur Godfrey all the time and Jack Parr, but little did I know that in 1953, when I was in Rhode Island, this was going on in Highbridge, New Jersey. Just right, the but way. these guys were actually brought on to these big ratings, yes. late night shows and daytime shows and big uh, syndicated radio shows, too, exactly. in the day to talk about their story. And how were they treated? Well, you know, it seemed like it was sensational, but it, they didn't do not as dismissive. Uh, like when Van Tassel was talking about um, the Integratron, because, you know, the Integratron ha- was also to um, it, it was it was a time machine, he said, but it also was rejuvenation of the cells. Mm-hmm. So then you wonder it had Tesla coils around it. So you wonder how electrically you could rejuvenate your cells so you could live longer. It's the same message, whether it's on the East Coast or the West Coast. And, and, you know, it, it, I think there's more ridicule. There's more ridicule. Today, there's today more ridicule. it was more sensationalism than it was amazing, amazing. But today there's so, because I think it's mixed in, real information is mixed in with disinformation. So you can't, you today, can't, absolutely. you can't, uh, take, take what's real and what's, what's, you know, fake. And you don't, you can't, unless you do field research right. again. Going back to, and, and I told you, I was shocked at the Historical Society in Harbridge, New Jersey, the regular Historical Society, talking about the 1700s, is into the Howard Menger case. Mm-hmm. They brought us where the ships landed. They took us there. They said, this is a field, now it's a cornfield, but this is where yeah, the ships landed. Yeah, they treated it seriously. They treat, it really happened. Yeah. And they don't even discuss it. It's not like, you know, ufology. It's something that really happened. Now, the house is empty. Uh, and so it's, it's easily accessible and they're willing to talk about the historical society, uh, and the Jews willing to talk about this on a serious level. So that's more, people were more credulous in the day as well. And so let's talk about a couple things. You mentioned it at the very beginning of the show, and this I think is important. The whole point that Yogananda had really right. started becoming well-known transcendental meditation was starting to come to the fore, particularly in California, which is why I think a lot of these events happened there. There's an open-mindedness and a youthfulness about the state. And that day, a lot of it wasn't even settled till after World War II. So Yogananda was there. And you feel that these Venusians came because we were opening our hearts and minds to higher ways of thinking. Which we called in those days the New Age movement because it right. started as Werner Earhart, right. Scientology and all that. Of course, it all went. Yeah. Psycho-cybernetics. <laughs> so a whole thing, yeah. you know. Um, 
And the thing, as is all things on earth go, they go, they go to commercialism and sometimes they go south. They, maybe they are not as spiritual as we wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. But I want to add a, a, a one thing that's very important for me as a researcher. I try to connect dots and I had brought Robert Short back to Giant Rock you to, have to do, explain who each Robert of Short is. was, was one of the, um, Van Tassel type people mm-hmm. that had had physical contact with the being. He was driving down from, from uh, Los Angeles and the craft landed and the being walked over to his car mm-hmm. on my, uh, YouTube. If people want to hear his testimony, he said he was absolutely shocked that the being walked over and said, we have been watching you. But Robert Short added another thing. He said both Van Tassel and the early contactees like Orfeo Angelucci and those guys, We're talking to these beings on crystal radio until the FBI jumped in and said, you cannot talk on this frequency. And so then a Van Tassel and a Robert Short had to use their vocal cords because the being said, if we can't talk on crystal radio, we're going to talk to you. Can we talk to you? So if you can imagine 1959, the giant rock, 30,000 people there at Joshua Tree. And a Van Tassel and a Robert Short just allowing their vocal cords to be used. It's not channeling yeah. because the voice is completely different because yeah. we did To bring it. messages. To through. bring messages. And then I tie it to the Amicizia case in Italy in 1956 where they were talking to the beings on crystal radio. Right. I would, I would love to talk to beings on radio today or yeah, uh, some kind of, you know, some kind of direct talking to them. Um, like a telephone or so forth. It was normal then in the 1950s. It was normal. So now, clarify if I'm wrong here. Robert Short, was he the one that knew the director of The Day the Earth Stood Still? He knew Robert, Robert Wise. Wise. And Robert Wise knew about these messages coming yes, from these Yes, that beings. was a disclosure movie. Yeah. And then what, what? So that's when kind of public disclosure happened. Yes. Was because the we, day the earth stood still. The last well, yeah. part of that movie where Robert Short said, Paula, he said th- that Michael Rennie did not have a script for Who that. was the actor? Who was, he the, was the, actor. the actor? He did not have a script for that. So he said to Robert Weiss, don't worry, I'll make something up. And he channeled that last message to planet earth. You are dangerous people. We cannot allow you to come until you have grown in your consciousness if you read that it's a beautiful beautiful yes it is uh monologue it's a monologue mm-hmm. but michael rennie the uh, channeled it yeah yeah uh, uh, so everyone needs to go back and watch the movie, the movie. This lens so one thing so let's go with the technology for a moment so when howard menger went aboard the ships um what they did was they sent out a tiny little scout mm-hmm. craft little thing that would go and sit, 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 kind of uh, measure his vitals, look at his levels of it's nervousness. Like yeah. It was a probe that could see even past lives. It was able to probe into his entire being and uh, condense all this information, first of all, to d- see if whether he was ready for this type of experience, right? Yeah, you know, it's really amazing because when you have somebody like a, a menger that says, that he was taken aboard ship and you have an Adamski that has been taken aboard ship and you have, um, and you have a Billy Meyer that has photographs of being aboard ship of another ship. You've got to start tying these stories together because 
I feel that, that these are human type alien stories and they may be a little bit, um, there may be a group of people that don't want us to bond with people that look like us. So it's, it's easier to put the whole UFO. We're going to get to that in a moment. (laughs) Okay. So now the other technology that they had was, it was kind of like a blue laser or beam technology. Right. Where they would condition him, right? Right. Before he'd come into the craft. Otherwise he could get sick. Right, energies inside the craft. So talk about that. They also had uh, a a a type of uh, uh, transport where you could just you you became invisible and then you appeared and disappeared. Well, they had teleportation. Teleportation, yes, they did, and that's something we're working on right now. Exactly, and have been for decades. Yeah, they had teleportation. They had um, they had given them an actual machine. Uh, well, they can go on, on, on YouTube and, and because what had happened is that Howard built a, a small UFO that went over county lines. It went into Pennsylvania. The FBI came and said, don't do that again. Yeah. And then they took him to, uh, to uh, NORAD in Colorado Springs and had him work there. And, and the sad part about it is they said it's a matter of national security. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need to say that you deny your story. And that was very bad. And if we didn't, I didn't have the picture of him and Connie in front of Condon. I have that photo in front of Edward Condon in 1969. If the story isn't real, what is he doing with opening his book in front of Edward Condon in the Condon committee report? Explain who Condon was because again. Yeah, it's a 1969, the Air Force um, commissioned report was with uh, Condon. In, in the University of Colorado, who completely whitewashed the whole UFO situation. Now, this was based on information from Project Blue Book, right? Project Blue now, Book. Now, you can, if they can still go find it, uh, History Channel aired it. I don't know, maybe on Netflix or something. It's, even though it's fictionalized, it's worth going back and looking at pro- the series Project, Project Blue, Blue Book, Book, which Paul Heineck and it's a long story. We're not going to go there. Go do my other interview with Paula about Project Blue Book. Yeah. But that's all, that's available now. It's available now. Not only that, but Project Blue Book also had the, the missile shutdown at Maelstrom in it. So for Condon to just ignore all of that, but there is Howard Menger and Connie in front of him. So there you go. So we've got proof. So they were actually there. So let's now. Uh, move on from that because that those messages were ignored. We're not living to 120. No. We're still using billions coming up on trillions. Um, well, globally trillions of dollars and resource, precious resources on a warring machine globally. We're just, we're And stupid. also we have all kinds of problems with, with opo- opioids and all kinds of drugs because, you know, the problem is that they just said they had they had a formula for long life, which was fairly simple. Yeah, you know yes. most of them. Most of the stories I've done, they're vegetarians. <laughs> the the beings are vegetarian. And ultimately, but, we will be as well. We're kind of moving. We're moving that direction as a species, and that gets into a whole other story that we don't have time to go into. But let's go into what happened after this. Okay, we ignored everything. Eisenhower, everybody ignored it. We went, did business as usual. Now here we are. And so the story and ufology itself started changing after that. Once we get into the 70s, 80s, 90s. 1963, the Betty and Barney Hill case just changed everything. So, you know, because I'm, I research it all, 
Um, I really think that the early days is very interesting. People should read. There's so many books. I mean, Daniel Fry was, was a physicist and he took a ride in a spaceship to New York and he's a physicist who worked at White Sands. He was part of that. You could call it space brother movement. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. And he then as a physicist scientist, he, he starts a, a, um, a group of people called understanding, understanding in Arizona. So, there's a spiritual component there that there isn't anymore as much. It, it's a spiritual. I'm and gonna, those books are more unfiltered in what was going on. God, yes, because it's spirituality would have to be linked to this. I mean, there are still some good books out there. And, and you know, although, you know, as I said, this field's very competitive with people arguing with each other and saying, I'm the only one with the true story. But there are some good books that occur. They can kind of, I do talk about Nick Pope's book, Rendlesham mm-hmm. Forest, because it's the anatomy of how this is covered up. It's a really good anatomy of And that had to do with nuclear, too. You know? Exactly. Uh, so, uh, military, military bases in England. There was an event, joint, British and American. How, how this is covered up from the first moment so that you, the public doesn't find out the truth of what's going on. So that, that's a good one. But by and large... The field itself seemed to just kind of disintegrate in terms of integrity on a lot of levels. Well, also our vision of what the alien is, you know, I mean, I, um, the, I had to go from there. I had to go from Giant Rock to the, the Chilka Desert in Peru to the Sistopaz movement of the Rama group. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so, yeah, because south. those guys, you know, they, you know, I've had people say, well, why did the, those ETs go down to Latin America? Well, would you want to stay here? I mean, would you <laughs> want to stay here when the government only cares about the craft? Right. Didn't learn anything about the, the philosophy, the spirit, spirituality or anything. You wouldn't want to come back to the United States. So we don't have that anymore. I, I think maybe they could be around, but they're not going to do it the way they did it. 30,000 people in Southern California. Yeah. So they go to someplace like Chile or they go someplace like uh, like Lima, Peru with the Sisto Paz Rama group where people are still open. And they walk off the ships and talk to Sisto and the 10 boys that were involved you know i talked to his brother charlie he said yeah the, the being said come on aboard ship he said i even banged my arm when i went in the door i said you mean you're telling me that in 1970 you guys saw space people coming off the ship and he goes yes and then ricardo gonzalez who has all those uh, uh, uh you know encounters with antaral and those people in in the andes and you go yeah, you know, no, I go, I, I have to go. Argentina, Chile. I've been to the, because that's where they went. Right. And, and that's where they went. And I'm wondering what the messages are. And the messages now have gone to ecology. You, you want to save the planet? Be careful about your water sources. Be careful what you use. They've added the ecological message to this so i'm interested which is use your resources more wisely exactly so i need to know what the messages are so i have to go to where they're coming back to and it's a lot easier in latin america because they're much more accepted you know the governments there don't go after the craft i mean even with disclosure the way we have it we're looking at tic tacs we're looking at a craft nobody bothers nobody bothers to say what's inside Who's inside? What's Who's, inside? What's inside? Who's yeah. inside? Can we look at what's inside and why they're here? No, immediately we look at it as a threat because they can go faster and they're more maneuverable yes. than our current technology. The, the speed, the yeah. maneuverability. <laughs> and I'm going, 
<laughs> okay, well, we, we got that. We know they they travel these kind of crap. You don't you aren't you curious why they bother to come? Right. And then your answer is from outer space to you. Yeah, absolutely. Go back to outer space to you. Um, but you also had to, because you do go with these various people who are known to have contact. You do go out in the field to these week too long, week or week long and even longer events. Sometimes. And camping. I have to tell her I'm camping. It's yeah. horrible. It is. <laughs> but you also had your own experience with encountering one of the Yes, things, yes, I which did. Which scared the Jesus uh, out Well, it changes your reality. And <laughs> you can do the work. You yeah. can actually do the work. And I feel like I'm a journalist is just getting the data. Yeah. I do the work. I do the work. I do the You know, you go to all these places. You speak to the people. But when you have a... Your own encounter, your own situation, it, it really changes your reality because then you digest it. It's, it's one thing to talk about it like you and I, but when you finally digest it in your DNA, it, it changes your life. And that's why I think a lot of people don't want to touch a subject because they don't want their lives to change. They don't want to be like turned upside down and backwards. Mm-hmm. They like it the way it is now. <laughs> I think that is true. People do not generally like change. They don't but you're not, change. I know you, Paula. You're not afraid of change and you have been going out there. I, I don't think there is any other field researcher that's done what you've done, certainly in our times, in the I've subject of ufology. Yeah. You know, when people go after the Billy Meyer stories, I feel like saying, did you go there? Right. Did you see what's right. there? I mean, there's a hole in the right. trees there from one of the guns. I mean, you have to go there. You have to... And then you have to feel it. You have to feel what happened there. The Swiss government was not excited about pilgrimages to his house. Right. You know, so you got to look at this may have happened and maybe the government shut it down. Or, you know, you have to look at all of the stuff. And that was also a human tape alien experience. Exactly. And then you also, you know, you wrote the book with Jacques on the Trinity, on Trinity, the Trinity affair after the nuclear explosion and what happened in New Mexico. I mean, I know you've, you've been involved in so much. So I just want to say thank you for (laughs) decades and decades of boots on the ground research and for dragging me into it at times. <laughs> well, this, <laughs> was, this was journey. worth it because this was worth it, Regina. I'm so glad you read the book because you realize that that, that this gives us hope. It does, and also the Adamski books. Yes. Because those hope. are being protected also by the Stecklings. Right. You know, and Fred Steckling and now his son Glenn Steckling have those archives. But those are very interesting because it gets into the nature of anti-gravitational technology, how interstellar space travel occurs on these, these, these currents of energy out in space. I just found the technological part that Adamski shares absolutely fascinating when he was aboard these spacecraft. So we have those as well. I mean, there are some really good archival documents that we can read if we're truly interested. What interested me about the Adamski case and what Glenn Steckling said was that there are times in history, you know, along the timeline mm-hmm. where we can make decisions. And when NASA came about, uh, that Kennedy did, you know, started that whole thing, and we could have gone into outer space and made a lot of money off the uh, spinoffs of outer space. I mean, you, you have to miniaturize everything. You have to have medical stuff. You have to, there's a, enough things that we could have made money off and got off the war economy. Yeah. It was a time of, it was like a choosing of a road. 
and we chose to stay in the war economy. But when you choose to stay in the war economy, you've got to create the enemies. But the thing is, we, the people, did not choose that. No, it's been chosen for for us. us for eons, and now we personally have to take responsibility for choosing away from that psychologically, spiritually, when we can disengage from the businesses that support that. It's up to us now to make those decisions. And I hope we have another, you know, fork in the road because we could make money going into outer space. We could change the economy on the planet. And, and of course, the planet runs on economy. But if we keep going with the war economy, think of all the enemies we're going to have to create. Old story. So done with that one. We need to choose better. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for being here today. This is a fun story. And, and I, I highly encourage people to go back and read these books that we're talking about from Outer Space to you, Howard Menger. And then Stranger, Stranger at the Pentagon. And then Adamski's books, which you can find online. Okay? Any, anything else you want to add to that? Nothing. It's just it's, it, it, they'll find it fascinating to go back to the future. I agree. Thank you so much, Paula. Please feel free to go to Paula's site at PaulaHarris.com for really a shocking array of information, videos, and books on the topic of contact. She's a real deal. Till next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. <laughs> Nancy, that were the real deal, everybody. We are. Okay, I'm going to do a real quick here. Tanya Gabrielle. Zero degrees Aries, new moon, and zero degrees equinox. Double whammy, powerful new beginnings, no turning back. So, um, early next week, new beginnings are going to rapidly propel your upgrades forward with the equinox and the Aries new moon. New moons signify new beginnings. And Aries is the first sign of the zodiac. So, this new moon signifies the onset on a new period. On March 20th, this is bright and early Monday morning, the equinox at zero degrees Aries begins a new zodiacal year. And a new season, spring, in the northern hemisphere, autumn in the southern hemisphere. Rama found some music from both sides of the fence there. That was cool. Thank you, Rama. Hours later on, on Tuesday, March 21st, the Aries new moon, also at zero degrees Aries, catapults us again into new beginnings. Zero degrees Aries is a powerful Aries point, accentuating the tremendous impact of the combined equinox and new moon energies. Now, let me just turn the page here. A few more things. Um... Aries is ruled by Mars, a planet of energy and drive. Mars not doesn't necessi- necessitate creating and making up who we're going to fight wars with. The square is all about action, as are Mars and Aries. Just guard against impulsive or over. Oops, Rainbird, I can hear you loud and clear. Whoops. I'm muted. What? I'm muted. You're muted? Uh-huh. Well, I'm not to, except to talk to you, yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know what that 
is. It must be something in the technology. Okay. I'm, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We all don't know what we're hearing. There's a, a mouse in the house. Okay. So action is really the key because that's where Mars gets its greatest joy. That sacred warrior spirit of Mars is most happy when it can manifest and move into a direction as speedily as possible. Creating an outlet for your creativity is really the key with the square. And while Mars' fire ignites and Aries' new moon uh, ignites the Aries' new moon, it's a wonderful time to discover Mars and Venus. Tremendous impact on humanity at this time. It's all revealed in this free masterclass, Venus and Mars. Balancing, you know, they say that, what is it? Women are from Venus, men are from Mars. That's interesting. Balancing the divine feminine and the sacred masculine. You'll discover the magical transformation from aggressiveness to assertiveness, being healed in the sacred masculine energies. How the secret sounds of letters V for Venus and M for Mars miraculously balance the divine feminine and sacred masculine energies. How the number 13, mother's number, is, and I, if you reduce that to the four, we got Serapis Bay, and that in that Paul the Sphinx, there's an eternal flame. It never goes out. That's true, right, Rama? That's not a story. Right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> How the number 13 is being resurrected and restored. Helped. Helped by the 13, 13 phases of the moon, not 12. Got to get into the Ayurvedic astrology. Vedic astrology, excuse me. Ayurvedic is referring to the medicine. Um, 13 phases of the moon. Of Venus, excuse me. Thirteen phases of Venus. Wow. Studying revelations about the origins of the Mayan calendar. <clears throat> yes. Rainbird has been teaching us many things about the Mayan calendar. <clears throat> In relation to the awakening of the Aquarius age, the Aquarian age. <clears throat> love and blessings. Love and joyful blessings. Tanya Gabrielle. And there's a free training Tanya has. Absolutely free. Um, how do we get this to the people, Rama? They send it to Penny and then she can put it out, right? Mm -hmm. I think we could all, you know, I've heard this repeated a number of times that, you know, knowledge is power. And then uh, applying the knowledge is love, I would say, in action. In action. Mars and Venus. There you go. You are now entering a thrilling new state known as cosmic consciousness. Super consciousness. Or the fifth dimension. Okay, well, I'm sending you this cosmic conscious, super conscious talking stick. And that emerald serpent feathered one is with on all the fairies, angels, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and Menahuni and uh, Bigfoot. I heard about Bigfoot. What did we hear about Bigfoot today? There, there was a mention of Bigfoot today in my day. 
Okay. I mentioned Bigfoot yesterday. Okay, tell us again, Rainbow. <laughs> Refresh our memory. Well, well, I don't know if I was mentioning it to you, but it was a story about um, when I was playing the clarinet on the porch, and Bigfoot came and gave me a right a right. nod. <laughs> That's awesome. And that happened on when? What day did that happen? Oh, that happened several years ago. I was playing the clarinet on the porch. So it was outside, and it liked it. <laughs> and it gave me an applause with it. That was that reminds me of that one time. It was like thirty below zero, and Rama was sleeping in a tent. Right, a tent. Deep, oh deep. yeah, right. I remember oh, that. A teepee. Teepee was sleeping in a teepee in Vermont at thirty-one. Burlington? Was that Burlington, Vermont? No. no. Wakefield, uh, Vermont. What? Wakefield, Vermont. Wakefield, Vermont. And two Bigfoot. They were curious. Uh, I think there was a... Didn't they get something like a they, crack? They were the- checking on him because it was so cold and the fire went out. What happened, actually, is that it was so cold that we kept loading up the stove with wood, and the stove got red hot, and it cracked, and the uh, coal started to come out into the teepee, and the Bigfoot people were concerned that we were, you know, going to burn the teepee down, so they wanted to check on us. And so what ended up happening? They peeked in through the small coals, and our cats at the time were making sounds that uh, they were very upset. Howling at the moon? They were upset at the Bigfoot people, and that they Oh, they didn't know what to do. <laughs> they wandered off, and the next day we had to find a new home. Well, did you stay up? Were you warm enough making it through the rest of the night? Yeah. Even when the crack happened at the furnace? Yeah. And you kept on the, you left the heat? We let the stove go out. But it kept you warm enough to Yeah. Warm. Yes. Oh, stories. I pass it talking back to you, Ray Bird. <laughs> well, thank you for tonight. I got to listen to all of it. So, uh, yeah, and I love that song that you played at the beginning of the session, the spring, for spring. What was the name of that song, Rama? Uh, the Lisa Theo, uh, Ostara, Spring. Oh, okay. Yeah, I couldn't remember the name of it. So, yeah, thank you for that. And that was fun. And the whole day was fun. We did a lot. And I passed this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. This now, what you got for us? Rumi. Um, spring. (laughs) I was just going to read just the last little bit of Aurora Ray from this last talk. Any of our thoughts or our emotions are not who we truly are. Bring this closer. Any of our thoughts and our emotions are not only are not who we truly are, pure consciousness, which reaches beyond the limiting perspective of the mind, 
is who we truly are at our core. This is a fantastic understanding, understanding, overstanding as we grasp who we really are, who who is at the core of our existence. This is self-realization. We will now understand, understand, overstand that we are the master and that our thoughts and emotions are only choices. As we learn to master our mind and emotions, we can enjoy a fulfilling life, no matter as we have a lot of money or not. We will attract the best things in life and feel at ease by creating a happy state of mind. All the knowledge we need is inside of us, It's just blocked by our thoughts and emotions. As we get ourselves quiet enough to get in contact with the knowledge, our clarity will come flooding back. It's there, waiting for us. All of the answers are already inside of us. We are now entering a thrilling new state known as cosmic consciousness, super consciousness, or the fifth dimension. We love you dearly. We are with you. We are your family of light. Aho. I choose love. Hey, Rama. Dero. Inshallah. Satnam. Satnam ji. Until we meet again. Uh, oh, I guess I'm going to give Cheryl Croce's number out. You know, even though we don't sense or feel some things, doesn't mean it's not there. We just keep on coming together. Magic is always afoot. And the next line is the key. God is, is alive. We love everyone, everybody. Okay, Cheryl is at um, uh, 7 o'clock Mountain Time, so that's 9 o'clock Eastern Time, 6 o'clock uh, Pacific and of course uh, 8 o'clock Central okay 425-436-6260 and the pin code is 946-7441 pound we'll see you there and in your dreams love is the key I love you everyone we love you Namaste. Namaste. I wonder if we're ever going to get Dish Network back. This is a bewildering moment in the world. Namaste. Namaste.